Welcome to the mop-up for March 28th, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 28 degrees and partly cloudy. And Dan tells me that up in Rochester, New York, blizzard. Last night was the Academy Awards. The big story, of course, was CODA, a cinematic breakthrough exploring children of deaf adults. Will Smith was so moved by the movie, Will decided he too would start talking with his hands. Take a look. Oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Nick Mike's name out your fucking mouth. Wow, dude. Yeah. It was a G.I. Jane joke. Keep my wife's joke out your fucking mouth. I'm going to, okay? <laughs> I can, oh, okay. That was a... Uh, Greatest night in the history of television. So we are here to uh, give a documentary out, to give an Oscar. Well, where do we start? Where do we start? Well, I'm here in New York City where our new mayor, Eric Adams, has lifted the vaccine mandate for athletes and performers. There's a new Omicron variant spreading. Theater and basketball is back, and you cannot work for New York City. You cannot work in New York City if you're not vaccinated, unless you're a performer or an athlete. 1,400 New York City workers have been fired because they refuse to get vaccinated. But our new mayor, Mayor Adams, said last week that it's his job to bring money to the city. He said performers and athletes bring money. So he said they don't have to get vaccinated. If you're rich, famous or powerful, you don't have to show proof of vaccination because here in America, the laws don't apply to the rich and powerful. Brooklyn Nets star Kiri Irving wasn't allowed to play in 35 home games because he refused to get vaccinated, but now he can play basketball here in New York City. It means he can breathe on other players, spread the disease. It's okay, he's rich and powerful. There's a double standard. Baseball about to start, and there are some anti-vaxxers playing for the Mets. And our new mayor, Mayor Adams says, the rules do not apply to the Mets. Why should the rules apply to the Mets when the rules don't apply to the owner of the Mets? Stephen Cohen, who ran a hedge fund and a few years back got busted, convicted of inside trading. But instead of going to jail, he agreed to pay a $1.8 billion Fine. It was one of the largest inside trader cases in American history. And boy, did they come down hard on Steve Cohn, owner of the Mets. For two years, he was not allowed to trade on Wall Street. Ooh, how did he how did he survive two whole years without trading on Wall Street? Well, he had no choice but to go and buy the Mets, which 
granted, might be worse than actually going to prison. I don't follow baseball, but if there's ever been a team that could benefit from some inside trades, it would be the New York Mets. But Stephen Cohn doesn't go to prison, even though he's a criminal. He's sentenced to owning the Mets. Meanwhile, George Floyd is suspected of passing a counterfeit 20 at a convenience store. He ends up dead. And that's because when you're rich, when you're famous, when you're powerful, the laws do not apply to you. We all know that. We all know this. It used to be hard for us to believe, but not anymore. It's right out there in the open. There's a double standard. The, the laws do not apply to the rich and famous. Mayor Adams said so explicitly last week. He said we need money. Rich and famous people bring money to New York City so they don't have to get vaccinated. And this is why we're on the brink of fascism. Nobody has faith in our laws anymore. That is one of the seeds of fascism. When too many people come to realize the system doesn't work for them, they turn to fascism. They turn to people like Donald Trump because when Donald Trump goes to Georgia and says the system is rigged, he's telling the truth. What he leaves out is that he's the one who's rigging the system, but he's right when he says the laws don't apply to the rich and powerful, including Donald Trump. It's why Will Smith was still in that seat last night to accept his Oscar, even though he assaulted Chris rock. Anybody else at the very least would have been told to leave or he would have been arrested. Now, I might add that one of the many problems with America's legal system is that had Will Smith smacked Bradley Cooper instead of Chris Rock, then Will Smith would have had to deliver that Oscar acceptance speech from L.A. County Jail last night, or they would have taken the Oscar away from him immediately. I know the Academy has some very strict codes of conduct. I know physical assault violates those codes. I know assaulting a presenter on live television is grounds for taking back Will Smith's Oscar. We'll see if Will Smith gets to keep his Oscar. But then again, this year, Vanity Fair, which runs the big Vanity Fair Oscar party, that's the official party for the Academy. This year, Vanity Fair revealed that Jerry Lewis was a rapist. Yet, I don't see the Academy taking back Jerry's Oscar or Woody Allen's or Roman Polanski's. How many rapes did Harvey Weinstein have to be convicted of before the Academy finally threw him out? Considering this is Hollywood, all Will Smith is guilty of is felonious assault. That's hardly grounds for concern in Hollywood. We all know that. We all know that. We all know that the rich and powerful don't need to get vaccinated and that they can throw a punch in front of millions of people and then calmly return to their seat. 
and screamed the F word twice. And nobody ejected Will Smith because he's rich and powerful. Like I said, had it been Bradley Cooper, however, who was assaulted instead of Chris Rock, we all know Will Smith would be sitting in a jail cell right now. We all know that. There is no equal protection under the law. So last night's Oscars was all about diversity. Yes, Hollywood celebrates our differences, and it also celebrates settling our differences through violence, especially if it's black on black violence. That's okay. Black on white violence, not okay. But white on black violence, not just okay. Hollywood has a special term of endearment for it. The LAPD. That's what they call it lovingly. That's what they call white on black violence in Hollywood. They lovingly call it the LAPD. So there were two victims last night. Chris Rock was the victim of workplace violence and nobody protected him. And I'll get to that in a second. But Jada Pinkett Smith was also the victim last night, the victim of toxic masculinity, which Bill Maher Friday night was celebrating. Normally, he trivializes the term toxic masculinity because he doesn't know the meaning of it. But on Friday night show, Bill celebrated toxic masculinity while talking about President Zelensky in Ukraine. He was talking about how President Zelensky's toxic masculinity is making women want to sleep with him. Really? Is that why women want to sleep with President Zelensky, Bill Maher? Once again, Bill Maher reveals that he has no idea what women want or what toxic masculinity means, because Zelensky is not an example of toxic masculinity. Toxic men don't beg Vladimir Putin not to attack. Toxic men don't beg Putin in the middle of a war to stop attacking. Toxic men do not beg for peace. Vladimir Zelensky only turned to violence as a last resort, he exhausted every option, and now he's just protecting his country. There is nothing toxic or masculine about protecting your country. I think you would call him a mama bear, if anything. Vladimir Zelensky is the opposite of toxic masculinity, Bill Maher. The reason women, or at least healthy women, the reason women might find Zelensky sexy is because he's not a bully. He doesn't celebrate violence. He's asking for help to defend others. That is not toxic masculinity, Bill Maher. Will Smith, however, is an example of toxic masculinity. Jada Pinkett Smith was objectified and demeaned at last night's Oscars, not so much by Chris Rock as by her own husband, Will Smith. Jada Pinkett Smith is a strong woman. She doesn't need anyone defending her honor.
The idea that you need to defend your wife's honor through violence is the definition of toxic masculinity. Yes, Chris Rock made a, a, an unfortunate attempt at humor, and I'll talk about that later. And I'm guessing uh, Jada did not like the joke. Uh, she didn't come to the Oscars to be made fun of, but she is a strong enough person. She is proud enough and smart enough to handle that joke all on her own. She didn't need Will Smith defending her so-called honor. She's perfectly capable of walking up on stage and slapping Chris Rock all by herself. But unlike Will Smith, she's better than that. And she certainly didn't need her husband to go up on stage and slap Chris Rock for her. That counterfeit act of chivalry must have been humiliating for her. It implied that because she's physically weaker than her husband, she needs him to protect her from perceived slights. She didn't ask him to do that. I don't think, I can't imagine that she wanted her husband to do that. But Will Smith objectified her. He used her, he used his wife to act out his own inner demons, his own personal issues with Chris Rock, his insecurities about what constitutes masculinity, the pressure he was under last night because it's the Oscars. He used his wife's quote unquote honor as an excuse to cut loose and turn to violence. And that is the definition of toxic masculinity and nothing good ever comes from toxic masculinity. Zero. Keep my wife's name out of your effing mouth. That too is toxic masculinity because nobody was trying to intimidate or humiliate your wife, Will Smith. Chris Rock made a mistake. It was an unfortunate joke. Chris Rock did not know your wife had alopecia. He thought she was making a fashion choice. Chris Rock is way too smart to make fun of a woman with alopecia. There is no way he knew that Jada Pinkett Smith suffered from alopecia. Chris Rock made the unfortunate mistake of saying a beautiful woman who looks beautiful with or without hair. And he mistakenly thought she decided to cut her hair short. He thought it was a fashion choice and he thought it was a harmless joke, especially since Demi Moore also looked beautiful when she was G.I. Jane. I'm not gonna defend that joke, but there is no way Chris Rock would have ever ever intentionally tried to make fun of the way Jada Pinkett Smith looked. He's too smart. He's too good. He knows you don't make fun of someone for something they can't change. We know that. You know that Chris Rock knows that. Chris Rock was saying, I think you're so beautiful, I'm going to tease you a little. I'm not defending the joke. I'm defending Chris Rock's 
mens rea, his intent. He thought he was complimenting her because he didn't know she had alopecia. And so Will Smith, with his toxic masculinity, turned this into something far bigger. And now his wife, who I'm guessing doesn't want to draw any more attention to this subject, her hair, now she must once again talk about her alopecia. She didn't need a public spectacle of violence to defend her honor. It had to be humiliating for Will Smith's wife on a night that celebrated the power of women, people of color, people with disabilities, the LGBTQ. That act of Will Smith punching, slapping Chris Rock must have made Jada Pinkett Smith feel powerless and weak. And that is exactly what toxic masculinity is. It's finding any excuse to choose violence to make women feel weak. Choosing violence in the name of your wife's quote unquote honor is not only sexist, it debases women and it uses them because this wasn't about Jada Pinkett Smith. He was using his wife. This was all about Will Smith's pride. It was about his masculinity, his insecurities, and his honor. Not his wife's honor, his honor. If you want to protect someone you love, you don't risk going to jail or your reputation. You ask your wife if she's okay, and if she's not, she gets to decide how to take, how to take care of it not you. The husband doesn't decide unilaterally to escalate the situation into violence. Will Smith made his wife appear weak and defenseless, and she is anything but. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Perhaps I'm wrong. I'm, I usually am. Maybe she's glad her husband smacked Chris Rock. What the hell do I now know? But I doubt it. I doubt any woman wants to be around toxic masculinity. And it's what Bill Maher got completely wrong about President Vladimir Zelensky when he said Friday that sometimes we need a little toxic masculinity, that it's toxic masculinity that wins these wars. Staying put in Kiev and defending your nation is not toxic masculinity. Putin, Putin, this is why Bill Maher is always wrong. Putin is the one exhibiting toxic masculinity. And that's why so many of his soldiers are dying, because Putin is toxic. He literally poisons his enemies. He's toxic because he feels insecure about his height, his stature, his nation's stature. And that makes Putin a toxic male who resorts to violence. Toxic men fight only when they take something personally, when they personally feel threatened. And that is why Putin He's outnumbering the Ukrainians, but he's losing. Toxic masculinity. Bill Maher, you are wrong 
about toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity didn't win World War II. World War II was won with Franklin Roosevelt sitting in a wheelchair and Winston Churchill sitting in a warm bath. Seriously, a warm bath. What is more feminine than a warm bath? Churchill fought the war from a warm bath. No toxic masculinity from Roosevelt or Churchill, brains over brawn, and that's why we won. There is no excuse for toxic masculinity because there is no excuse for violence. Zero. And Will Smith didn't defend his wife's honor. He humiliated her on a night that celebrated the power of women. Jada Pinkett Smith doesn't need a man the same way Amy Schumer, Wanda Sykes, and Regina Hall last night also didn't need a man. Now, yes, as a man, a white man, I'm going to admit that last night getting that message jammed down my throat repeatedly at times felt a little uneasy because I was on the outside looking in. It's not the easiest thing in the world to accept that the world is better with a lot less of me and a lot more of them. But that's the way it must be. That's the way it must be. Because we have a Republican Party that chooses candidates like this guy, Donald J. Trump. But Judge Jackson was unbelievably disrespectful to Republican senators that in many cases were really nicely asking questions. She had total disdain and even hatred for them. And I understand that she's very proud of the fact that she never once voted to support President Trump on anything. She always voted against me and she brags about it. I always voted against Trump. How about that? Is that nice? She always voted against me. Maybe it's an incorrect story, but I have a feeling it may be correct. Maybe it's an <laughs> incorrect story, but I have a feeling uh, it's correct. So you have blind racism coming out of the Republican Party. The idea that Judge Jackson had disdain towards the white men in the Republican Party. That's Donald Trump. That's the standard bearer of the Republican Party. I mean, we do have right now an entire party dedicated to white supremacy, misogyny, hatred for the LGBTQ. So the very least we can expect from Hollywood is an Academy Awards night that spits in the face of this shameless bigotry. And we saw that last night. They spat in the face of Florida, the, the Don't Say Gay bill. They, they, fought, they, they fought for the rights of last night, people of color, women, the LGBTQ community, the physically disabled. And that is important. That is important because there's a fascist movement afoot. And fascists 
thrive on white nationalism and the othering of people. Fascists scapegoat people of color, the disabled, women, and the LGBTQ. Last night, Hollywood declared war against fascism by celebrating diversity. When you celebrate diversity, you are fighting fascism because prejudice, bigotry, misogyny, discrimination, fear, picking on the, the physically disabled and intimidation are all part of the fascist toolbox. Now, is there hypocrisy in Hollywood? Absolutely. Is Hollywood anti-union? Yes. Is it filled with annoying, self-serving hypocrites who care more about money and power than they do about the plight of the 99%? Unless, of course, they can cash in on the plight of the 99%. Yes, absolutely. There is no Hollywood without hypocrites, self-dealing hypocrites. Yes. But last night... They succeeded in presenting the other side of America, the hidden America, the real America. Because the real America is not straight white men. That's a tough pill to swallow for straight white men, but we're not the majority. We never were. Uh, I was never in charge, but my demographic was, and you know, there must be better ways to judge who gets to be in charge other than basing it on the luck of getting born to be a straight white male. I know that there are many on the left who think diversity is nothing more than window dressing. I understand that. Uh, some members on the left insist diversity is not necessarily class struggle. It's a distraction. I think diversity forces sensitivity onto all of us. Sensitivity to the struggles of all people eventually leads to a sensitivity to the struggles of the economically poor and disenfranchised. Diversity, I believe, is part of class struggle. It's not two separate things. Diversity breeds awareness, or dare I say, wokeness. And wokeness begets a sensitivity to the needs of all workers, not just the straight white males who up until recently ran the unions, which is one of the reasons unions are dying. Maybe the reason unions are dying is because they were run by straight white men. Diversity is not about dividing and conquering the 99%. Yes, it's used by the richest 1% as a cudgel, as, as a knife to separate us, but that's not what diversity is about. You see, we tried class struggle in the 1930s here in America. It was a golden age for class struggle here in America in the 1930s, but it eventually failed, partly, mostly because our unions were notorious for discriminating against blacks, women, 
Hispanics and the LGBTQ. Professor Gerald Horn, who we've had on this show several times, has written prodigiously about Hollywood unions and how notoriously racist they were. During the golden age of America's class struggle, unions primarily, there were outliers like in Bessemer, Alabama, which was a, a stronghold for African-American unions, but primarily unions only benefited straight white men. So when the right wing came looking to destroy those unions in the 1970s, there was no 99% to stand up for labor. Why would there be? Unions didn't stand up for anyone really other than straight white men. There were exceptions. That's a sweeping generalization. But there, you know, most of the labor unions in order to join these unions, you had to be a straight white man. And there was no way you were going to run most of these unions without being a straight white man. You can't have class struggle, therefore, without diversity. You can't speak for the 99% if only white straight men are speaking for them. If you look at the 99%, straight white men are only a small segment. And here's the other problem with straight white men. Straight white men have a sense of entitlement. And people with a sense of entitlement don't know what it means to lose. They don't know how to handle loss. And if you don't know what it means to lose, then losing cripples you. Losing cripples you. And that's why our unions are crippled right now, because straight white men don't know how to fight for every single inch of progress and then hold on to it. They want it handed to them. That's why our friend Christian Smalls is out on the streets every day fighting for the Amazon labor union. And Stuart Applebaum, uh, he's the president of the retail wholesale department store union, which is supposedly trying to unionize the Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama. That's why Stuart Applebaum sits in his corner office in Connecticut, staring at his degree from Harvard Law School and is too busy to live with the workers in Bessemer, Alabama, or even have someone return my phone call to have a representative from his union come on my show and make the case for Amazon to go union. But Christian Smalls, his Amazon labor union out by JFK, they're gonna, they're gonna be successful. JFK airport, that Amazon fulfillment center is gonna go union before Amazon in Bessemer goes union because Christian Smalls is an African-American who actually worked inside the fulfillment center shipping books while Stuart Applebaum was too busy reading them. You want solidarity? Solidarity cannot exist without diversity. I do not want my economic future in the hands of Stuart Applebaum, Harvard Law graduate from Connecticut. Bessemer, Alabama, the union drive failed 
because Stuart Applebaum from Harvard Law was trying to organize the workers. Solidarity doesn't exist without diversity. When corporate America, when the labor unions start to look like the real America, then the labor movement will look like America and the 99% will finally become a forced, become a force to be reckoned with. We can't do it without diversity. I don't want white men representing me in my union. They're, I don't want somebody with a sense of entitlement fighting for me because people with a sense of entitlement lose. I want Christian Smalls fighting for me or Jimmy Hoffa. Well, hanging over last night's ceremony was Ukraine. There was talk President Zelensky was going to speak, but then Zelensky decided against it after he realized his good T-shirt still hadn't come back from the cleaners. Okay, let's talk about Chris Rock. Full disclosure, it pains me to admit this, but I'm jealous of Chris Rock. He's better than I am at everything, and I resent that, and I'm being honest with you. Uh, especially since in comedy, as a stand-up, I had every opportunity handed to me. Uh, every door that wasn't open to Chris Rock was pretty much open to me, yet somehow I'm the one with the rage issues. So I resent his talent, his success, because it reminds me of how I blew every opportunity Chris Rock never had. Chris Rock, I watched this. Chris Rock kicked open the comedy door and along with a few other African-American comics created a new market for comedy, a bigger and more profitable one. He had nothing handed to him. All he had was people saying no to him. And that's why diversity is good. If we had more people like Chris Rock running our unions. Now I'm getting a little angry. Hang on. If we had more people like Chris Rock running our unions instead of pampered white, white men from Harvard, we would not be taking no for an answer. Chris Rock refused to take no for an answer. I watched this happen in the late 80s and early 90s. Cedric the Entertainer, Bernie Mac, Steve Harvey. I watched them with a friend of mine, Jeff Wills, who was running uh, Bill Graham Presents. And Jeff Wills is instrumental in the rise of comedians who aren't necessarily uh, household names. Uh, Jeff Wills is instrumental in comedians who aren't household names being able to sell out theaters and arenas. And I was very good friends with Jeff Wills because he lived in San Francisco and I was a comedian in San Francisco. And I watched Jeff Wills. I watched him along with these African-American comedians create a new market, a far more uh, profitable market. Before Louis C.K. was selling out theaters, before Dane Cook was selling out 
uh, Madison Square Garden. It was the African-American comics who were selling out the big arenas. It was the black comics who taught the white comics how to sell out the big theaters and eventually Madison Square Garden. That's a fact. I watched it happen. I was very close friends with Jeff Wills. I saw the white comics like me getting pampered in the comedy clubs. And with that pampering came the inability to think big. It was the black comics who taught the white comics how to move into theaters, how to move into rock clubs, to say, F these greedy club owners, I'm doing it by myself. I'm not talking about the art of comedy. That's a whole other thing. I'm talking about business. No black comedy scene, no white comedians selling out theaters and then Madison Square Garden. The black comics did it first. Yes, there was always Carlin or Robin Williams selling out theaters, but I'm talking about comedians who weren't household names, who just had devoted followings. Uh, they had strong followings and they were, they taught, it started with the African-Americans selling out theaters and arenas and not being household names. We now have white comics doing it, but white comics would never have been able to do that until the black comics showed them how. And that's a fact. I watched it happen. I was very good friends with Jeff Wills from Live Nation. I saw it happen. I went to the shows. I was a pampered white comedian in San Francisco, and I went to the shows in Oakland and saw what was going on with, with the black comedy scene. So as you all know by now, Chris Rock uh, is, is brilliant in every facet, not just artistically, but he he helped start uh, a he jump started a a new market for comedy that other comics, especially white ones, are benefiting from. And he made an unfortunate joke last night about Jada Pinkett Smith's hair, or lack thereof. And uh, I talked about this earlier. Her head appears appears shaved, and so he referenced her starring in G.I. Jane 2. Again, not a smart joke, especially at the Oscars. He he knows better. He didn't know she had alopecia and uh, he made a, a mistake. Perhaps before deciding to mock an African-American woman suffering from alopecia, Chris Rock should have watched a documentary from 2009 called Good Hair, directed by where is that? Chris Rock. Chris Rock directed Good Hair. In that documentary, Chris made a, uh, explored the relationship between African-American women and their hair, how European beauty standards mess literally with their heads. So Chris Rock, of all people, should know it's not the best idea to make a joke about an African-American woman's hair or lack thereof. As I said, 
Chris Rock did not know Jada Pinkett Smith suffered from alopecia. He's way too smart. He made a mistake. He obviously did not know Will Smith's wife suffered from an autoimmune disease where women lose their hair. And it's tough to lose your hair. It shouldn't be, but we're a superficial society. I opted for the nightmare of hair transplants. Uh, I'm going to guess for women, it's almost as tough to lose your hair as it is for men. I'm joking. Of course, it's much harder for women when they lose uh, their hair. The beauty standards are staggeringly oppressive. Then with Jada Pinkett Smith, you throw in the pressure of being an actress. Uh, not a good idea to make fun of a, a woman's hair if she's suffering from alopecia or if she's not suffering from alopecia. But Chris Rock didn't know this. He's a man. Men don't read interviews with famous women about their autoimmune conditions. He had no idea she was suffering from alopecia. But he did direct good hair, so he should have known a woman's hair is off limits, especially an African-American woman's hair, especially at the Oscars where the fashion police and the photographers are shooting unarmed black women in the back and the front, while men, all they have to do is wear a tuxedo. Women are forced to walk the red carpet splayed open before the entire world. The only thing missing from the red carpet for women are stirrups and a cold speculum. So Chris Rock made a mistake, not a felony. Will Smith, on the other hand, or open hand, is guilty of a felony. And it begs the question, if this is what you do when the whole world is watching, what do you get away with in private? If this is what you get away with when the whole world is watching, what do the people around you allow you to get away with in private? Will Smith's son, Jaden Smith, took to Twitter last night. He said, and that's how we do it. And that's how we do it. I hope he was talking about winning an Oscar uh, and not the other thing. I like to think, and that's how we do it, was referencing his dad winning an Oscar. What we witnessed last night was the Hollywood carve out for the rich and famous. That's how Hollywood works. Everyone knew Phil Spector threatened women with guns. Going back to the 60s, everyone knew Harvey Weinstein was a rapist before he was finally arrested, uh, presenters at the Golden Globes would joke about Harvey Weinstein being rapey. Men, actors, male actors knew not to be alone with Kevin Spacey. Roman Polanski moved to France to escape charges of raping an underage girl, but he still got nominated for Oscars. He's still making films. Everybody knew about Bill Cosby. Everyone knows Donald Trump sexually assaulted all 26 of the women who've made the accusations, especially since Donald Trump only openly admits to grabbing women by the pussy. Everyone knew Bill Clinton sexually harassed his female employees. But when you're rich, when you're famous, when you're powerful, the rules 
don't apply to you, especially at work. What I found especially galling last night was what happened during the commercial break after Will Smith assaulted Chris Rock. It was Will Smith, not Chris Rock, it was Will Smith who was comforted by Bradley Cooper and hugged by Denzel. And everyone in the audience seemed to feel sorry for Will Smith. Where was the Academy's apology that night to Chris Rock? He got smacked. Don't you think the audience was entitled to find out how he was? Don't the producers owe him something? That joke was pre-approved. The producers owe him an apology. The Academy owes him an apology. There was no way he was going to make that joke without clearing it through the producers first. Where was the protection for, for uh, Chris Rock? He was an employee that night. Did anyone tell Will Smith to leave? He no longer belonged at the Academy Awards. I know security was too intimidated to escort him out of the theater, but the producers who approved that G.I. Jane joke, but the producers allowed Will Smith to just sit there after he assaulted one of their employees. Chris Rock was an employee that night. He was a presenter and he was assaulted and nobody protected him. And there is your workplace imbalance in a nutshell for the whole world to bear witness to. It's okay for Chris Rock to get punched on the job if the person doing the punching is more rich and more powerful than he is. It's why agents sent young actresses up to Harvey Weinstein's hotel room, even though those agents knew he would try to rape them. It's why they didn't warn them. And after he tried to rape them or after he raped them, it's why those agents made sure these young women didn't press charges. That was all there right in front of the world last night for everyone to see. And how did you react initially? Chris Rock gets punched. And I suspect, here in America at least, for many, the first reaction might have been, well, what, what, what did he say? Honestly, at first even I might have thought that. What did Chris Rock say that made Will Smith hit him? What was he wearing? I mean, you don't make a joke about a man's wife, right? You know that conversation was taking place because it was taking place in my living room. You don't make a joke about a man's wife. Sure, Will Smith might have overreacted, but Chris Rock shouldn't have said that. You know what? They were both wrong. Let them settle it. Let them settle it. We should stay out of it. No. Will Smith resorted to violence. Will Smith was wrong.
Will Smith was wrong. Chris Rock did not deserve that, and he should have been protected by the Academy. And Will Smith should have been peacefully escorted out of the theater. But they have decided, I don't know who they are, but uh, I don't know what they're going to decide. But I've been in similar work situations. The stakes weren't that high, so the abuse was more intense. I have been in work situations where someone literally threatened to kill me and another comedy writer, and the people in charge of the show said to us, what did you say to him? And I said, what does it matter what I said to this person? He threatened to kill us. Well, we want to know if you provoked him. And this is somebody who was throwing things and violent, and they wanted to know what me and this other comedy writer said to provoke this person because it's easier in a workplace when everybody is at fault. Because when you fire someone for threatening to kill two comedy writers, that's a real pain in the ass. That's lawsuits, accusations, and who doesn't want to see two comedy writers killed? I mean, you know. But they knew he threatened to kill us. He had been threatening other people. They knew he was violent and dangerous, but they still wanted to know what we said to provoke him. And then uh, when Will Smith delivered his acceptance speech, he was crying. And that was the speech of an abuser. He was the victim. And even I felt sorry for him. He talked about all the people he has to defend. He was defending his family and the, the, the Williams sisters. And, uh, you know, it, you know, I can take it. But when you go after my loved ones, you know, I'm, I'm going to come after you. That was pretty much his not so veiled explanation for smacking Chris Rock. He apologized to everyone. He apologized to the Academy. He apologized to everyone except the one person who deserves his apology, and that would be Chris Rock. If you've ever been in an abusive relationship and you saw Will Smith's acceptance speech last night, you recognized exactly who that person was. Somehow, he was the victim. He punches Chris Rock, resorts to violence, but he's the victim. And the men around him had comforted him, try to make him not feel so bad. But little I saw of the audience, I could tell that a lot of people didn't know what to make of the whole thing. But it did look like mostly everybody in the audience was rooting for Will Smith during his speech. I saw some people crying along with him. He got his hugs. He explained the pressure he's under. And we were all expected to understand his struggle and understand why he committed an act of violence. 
anybody who's had an abusive father or been in an abusive relationship recognized that speech. The people in the audience, some of them had no idea what to make of it because this is America, this is Hollywood. Violence is not only justifiable, it's profitable. Hollywood sells violence. So when he accepted his Oscar, Will Smith was smart enough to sell violence. I was just a man standing up for the woman. Tears running down his face. It's as old as the movies. In movies, there's no worthier hero than the man who defends his woman and resorts to violence in doing so. From Liam Neeson in Taken to D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, which was based on the Klansmen, the story of freed slaves trying to rape white women who are then rescued by the Ku Klux Klan, who are the heroes in Birth of a Nation. The end of Birth of a Nation, when the freed slaves get what's coming to them for stealing our white women, the audience cheers the heroes, the KKK. The KKK is glorified. Their violence is glorified in Birth of a Nation, which is considered the birth of movies in many ways. Uh, the KKK fights for the honor of white women. And there is no bigger hero in our movies than the man who defends his woman's honor through violence. What could be more debasing to women than that kind of hero? Since the beginning of Hollywood, violence is always justified because violence is always profitable. And I suspect most people in America have been conditioned to believe, or some people have been conditioned to believe that Chris Rock was the bad guy in all this and Will Smith was the aggrieved party. Because there is justifiable assault in our legal system. You can get off if uh, somebody said something uh, that makes them worthy of a punch. But I can assure you, Will Smith physically assaulted Chris Rock and Chris Rock did nothing wrong. Uh, I want to get back to the tears. I want to be careful here on the tears and Will Smith's speech. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I want to bring up O.J. Simpson. Uh, Will Smith is not O.J. Simpson. And I hate to bring up O.J. Simpson because O.J. Simpson is an African-American. Will Smith is an African-American. And one of the blood libels against African-American males is they're violent. We have a racist culture that has trained Americans, white Americans, to be terrified of African-American men, even though white women and white men 
are never attacked by black men. Never. It's, it's, it's statistically impossible for a, a white woman or a white man to be attacked by a black man. It rarely happens. And the only time it happens is when it's the lead story on the news. You know, that's that's why it's news, because it's so rare when a black man assaults a white woman or a white man. Those are statistics that come to us from the Justice Department going back decades. Statistically speaking, white women and white men are attacked by people they know. This is a deeply segregated society. So if you're white, you're going to get attacked by a white man, not a black man. And if you're black, you're going to be attacked by a black man because this is a segregated society. Every study shows this. Uh, and we saw that last night, for example, Will Smith punched Chris Rock, not Bradley Cooper. Will Smith punched another black man, but we've been trained to be afraid of black men. So I, I don't want to bring up, I really don't want to bring up O.J. Simpson, but I'm going to. So many of you are too young to remember what happened early on in the murder of Nicole Simpson. Uh, originally, O.J. was the victim. He, his wife was dead. A lot of us, uh, I don't know, I can say we loved O.J., but he was, you know, harmless. He was a hero. I was there. I saw him break the rushing record at Shea Stadium when he was playing for the Buffalo Bills. He was O.J. Simpson. And... I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and everybody thought it was very sad. Uh, when it became apparent that he might have killed her, we were still sad for OJ. We were sad. It was a sad story. We felt bad for him. During the white Bronco chase, by then we kind of knew OJ killed his wife. He had a gun to his head. He was on the phone threatening to kill himself. Detectives were talking to him, trying to talk him out of it. We all felt sorry for OJ because it was sad. We had this image of OJ Simpson and it was shattered and we felt sorry for him. We felt bad that his wife was dead. We kind of knew he killed her and now he was either going to jail or he was going to kill himself. He was very good at playing the victim because that's what abusers do. That's what abusers do. Serial abusers are always the victim. They justify their violence because they are the aggrieved party. They cry. They are very convincing at playing the victim because they truly think they are the victim in all of this. And our hearts went out to OJ until we heard the 911 calls Nicole, his wife, made to the police. And OJ 
kept beating her and getting away with it. The police would come out and they do nothing because OJ was rich, he was famous, and he was powerful. Uh, there was something familiar, not because OJ is an African-American and Will Smith is an African-American. There's something very familiar to seeing an abuser crying and justifying the violence. There is never any justification for violence, but they're wide open for all to see. Will Smith punched Chris Rock and Will Smith was the one being consoled by Bradley Cooper. During his acceptance speech, he was the victim. He was the one who was under so much pressure protecting the Williams sisters and his family. And there's just so much pressure on him to be loving and forgiving. And that's why he punched Chris Rock, because he's trying to be loving and forgiving. And at the time, I he's such a, you know, Will Smith deserves that Academy Award. Uh, I fell for it. Most of us fell for it, especially since I didn't get beaten by my dad. I didn't really see who that was. I fell for it. But anyone who had a father who beat them uh, or a lover who beat them, when Will Smith began to sob, you, you knew who he was. You, you knew who this guy was. You remember him. That's my abusive ex-husband, my abusive dad, who would hit me and then say, why do you make me hit you? It's all out there. It was just splayed out. Typical abusive men. And a culture that flatters itself into thinking they're forgiving. But we're not forgiving. We only forgive uh, abusive men who we can profit off of. We like violent men if we can profit off them. And men know that the American people like violence. It's why our foolish president talks tough, why he is trying to gin up his polls by talking uh, tough about NATO and Ukraine. Uh, here he is over the weekend. But as I made clear, American forces are in Europe, not in Europe, to engage in conflict with Russian forces. American forces are here to defend NATO allies. Yesterday I met with the troops that are serving alongside our Polish allies to bolster NATO's frontline defenses. The reason we want to make clear is the movement on Ukraine. Don't even think about moving on one single inch of NATO territory. We have sacred obligation. We have a sacred obligation under Article 5 to defend each and every inch of NATO territory. You have a sacred obligation to make peace, to get, find the, the shortest distance between war and peace. But when you can barely keep your teeth in, when you're embarrassed by how badly Afghanistan went, 
when you're insecure about your mental faculties and your country's ability to make war, you talk tough. And that's what, uh, that's what Joe Biden is busy doing around uh, the world, talking tough, getting weapons instead of making peace. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. I will take your calls and I will read the chat room in both YouTube and our Zoom room after this. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a human man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears all right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now on the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. get back to the the interview Let, let's talk so about ahead, go ahead david go ahead ask me why i sent in a trump impersonator to do your show and not the real donald j trump ask me what better things i have to do than coming on your show ask me ask what me. better what better ask things me. here i'll give you the answer okay the better thing that i have to do is not doing your show. That's what it says here on my day planner. Your show is so bad, David. I actually marked it in my calendar. I'll read it to you. March 17th, 5 p.m. Don't forget not to do David Feldman's horrible, horrible <laughs> show. 6 p.m., Rosie O'Donnell's a pig. I don't, know how that, I don't know how that got in my calendar, David. My assistant must have put that in there. What, what? You don't know what? I don't know how Rosie O'Donnell's a pig got into my calendar. My oh. assistant must have put that in there. She's a mother hen, David. Always <laughs> afraid I'm going to forget that Rosie O'Donnell's a pig. I know not to forget, but it's important to remember to know not to forget because, David, yeah. she's a pig. She's a pig. A nasty, vicious pig. Okay, I, first off, uh, we do not fat shame on this show. Who said okay? anything about Rosie being fat? I get the whole body positive thing, David. 
and I am okay. positive Rosie's body is that of a pig. But I, but I would never call Rosie fat. Never oh, okay. call Rosie fat. Good, because we're all about body acceptance on this show. People come and I agree. I agree. People come in all all sizes, but I only come in the tens. Get it, David? I only come not in a size 10, but in the tens. Like Melania. She's perfect, David. Come in the tens. You can have that, David. Take it, David. It's free. Gratis. That means take it, David, in Latin. The Latins love me, David. <laughs> but I would Christ. never, I would never fat shame Rosie. Thank you, Donald Trump. That's, we don't want that here. You I would never morbidly f- obese. Hey, get off the elevator. I don't want to crash into that floor. Shame her. But I would do that because Rosie's <laughs> big. Okay, she's actually, uh, Mr. Trump, she's actually lost a lot of weight and she looks great. She looked great. You're right. You're right. No, you're right. I saw her. I saw her. You know what happened, David? Even her fat can't stand to be around her. That's how obnoxious Rosie is. Even her own fat hates her and had to leave her. Okay. Wrote her a dear Rosie letter. (laughs) Out the door. Bye-bye, Rosie. Can't handle it anymore. Boy, that Donald Trump is something else, isn't he? People say that was uh, maybe Smigel, but I'm utterly convinced that had to be Donald Trump. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Coming up on today's episode, we have Jason Miles and Pascal Robert, from the This Is Revolution podcast. And we're going to talk about the black middle class post Barack Obama and the racist wealth gap. Pascal has a new piece in Newsweek about this. It's entitled The Obsession with the Black White Wealth Gap and How It Protects the Elites. So I'm looking forward to doing that. We have about 20 minutes to kill our Six o'clock guest didn't uh, show up. So let's go to Mexico where Rodrigo is standing by. Usually you're you're come on at the end of the show. Hey, Rodrigo. Hello, Rodrigo. Okay, no Rodrigo. Uh, Oh, there you go. By the way, if you're in the chat room and you want to uh, join us, raise your hand and I will call on you. Go ahead. What's on your mind? I'm sorry I missed the last show. I was uh, having sleep issues. You were having what? Sleep issues. Sleep issues? Yes. Well, if you listen to my show, I can help you fall asleep. I did fall asleep. Uh, I couldn't wake up in time to talk when you called on me last time i see i see that's right what is on your mind yeah you're you're calling from mexico today right yes what's on your mind well for last week i wanted to talk about um i often talk about misinformation and distractions 
And this time I wanted to talk about porn. Uh, porn? All the li- yes. Porn? Porn, yes. Uh, all the liberals seem to agree that we need to outlaw porn, which would simply make <sighs> porn more interesting for viewers. Wait, I'm sorry, Many we need to what? I'm sorry, what did you say? We need to what? With porn? Uh, all the liberals seem to agree. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Okay, uh, that we need to outlaw porn, which would simply make porn more interesting for viewers. Many leftists talk about porn through the lens of how do we get adult performers in unions. Some leftists want to skip any talk about porn and jump directly into full decriminalization for sex work, and there's more opinions we don't have time to get into. What you rarely hear about is what I want to focus on for now, that in large portions of Western society, young people think hair pulling and weirder things are how regular people have sex. These young people also believe literally that consent is when you get a girl drunk until she stops saying no. The fight to outlaw porn is not a distraction because it's not a humanizing work or because realistic porn doesn't even get made because boring porn doesn't sell. It's a distraction because we have somehow accepted the cultural narrative that you can fight human nature and teaching proper sex education won't change anything. What does proper sex education look like? So it's not simply teaching prophylactics and STD prevention along with the idea of abstinence. It's also explaining what consent is and why it matters. But once you start explaining why consent matters, it's pretty easy to be into explaining how the patriarchy works and how we're supposed to just play along and not ask why we're participating in our own oppression. And once you do that, everyone becomes a socialist. So it's not hard to see why conservatives and liberals do their best to try to distract us into fighting internet porn and the baseless belief that if we get rid of online porn and change nothing else about the system, rape or sexual assault statistics will reflect a gradual drop. Even people who should know better talk about porn in terms of this is a horrible scourge on society and children are growing up believing that regular people make love like performance in videos and porn have buy on sex. If even the people who should know better repeat the party line, it's no wonder that most of society fails to look at this distraction for what it is. Yet another way in which supposedly modern society prevents us from looking at root causes and what we can actually do to get real change. Okay. So liberal, is, is it my imagination or do liberals in America have a bigger problem with porn these days? If you, if you carve out the uh, religious right, ha, well, ha, have has the left and the religious right found common cause when it comes to porn? Uh, it depends on what you consider the left, but yes. Uh, 
Right. There's a lot of people who think uh, we have to outlaw porn, but they don't see how it's just a distraction from the larger point of let's attack the demand, just like how the fight on drugs uh, has failed for decades to do anything about the supply side, right? Sorry, the demand side, uh, fighting porn doesn't do anything about right. the demand for porn. All right. Well, you have you ever seen uh, my channel on Pornhub? You've seen my my I have like one of the most downloaded videos on Pornhub. I have not. It's really, uh, you know, it's too. Well, I'll try to be uh, discreet here. I'm completely naked. I order a pizza and the pizza delivery. Oh, I heard about that. I'm sorry. And I've heard about that one. And yes. Yes. The pizza delivery girl ends up paying. So the, uh, the delivery girl shows up with the pizza. I say, how much? And I'm completely naked. And she says, it's $25. And I tell her, well, I don't have $25. And then I get her down to $12. I negotiate her down to $12. That's the money shot. And it's very erotic. Karen Emerson. Well, I shouldn't have given you her last name. I'm sorry. Hello, Karen. <laughs> My, I think my name is on the stuff. Hang on, let me, are you there? You have to unmute. Can you hear me? Okay. I sure can. There you go. Okay. Hey, what's happening in San Antonio? All right, and that's what I wanted to talk about. Let me fix this, I'm having a sound problem. Is it me? Mm -mm. Is, it, is it me? No, okay. it was me. Okay. All yeah. right. I have my phone queued up so I can walk my dog and still listen. Somebody but, um, said in, in YouTube, somebody said I have hot negotiate, yeah. hot negotiating <laughs> skills. That's right. All right. Yeah. Well, Speaking of negotiations, yeah. let's talk about um, the symphony. We want to talk about the San Antonio Symphony. They had a rally on Saturday and the numbers of the orchestra members are diminishing because they're having to move away and take jobs elsewhere. The San Antonio Symphony was established 80 years ago. Uh, the community, we were so excited to open the Tobin Center, this beautiful center for the performing arts with the acoustic engineering and everything. It was a home for the symphony. Right. And then they also have other other things that go on in there. But the symphony is at the core of it. And the symphony is at the core of the community. And there were a number of speakers there who who talked about how the San Antonio Symphony influenced their lives. And one of them is a French horn player who plays in the symphony now. Right. And uh, she read an excerpt from the journal that she wrote her diary when she was 15 years ago years old she was 15 years old and she went to see 
uh, Mahler, a Mahler piece that was played by the symphony that they were performing for the schools. And she said, I believe God has spoken to me today. And it went on to talk about how, you know, it just completely changed her life and, right. and changed her trajectory. There was a teacher, a, a music teacher, band director, whose high school just won first place in a in a competition that took place in Alice Tully Hall in New York and his chamber orchestra won first place and there were two or three of his musicians who won awards for best soloists right. and and he was talking about how this only happens because these young musicians take lessons from the symphony musicians who work as music teachers, you know, side gigs, and they're part of the community. There right. was another one who talked about raising her kids here. The Mary Ellen so Gorey she was what is, on your show. What, what is the yeah? We uh, uh, Professor Mike Steinell came on to talk about this months ago. Yes, it's been going on for six months, who, and they're who is, at a who runs, impasse. Who runs the center? What does he get um, paid, and how is oh, he treating the workers? Oh. Yeah, his his salary now is up in the six hundred thousand dollar range. Right, and uh, he's asking the symphony members to play for eleven thousand dollars a year. Wow, with no. Uh, benefits, no health care benefits. And he wants to cut the orchestra down to something like 44 players. You know, and if the orchestra is going to play a piece like John Williams' Star Wars, which is one that they did, or one of these Mahler pieces, they need over 100 players. I think Star Wars takes 125 but, right, players. But no problems. You know, they'll spend money on police, but the way you prevent crime is by teaching music. Yes, there are There are outlets that yes. children need. If you teach them an instrument, they have an outlet for their aggression because art is aggression. That's where you channel your hostility properly. If you don't yes. have music lessons, then your aggression turns to crime. And we have no problem funding the police, but not the the programs that prevent the necessity for police. Correct, indeed. And uh, these these managers of the Tobin Center are so full of themselves. Um, everybody who's on the board has to sign a non-disclosure document that they're not allowed to discuss what's discussed. So everything that happens there is a, under the cloak of secrecy. So we don't know what what they're talking about, but um, it's, hey, I it's just a big mess. I'm it's sorry. been going on for six months now. Right. But I, I have to somebody in the chat, the YouTube chat room. I apologize. I'm, I'm reading okay. the YouTube chat room. Uh, cello mom, speaking of cellos, uh, does not like the show, which is okay. 
Uh, even better, this is what Cello Mom <laughs> wrote. I will watch the show again when I pick up a bunch of boomer voodoo dolls so I can prick them and chop <laughs> off body parts. Ooh. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I mean, if you're going to hate me, uh, you know, I appreciate that. Uh, let, let's wrap it up. Let's give uh, later on if you can give us some information on how to let the uh, people in charge of the symphony know that they're a-holes. That, yes, yes, good. gladly. Um, oh, one more thing I wanted yes. to say is that is that they're making more money off of having small acts and popular acts play in the symphony hall. Now, they had Kenny G in there last week, and they're having Jordan Peterson come to speak. <sighs> yes, so that's uh, the that's that's who's in charge is people who. Love What's your like living in Texas? It, it must. We should talk about. We have a lot of listeners in Texas. It must be difficult living in country, being, you know, in the shit behind enemy lines. Uh, I respect. It's very easy to be a glib New Yorker surrounded by other pompous, self-righteous lefties here in Manhattan because it's just an echo chamber. But to be in Texas. You're the ones doing the real heavy lifting. We are. And it's one of the most, um, being in San Antonio, it's one of the most politically active places I have ever lived. And people who are really social justice warriors live here. Um, I, I, it's, it's just, it's alive and well, this city is. And yet we've got, you know, we do have our faction of yahoos. I also wanted to tip you to someone who spoke there who's running for Congress in Texas named Greg Kassar, C-A-S-A-R. Right. And, oh, he, have you he, talked he, with he's, him? Uh, is, is, he's not Fort Worth, is he? Ooh. He, he's a Democratic, is he yeah. DSA? Yeah, and I asked him if he would come and talk to Please. you on your show, and he said yes. He said yes to that. Well, let's bring him on next week. Right? Okay. He did really well oh. in the primaries, right? Yeah. Great. He's lovely. And uh, Jessica Cisneros was there and spoke wow. also. Wow. We have a lot of support, but the people who are, you know, the... the uh, what do you call it? The inmates running the asylum are, right. are really, you know, have their their heels dug in there. Right. I got to jump off, Karen. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. And uh, we'll work on the Church of Feldman this Friday night. You were very funny <laughs> at office hours. Thank you. Hey, before we bring on our next guests, I want to tell my listeners that we are doing a live recording of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour this Wednesday at 12.30 Eastern. Some of you might not know this, but I co-host the Ralph Nader Radio Hour with Steve Scrovan and a man named Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader, uh, greatest American ever, with the exception of maybe Ben Franklin. And if you haven't listened to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Tell your local radio station you want the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and it's downloadable as a podcast. Just go to wherever they're downloading podcasts, wherever you need to download a podcast. And there's a YouTube channel. Well, this Wednesday at 1230 Eastern, March 30th, 
we are doing a live recording of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. All you need is Zoom. We are doing an interview with Jesse Singer, author of There Are No Accidents, The Deadly Rise of Injury and Disaster, Who Profits and Who Pays the Price. This is something you don't want to miss. It's a rare opportunity to see how the Ralph Nader Radio Hour is produced. A little glimpse behind the scenes. And I cannot stress it enough. Please come. All you need is Zoom. Uh, we're limited to 500 people in the webinar. So hurry up and register. Go to uh, ralphnaderradiohour.com right now to register. We look forward to seeing you there. Go to Ralph Nader Radio Hour right now to sign up to sit in on the Ralph Nader radio show. When we come back, we will be joined by our friends, Jason Miles and Pascal Robert from the This Is Revolution podcast. You are listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. We will be right back. I'm traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Rolite and a little bag of weed. Got to saw Bello novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. Two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics. A high-speed parallax motor because I'm into robotics. And my little red speedo, I like to do aquatics. I'm traveling late. Got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill. A copy of Lolita and my little blue pills. A Navajo blanket chill, I'm traveling light. Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender. A 50 tequila in case I go on a bender. My attorney's number in case I want to change my gender. I'm traveling light. 
I have some visitors. For breeze if my room is stinky, a Polaroid in case I get kinky. My Jesus bobblehead and my Star Wars bedspread, I'm traveling light. I got my rabbi costume and my portable dark room, my hair plug lotion and my expensive wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self-esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of dishes, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel, who will not be with us tonight. He's busy. He's working on a book. He's working on an album. He's always busy. Too busy for us tonight. But with us right now are our friends, Jason Miles and Pascal Robert. They co-host the This Is Revolution podcast. Go to This Is Revolution podcast. Dot com. Welcome, Pascal, and welcome, Jason. I don't see them coming up here. I don't, I'm right here. Okay, did you turn? Is, I don't see you. I don't know why. I have the, my video is on. Well, this is the way my, my life is going. And is Jason here? Jason wasn't able to make it. Okay. Uh, let's see if I can turn your... Let me turn your video off and then turn it back on again. Can you turn your video on? We may have to have you just be a disembodied voice. It says that you have stopped it for some reason. Okay. What? No. Uh, you can make him a co-host, David. That okay. might help. Let's try that. Thank you, Danny. And sometimes people uh, block their camera and then forget to unblock it. So right. Any luck there? Okay. Why don't we do this? Why don't we not see you today? It's up to you. It's not a problem. Okay. Uh, let me ask you about the black middle class after Obama left office, the racist wealth gap. Do you mind if I ask you about the Oscars? Uh, no, no, not, not at all. If you want to, what really did you see? What did you see last night? There was more to it than Will Smith punching Chris Rock, but I saw it as a bit of a microcosm for everything that's wrong in Hollywood and America. I uh, I saw the video. I was not watching live, but I watched it. Uh, repeatedly a couple of times my first reaction i'll be very honest with you still somewhat of my of my reaction is that it's hard for me to believe that this was not staged right. i've looked at it over and over again and i'm going to be very honest with you i looked at the exact point of the slap mm -hmm. it looked like a completely traditional hollywood slap i agree you with you chris rock leaning in both hands back 
His face is already clenched before the slap even comes. And when you watch it, you don't. I, I've, I've played, David, I've played this baby 75 times. I don't see his hand touching Chris, Rock, Chris Rock's face. But you hear a sound. Let me play it one more time, if you don't mind, just because it's. Uh, I agree with you. I. I <laughs> oh, wow! Oh, wow! Oh, wow! Oh, wow! It sounds like a sound effect. I. I know, but I, here's here's the thing though. Right after he said he just slapped the shit out of me, then he who was. Reacts to, let me ask you a question, David. Who, even a comedian, entertainer, if someone does something so out of the norm to come on a stage and slap you? Is your immediate reaction is to get back into comedic character? You're like, oh, wow, Will Smith just slapped the, the S word out of me. Yeah, it's incredible. And just act like you're doing a bit. But he was flustered. He, I mean, if you hear what he says afterwards, he... He doesn't get flustered until Will Smith goes to sit down and start cursing, you know, keep my 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 you know my wife's name out your effing mouth. Keep right. my wife's name out your effing mouth. And then Rock is like, okay, okay, fine, we'll do that. The whole thing looks so abs Jason disagrees with me on this. It looks so absolutely staged. First of all, remember this. Rock makes the joke about the um uh Will Smith's wife's Jada Pickett Smith's hair, right? Basically says that, you know, I hear that she's auditioning for uh, G.I. Jane 2. Right. First of all, number one, on its face, I didn't even understand the joke until I hit the Googles. Right. I was like, I don't even, what, what, how was this? What is this? A, I don't get it. And then I went to the Googles and I was like, G.I. Jane. And I was like, okay, the star of the first G.I. Jane had really short hair and Jada Pickett Smith has really short hair. So he's making a joke about her being the next G.I. Jane. Right. And I was like, it's not even that big of a, it's not a, a good enough joke to get upset about. Right. Now, David, if I'm not mistaken, I think you were like a professional comedian at one time, right? I mean, like, I, you, I thought I was. <laughs> the audience I mean, would. The joke didn't even hit as a joke, right? What's I, what's the ultimate irony is that after Rock delivers the joke, the camera pans to Will Smith. Will Smith is laughing his patootie off, right, at this corny joke. So what exactly happens between the camera panning away from Smith and going back to Rock that Smith? That he's laughing. Meanwhile, you look, you see Jada Pickett Smith's his wife's look, and she looks kind of flustered. She doesn't look like she's outraged. She looks kind of flustered. So the camera pans off and it goes back to rock. And then a few seconds later, you see Will Smith walking up. So what happens between the time that Will Smith was laughing at this rather corny joke and he starts to walk up to approach Chris Rock? Obviously, the logic tells you that. His wife, who immediately when the joke is delivered, looks kind of like, oh, here we go with this nonsense. Well, you know, thanks, gee, gee, thanks, no thanks. But she didn't look angry enough, like at all. She looks just kind of annoyed. But obviously, my this is my instincts. 
when she saw uh, Will Smith laughing, listen, you guys have been married. I'm not married, but I, I had parents. Everyone who's married will tell you that their wife or their spouse can give them a look in one way and they immediately know, like, oh, my God, I'm in trouble. Now I screwed up. Right, right, right. You know, so I have a feeling that at a certain point when she sees him laughing and she, he looks at her, she cuts him a look. Yeah. Kind of like, you're going to let him get away with that look? And Jeez. I have a feeling he's kind of like, I got to do something here. Or I want to be the doghouse and reacts. Now, that assumes we believe that this wasn't staged. I still believe that this whole thing could have been staged. And this is the this is the thing, right? Staged or not, there's one thing that I think is absolutely clear here. This is not about Chris Rock. This is not about a joke. This is not even about the slap. This is about the fact that Will Smith, who is probably worth a few hundred million dollars, who is a top tier male star in Hollywood. Perhaps the biggest. I think he may be the biggest in Hollywood history. Okay, understand that. Listen. If you've been in the entertainment world, you have probably hobnobbed with more of these people whose name, more than their names, I don't even know. No. Okay? No. Understand something. Will Smith is not just an entertainment entertainer. He is a business commodity that's feeding a few dozen, if not maybe a hundred or so people. Okay. The level, what I'm saying is that at the level of entertainer that he is, this guy is not just a regular guy. He's not the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He's an industry. He is a commodity. In other words, he has a market value to the Hollywood machine that is more than just a personality. All right? He's what you would call a tastemaker, a thought leader, in the Hollywood media establishment. Okay? What that tells me is that there are people in that entertainment world who have a financial interest in making sure his image is not only pristine, but everyone's got to love Will Smith. So why would he... Resort to professional wrestling. I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. Which included, okay, which included the F word, which. I want to go there. Okay. Will Smith, in the last two or so years, had a major chink in the armor. What was the major chink in the armor? You might not know this. I don't know if you're in the cultural milieu. Will Smith's wife right. has an internet show called The Red Table Talk. Right. The the, the open marriage? It's, it's beyond the open marriage. It's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. The Red Table Talk is basically Jada Pinkett Smith's opportunity to vent her various midlife crises, issues, problems, problems with aesthetics, her life, you know, she had a bad day at the DMV, her daughter's weird, her daughter's trying polyamory, 
all kinds of weird Hollywood people crap they talk about on this show and try to normalize it as like a regular family problem, whatever, whatever, whatever. Right. At one point, she admits that she had an entanglement with a 26-year-old, I think his name was Rapper, his name, I think his name was August something. I forget the guy's name, right? Right. Now, she invites her husband, Will Smith, on her red table talk. And he's asking her, about what happened with this kid who apparently the kid was a troubled kid who they kind of like let into their sphere. I don't know if he lived in their house. I'm not absolutely sure. But the kid was in the, the young man was in this, in their sphere of influence. Kind of like the Falwells. Right. Okay. Understand. Will Smith is about my, I think he's literally my age. Okay. So this kid could be Will Smith's son. Right. All right. So the kid is in their sphere of influence. I'm not absolutely sure if he's in the house or not. We can check fact that check that later, right? Mm-hmm. So Smith is asking her what happened with with Augie, and she basically says, "Well, we had an entanglement." When you watch Smith's face as she's explaining that she basically had an affair with this twenty six year old kid, his face looks like someone told him that his daddy wasn't his daddy. Like it basically just like drops. And then she said something to me, to me that was beyond humiliating. And I think any man, any guy who's been married, any guy who's been in a relationship, any guy who's had any intimate relationship with a woman would realize what she was saying when she said this. He asks her, which I think was a mistake to ask, why did you do this? And she said, I wanted to feel good. It had been such a long time since I felt good. Don't you understand? I wanted to feel good. Mm. Listen, I may maybe my tele, my radar is off. David, wow. you know what's the first thing that's going on in my mind when I hear that? <laughs> that's, well, okay. I, I mean, I would be upset if. Uh... I think you can tell what what I think is going on in a man's mind when he's watching a wife. Tell her husband that she had an affair with a 26-year-old kid, and he asked why. She said, I wanted to feel good. I'm not I'm not trying to get accused of anything that will get me sued, but right. allegedly in my mind, I'm like, Will's not uh, laying the pipe. Uh, he's not exactly doing his uh, manly duties. Are you saying he's a Scientologist? No, I'm not saying he's a Scientologist. What okay. I'm saying is that the, the, the message she conveyed in saying I wanted to feel good was that it, that sounds like Will was not making you feel good in some way. So you needed 26-year-old August to help right. you make you feel good. So the point I'm trying to convey to you, David, is that she basically cuckolded him publicly on the internet. Right. So he wasn't punching Chris Rock. He was punching the 26-year-old who, right? He was punching a narrative that was de- that had developed about himself, particularly in black online spaces. That Will Smith was not the alpha male. There's this whole discourse these young kids have now 
I find it hilarious. I find it hilarious because I was in a fraternity in college, and the first letter of my fraternity is actually Alpha. We actually called ourselves <laughs> Alpha Men, which is kind of it's interesting, right? But there's this whole new trend that these kids have now, which you guys didn't talk like this when we were coming up, right? Right? They're like, oh. I'm an alpha male, or he's a right. beta male, or he's right. a signal male. And I was like, first of all, do you guys know this is all like eugenics discourse? I was like, where does this come from? Like, it is this whole thing that guys use these Greek alphabet letters to illustrate their personality hierarchies. It's a very kind of millennial thing. It, I frankly think it's driven by the rise of this incel culture and this also this kind of like manosphere. Frankly, from my analysis, David, there are a lot of troubled, insecure men, many of them young, some of them older, who are dealing with a crisis of masculinity, much of which has significant political ramifications because they also are attracted to the alt-right and Trumpism as well. And there are a plethora of socioeconomic factors. Didn't Bannon in 2016 root out the incel community and work with Cambridge Analytica, the 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 how to pick up women. Crowd. There, there, there is a there is a there is an, uh, a a co a, there's a combination of the pickup artist community, the men going their own way community. They call the MGTOW, the the uh, the uh, the the uh, men's rights activist type. I remember the men's rights activist types when I was in law school in the nineties. They've been around for a while. But they but weren't all, like this. This is different. No, they were like this. They were? No, they were not. The, the, they were they, not. Right. They were. But th- these are almost proudly celibate men who accept the, the, the hierarchy, hierarchy, which is why they're susceptible to the intellectual dark web and Jordan Peterson, because they believe in a hierarchy. And these incels believe that they're the Stacys and the Chads. And that not, only yes. 90%, 90% of men are not chads. They have to get facial work done to be desirable. That it's the chads who are getting all the women. They do accept the hierarchy, which makes them prone to Steve Bannon, the right wing, and Jordan Peterson. You know, you right? obviously are very conversant in this world. Well, I'm a uh, incel. I, I doubt that. Or a lobster. I can't figure. Uh, The larger point that I'm trying to convey to you is in in this world in which digital media has an influence over the consciousness of people who buy movie tickets, Will Smith's persona took a significant hit from that episode. And there were a variety of other revelations that came about about their relationship. There were always rumors that they had an open marriage. I don't know. The, I'm not interested in the details of that. Hey, everybody, well, I have an open marriage and I'm single. That's no big thing. There you go. Have you but heard the of the Cern- to- Mike Cernovic and gr- the Gorilla Mindset? There's a whole uh, nexus, as you say, between acting like a, a traditional man, a monster, and... Uh, being able to pick up women and owning the libs. I mean, that's the Mike Cernovic uh, model of politics and love. There's a whole, listen, listen, I have, let's talk, as we always do, let's talk candidly, David. 
My position is that there is a since the 2008 crash, particularly, there's an increase in economic precarity, fancy word for saying people are not getting good jobs, making good money. Money is scarce. Men are not able to replicate the traditional post New Deal, Ozzy and Harriet, my father knows best image of masculinity. Because frankly, a lot of guys are noticing that a lot of the women they like have good jobs, make a lot of money, more than them. Right. 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 And second of all, a lot of these girls, excuse me, I shouldn't say that, women are very smart, very educated, and they're just not impressed with you like strutting around because you just look like you came out of the gym. They want to have a conversation. They want to be treated kind of nicely. They actually want to be stimulated outside of their like genitalia. And the way to stimulate their genitalia is by stimulating their mind. Right, exactly. And there is a certain caliber of these men who, because of that economic precarity, maybe haven't gone to school, don't have that good six, six, seven-figure job, don't have that income caliber, and their capacity to exercise another word, <laughs> hypergamy, which a whole lot. This is, all of this discourse hypergamy. comes out of that. What is hypergamy? Hypergamy is the process by which women choose men who are high on the hierarchy of uh, of uh, desirable traits, particularly traditional normative tra- traits of being a provider, caretaker, uh, being masculine, being able to care for them. So a men, so women. The, the the theory is that women use hypergamy as a means to choose a mate. In other words, women look for men who make good money, who are good looking, who have good who sperm, like good sperm. Yeah, who look yeah, all of that, all of that stuff, right? So it's it's kind of an evaluation process. All of this language comes out of these movements, and because some of the, it's all Darwinism, eugenics, all of this crap. A lot of these young guys, because they are feeling that they cannot compete within the norms of uh, female hypergamy standards, they're becoming frustrated and resentful, and they're echoing their resentment in these online spaces, podcasts, YouTube conversations, et cetera, et cetera, all of these things. And it's becoming replicated in political discourse and being fed upon by personalities like Jordan Peterson and a whole bunch of people in the all right who are basically telling these young men that they are being robbed of their divine masculinity because the evil feminism has displaced them and the postmodern neo-Marxist, cultural Marxist destroyed the good old days of America. Right, right. There is the phenomenon, we, we do have to, we didn't talk about what we were uh, planning to talk about. This is uh, fantastic though. There is the phenomenon of hyper-educated women having to downplay their skills to please a man. It still goes on. Oh, I, I, there's no question about that. I don't deny that at all. And uh, this, I mean, Doug Emoff, Doug Emoff, thinks his wife is a city council lady from Washington D.C. Really? No, I'm just making a bad 
But the bottom line is there is a material basis to the insecurity of these men, but it's rooted in a crisis of capitalism, not a crisis of their penis. Right. Right. Although men are having a crisis. They might be having a crisis with their penises, too. Who knows? I I think men are having, uh, they say because of pornography, maybe because of chemicals, but men are having. At younger and younger ages, men are requiring uh, Viagra at a younger age for many. Or they're, or they're abstaining from sex. Right. They're initiating sexual contact much older than they normally would. I would think that's an American, an American problem. I, I can't imagine young people, not all, but some young people, because they've been so indoctrinated by the corporate hegemony that they have no idea what receiving or giving love means. I'm being. I'm not trying to sound woke. No, I think that no. They, they, I think that phenomenon exists. I think that there are young men and young women like that. Wait, there's a, you know, there's a lot of isolation, right, in the world, in the digital age, David. Right. Which is easier than a real relationship. It's Absolutely. easier to imagine. A relationship than actually be in one. Unless you're in a relationship with me, then it's just a cakewalk because I'm uncomplicated. Uh, hey, we we oh, uh, you, you, you sell you sell yourself short. Let, let's very quickly talk about the black middle class post Barack Obama because we kind of touched on it, and I know you wrote a piece for Newsweek. Uh, I wrote a piece about how the racial wealth gap basically protects the black elite. The discourse about the racial wealth gap, the, I, the, the, the rhetoric is basically that there's a, that black, black people have a significant amount of a wealth loss compared to whites. There's a massive white, you know, black white wealth gap in that the median income of the median white family is you know, profoundly higher than the median black family. This discourse comes around at the same time that you start people see people talking about socialism, the rise of Bernie Sanders. And I immediately was alarmed by this discourse because I realized exactly what it was doing. What it was doing was creating the illusion in the mind of particularly black people that all white people are rich and all black people are poor. Right. Yeah. And and the, the I believe. You can call me a conspiracy theorist. I don't care that the ultimate agenda of this discourse that was being promoted by neoliberal think tanks like the Brookings Institute, Ivy League institutions and Ivy League academics is to basically create a kind of internal racial navel gazing amongst black space, amongst black online consumers of media to believe that we have to address our collective racial wealth as if Warren Buffett is cutting checks to white kids in Appalachia. Like, wait, collective racial wealth exists anywhere to, to because we have so much less wealth than white folk, and that's the key for us to be able to be, quote-unquote, uh, be participating in the American dream, and only reparations can fix that for us. Right, right. We, we're going to have to continue this conversation, I hope, next week. Uh, this is really, I can't, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I'm sorry we couldn't see you. And uh, I'm sorry Jason couldn't make it. 
to continue this conversation, go to thisisrevolutionpodcast.com and listen to Pascal Robert and Jason Miles. They are co-hosts of This Is Revolution Podcast. I'll link to their Twitter handles in the description to this show. I am so glad you, you're coming on this show. Uh, this was this was a, a pleasant surprise. This 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 came from a whole other. I was not expecting this conversation today. I thought it was going to be about something else. Really interesting. Uh, thank you, Pascal. Anything no else? You, anything you'd like to plug? Tomorrow we're going to be talking to political scientist Cedric Johnson about his new book, "The Panthers Can't Save Us Now: A Critical Analysis of the Black Lives Matter Movement." Great. Thank you, Pascal Robert. Great job. All right, thank you. Let us now go to Los Angeles, I hope, where Howie Klein, the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, is standing by. And he also writes Down with Tyranny. Howie, are you there? I'm here. How are you, sir? <clears throat> I'm well, thank you. We had a, a rainy, we never have rainy days in L.A., like a couple of times a year. And today was all gloomy, no sun, rainy. I was depressed because there was no sun. I didn't know it was because there was no sun. I was trying to figure out why I was depressed. But then when the sun came out for 10 minutes, I, I got undepressed. And I realized, ah, it was because there was no sun. Right. Other than that, I'm just fine. How about you? Well, I'll, I'll name drop. You'll, you'll understand why. Uh, it was a rainy day in Los Angeles about 20 years ago. And I was working at CBS where they produced The Young and the Restless, and Paul Williams, who I think is... Have you ever met Paul Williams? Well, there are two famous Paul Williamses that I know of. The architect. And one of them I know, and one of them I, I, I know is music. There's a Paul Williams, who I believe was an African-American architect in Los Angeles, right? Uh, yes, that's the third famous Paul Williams. Right. I was actually in... Uh, we used to babysit Mac Davis's house. We had friends who babysat Mac Davis's house and we would come and help them babysit. And he lived in Bel Air in a Paul Williams home. And uh, I'm name dropping. I don't know why. But anyway, I get into uh, Mac Davis. So what a we, we lost Mac Davis uh Anyway, great man. Um, and he was like a country singer, right? Yes, 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 yes. And very generous. We, we would babysit his house when his family went on vacation. And uh, just so open and trusting and generous. And uh, But anyway, Paul, so I get into an elevator. Feel anything? No, no, no. But I think not even a little tiny something? No, but... Uh, I was shown his writing room and I saw opened the book, the notes to baby, baby, don't get hooked on me. And I could see the right like he left it out there for people to see his writing process. Paul Williams, who is another um, um, who is still with us. I've never met him. I would love to. Meet. Oh, I met him once. And that's what so I'm in an elevator with him. It's a Monday. And it's, at CBS or at Paul Williams's house or at Mac Davis's house? Whose house? Uh, Who had the elevator in their house? I'm at CBS going to work. Paul Williams, the musician, is has a guest 
star role on The Young and the Restless as an Wait actor. a minute. Paul Williams, the musician? The musician. The architect. No, no. Paul Williams, the musician, is okay. getting... The musician uh, gets into the elevator with me, and it's a Monday, and it's rainy, and I look at him, and I said, rainy days and Mondays always cheer me up. Ooh. And he went, that's good. And he wrote a song about that? He wrote, rainy days and Mondays always get me down. And he walked So in. you, um, you, 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 did you get, a, like, any uh, royalties from that? Well, he laughed. He said, that's a good one. It's Monday, it's raining, and... Oh, he wrote it before you told him. Right. He wrote Rainy Days and Mondays Always Get Me Down. He walks. I know, but I thought he wrote, he wrote it because you said that. To no, him. no, no. But my mind, it was nine in the morning. And it's I relive that moment over and over again. Howie, let us talk about now the other Paul Williams who you didn't mention. And I don't know where the architect. Oh, yes. The architect is the one who built the home for Mac Davis. I got right. it. But the other Paul Williams was the founder and publisher of Crawdaddy magazine. Oh, and he was the one. Uh, is that and, and uh, who did? Oh, who was the the woman who came to see your show at SUNY with Jim Morrison, who wrote for Sixteen magazine? What was your name? Okay, Staver. Well, the person who, Staver. Gloria Staver. Gloria yes. did, she, did she come? Did she come? I don't think so. Okay. Let, what, let, what made you think that she... I mean, she could have come because one of her best friends came, but I, I don't think that she was with him. Her best, her best friend was Danny Fields, and he came to that show, but I don't think that Gloria was with him. Okay. That's funny you should say that. I remember you mentioned Gloria Staver, and Maybe your, she was there. I don't know. And your mom, hey, I was very... your mom smoking dope with Jimi Hendrix. That was like, that was another year. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I just remember, and I remember the name Gloria Staver. And I remember thinking, I haven't heard that name since I re used to read my sister's 16 magazine. Yeah, yeah. We all say it was our sisters. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let us now turn to the Democratic Party. I want to play you a clip, if you don't mind. Kevin oh, McCarthy, minority leader of the House, Republican, wants to be speaker. He was on a retreat with all the other Republicans. And this is what he said at the retreat, if I can. Before you play it, can I ask you a question? Yes, just sir. in case. It, it, it is where somebody asked him, who uh, invited uh, Madison Cawthorn to the orgy? All right, let's talk about the orgy. Go ahead. Mad Madison Cawthorn is a congressman, and he said that, what What did he say? I think over the weekend he was talking to a right-wing podcast host. Well, I don't know who the podcast host is. I watched the clip, and I, I never heard of that person, but sure, he could be a right-winger, he could be anything. But yes, but it didn't seem to me that Cawthorn realized that what he was saying was going to be going out to lots and lots of people. But he, he said that two things that were of interest there. One was that uh, uh, he's watched old Republicans snorting coke. 
uh, meaning uh, when I say old Republicans, I mean old Republican members of Congress snorting coke. And the other was that some old Republicans, uh, members of Congress, invited him to an orgy. Right. So, of course, there's been a... Um, and he's a, he's a very good-looking young guy. He's 25, I believe, or 26 now. And uh, and he's very, very handsome in a kind of a traditional Nazi way. Right. In fact, another member of Congress said uh, said to me yeah, about him, said, uh, yeah, the Nazis always look hot or something like that. But but that guy didn't uh, isn't the one who invited him to the orgy. He said like some seventy year old or a sixty or seventy year old invited him to an orgy, and or, or he said people like that. He, he didn't say the age of the person. But anyway, all day today, uh, everyone on Capitol Hill is trying to guess who invited the young Nazi to an orgy, and uh, especially because his wife uh, divorced him because um, he had been in a serious accident. His his uh, penis doesn't work. And so who, so what's his role at the orgy? Uh, anyway, is it his mouth or something else? Uh, but in any case, everyone is trying to guess who, who, who. So it, it seems that from what I'm hearing, the, the two main suspects who invited Madison Cawthorn to the orgy are one or the other. So one, of course, everybody guesses Lindsey Graham. My theory about that is that, you know, yeah, everybody guesses Lindsey Graham because that's the obvious person right. Right. and it doesn't have any, anything to do with reality. The thing that people in the know guess, and this is the one I think who, who is the person, is a fellow uh, North Carolinian and a neighbor of his uh, named uh, Patrick McHenry, who happens to be uh, a closet case and a very, very extreme right and, uh, and, and definitely is friendly with, um, uh, with Cawthorn. So he was probably the one that invited Cawthorn to the orgy. Ah, this is just U.S. Representative Congressman. This is great. Yes. I guarantee you no, no other radio show uh, has had, had this news on today. This is exciting stuff. And you were right about Lindsey Graham. You, were, you told us about Marco Rubio's white teeth. You told us about Mitch McConnell. And oh. people say, well, why is this important? And the rule is, if you're a Republican... You're not allowed to have any type of sex that is not with a, a, a woman in the missionary position. Only in the missionary position. Exactly right. But otherwise, you're you're uh, a I'm hypocrite over. and you're dangerous and you're self-loathing and uh, the gloves are off. You're, if the gloves are off sexually in the Republican Party when it comes to persecuting the LGBT community, then the gloves are off exposing any Republicans who are closet cases. All of them. All of them. Well, they all of them are closet cases. Is what so I wrote about this. I, no, I think I just tweeted about it. Yes. So anyone who wants to go to my Twitter can will find a link to, uh, to um, a long, long story about when Patrick McHenry was first elected uh, to Congress and how he was in trouble not just not just for um, being a closet case. Uh, that was the least of it. He he had his former lover murdered. So it's a very interesting story, and I recommend that anybody who likes this kind of thing <laughs> go and read it. Pat, I'm putting a picture of Patrick McHenry up on the screen right now. He's a regular John Wayne. Yeah, John Wayne or assless chaps. <laughs> The, the thing about Patrick McHenry is, is that he's a now he's a, 
the he is the epitome of the uh, Republican establishment. When he when he was first elected, he vowed he vowed over and over again that no one would ever get to the right of him. That he would be without a doubt he would be the 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 role model for the most extreme right person in Congress. And he would say that openly. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't fooling around that. That was his role for the first couple of years. And now he's not even close. He's not even close to that. The Republican, he he hasn't changed, but the Republican party has moved so far to the right that now he's sort of in the middle of it. He's, I think he's even like a, uh, he's going to be a committee chair of of the, um, he's, he's the ranking member on the House Financial Services Committee. They always try to find the most corrupt person they could find, uh, you know, who's in bed with the big banks and everything. Well, that's, right. That would be him. So they made him the uh, the ranking member. So when they win, win Congress, which is likely, he will become the chairman of that committee. And that committee, in any case, you know, there are three or four committees in Congress that are, like, beyond belief in, in their corruption. That's the, that's the biggest of them all. Well, I did some, while you were talking, because I had not heard about Patrick McHenry being gay. But according to Tal Road in 2010, they asked Congressman Patrick McHenry over the Crooked Dope asked Patrick McHenry, are you gay? And he said, I am not. So he denies being gay. And he left that interview and married his uh, secretary that day. Okay. This to to and, and he's anti-gay. He's very anti-gay. Gay, but anti-gay. He's your typical. You, you know, I, I at the time when he when he was first exposed for being gay, I wrote half a dozen stories about it. So if you want to go back to my original, you could go to that 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 tweet today, and you you'll get to the uh, to the main story about um, about him. You know, the part that I really relished was more than just being gay, but the murder. That that was the main well, thing. Well, what was the what was the murder? He murdered his lover. Okay. And who was the lover? Some galoot. <laughs> I'm I'm googling it right now and there's this you're there's a lot I mean if you just it's, you know, uh uh, Pat, Pat Google, McHenry. Uh, McHenry down with tyranny. Okay, there, there's uh, uh, Patrick McHenry's creep, creepy closet in Blue and C. Uh, <laughs> anti-gay activists tell Patrick McHenry to come out, come out wherever you are. <laughs> this is, goes back to 2010. Uh, North Carolina conservative is not happy with people outing him as gay. Uh, well, then he should join the Democrats, right? Let me uh, look up. Uh, oh, the Democrats don't want or need him. Please, please. We have enough of our own problems. We've got Charlie Crist. I mean, the point is not to out Patrick McHenry. It doesn't matter anymore. He's a happily married Republican. The The point is to... Um, uh, to say that he, you know, he got a, you know, a little itch in his uh, crotch for uh, Kevin, uh, no, for uh, uh, Cawthorn, whatever his name is, Madison Cawthorn. That's right. This is from Down with <laughs> Down with Tyranny, March ninth, twenty twelve. Speaking of uh, Mark Foley and Larry Craig, 
for those of you, well, if you don't remember who they are, we'll tell you. A robocall went out to Republicans and some independents tying McHenry to both of them, or at least to their hypocrisy and promiscuous gay activities. So, okay. Get to the, but get, I mean, the murder story is the interesting one. That was the one that was the really the fascinating one in my series about uh, Patrick McHenry's uh, gay uh, hypocrisy. Is this as I bad mean, as someone? Big deal. <laughs> is this as bad as Matt Gates's murder story? Wasn't there a murder? In, yes, there was a murder there too. That's right. In his dorm room, right? They they had to move the body yes. allegedly. Allegedly, him and his father. By the way, um, that re- which reminds me, the other person who a lot of people were talking about as a possibility for having invited Cawthorn uh, to the uh, the sex orgy. As, I mean, that's what Cawthorn said. I mean, you may you li- you listen and say, "Oh, that's how he's claiming that there was a sex orgy." No, Cawthorn said this. It's on tape. I mean, you know, everyone was talking about it today. Yeah. But in any case, the other person who a lot of people guessed was um, was Gates. That Gates invited him because Gates is known for um, being a major uh, participant in orgies. Right. I didn't know that he was doing it with men, though. I thought he was just doing it with. Well, he, he's a, he's a polymorphous pervert. He if you if it moves, uh, well, we don't know if he also likes bodies, but if it if it moves, he'll go for it. <laughs> I will play the tape later. I have it somewhere. Well, let's. Uh... This is always fun. The news has been yeah. so depressing. What was the question again? Huh? <laughs> what was the question? This is much more interesting, going after hypocrisy in the Republican Party, which eventually is going to destroy them, I think, by the midterms. I think Putin has all the compromise on them. And because they're now supporting Zelensky and not Putin, we're going to get more and more information but not Cawthorn. Not Cawthorn. You know what Cawthorn said, right? He, I mean, people will remember that Cawthorn claims that uh, uh, Zelensky is a thug. Right. Right. How much do you think Putin is funding, secretly funding the Republican Party? How much do you think... I have a... a, a I, I've been thinking like... Biden has sat down with his intelligence agencies and and they said to him whether or not they're right. But I think Biden has been convinced that all the insanity that we're seeing on the right can be traced back to Vladimir Putin, that he's secretly funding all these crackpots. Do you think that's true? And do you think Biden and the and about the word all and, you know, that kind of thing? But. Do I, th- I think that a lot of Russian oligarchs who are um, related to uh, Putin are funding Republicans? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's not a matter of thinking. I mean, there's no question about it. And in fact, one of them just pled guilty the other day, uh, uh, a friend of Giuliani's, so one, one of the guys he worked with in Ukraine right. on, on behalf of Putin. Right. So it was. we heard Moscow Mitch. Uh, yes. So if you have a Republican Party that is getting money funneled to them through the NRA, the NRA was funneling Russian money to candidates. Uh, 
we know that Michael Flynn, who's in General Flynn, who's insane, was lobbying for Turkey. But who knows where that money was coming from? And who knows what other money he was getting from? Also on Putin's pay payroll. Right. So it seems to me whether or not it's true that Biden is convinced that the right, the crazies on the right are getting funded by Putin to say and do anything like Tucker Carlson, I have to believe, is being financed by Orban in Hungary, who's being financed by Putin. Is that a fair guess? Because nobody's. Be a, we don't know. I mean, yes, but I, I mean, I would uh, I would not I wouldn't doubt it. Right. What do you what do you I mean? Putin is now one of the most popular TV uh, personalities in Russia. Right. But nobody will advertise on his show. Is that, oh, I hope you're right. So I, I have to assume that Mike Lindell, who does advertise, is, you know, paying 10 times as much for a 30 second spot. And he's getting his money from Orban, who's getting his money from Putin. And that's what's keeping uh, Tucker profitable. What are you making tonight? Uh, nothing. What do I hear in the background? I hear you. I, I, I made um, uh, I made uh, I had I made lunch instead of dinner. tonight. I just eat one meal a day. So usually I have dinner. But Roland is in Maine. So I'm just uh, I'm on my own. Okay. So I, I just have lunch. So I, I did baked eggs, baked eggs. Mm, yum, yum. OK, but you're a vegan. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I'm just me. OK, let's talk about Kevin McCarthy and yes. his vision for the midterms. This is what he thinks the Republicans have to run on. This is him speaking at his retreat at the Republican retreat last week. When you look at the two biggest threats long term to America is our debt and China. Okay. So what are we going to do to solve that? Well, we've got to get our debt under control. It's driving inflation. How do we balance it? How do we pay it off? Well, if we set a budget and we stick to it year after year, well, then you also have a concern, what about our military? Okay, but you can't just keep throwing money at the military. We should be reforming the military where our dollars go further. So it's continual improvement in everything you go. Okay, so uh, McCarthy says the two biggest threats facing America are debt and China. Is that a winning message? Uh, well, it, 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 I think the Republican audiences uh, like that. But, uh, you know, remember, McCarthy doesn't, I mean, you said McCarthy said, which, okay, he did, but he doesn't say, he doesn't write his own material. He, he has, you know, he has someone like you writing his material. Okay, and that is what the Republicans are offering the American people. Uh, tackling debt and the threat from China, even though everything we see on the news, I'm just talking about politically, everything America sees on the news is Russia is the problem that must be dealt with. Uh, well, the, the Republicans are completely utterly uh, brainwashed about, already about China. So there's no, no worries there. 
they, you know, their news sources are all China, China, China. China is the. Okay. You write over at Down with Tyranny, which everybody should read. Go to downwithtyranny.com. The Democratic Party, what is it good for? <sighs> Absolutely nothing. That's uh, your uh, war. Your, that's from war, the song War, right? Yes. Yeah. The, the title is The Democratic Party, what is it good for? Uh, and, and you recognize it as something uh, that popped in my head. Uh, as you know, I, and, and when I wrote, what is it good for, as I was writing it, I realized it was, it was, I was getting it from a war song. So they're giving us war is, uh, I want to read what you wrote. You say democratic electoral framing is where the lesser of two evils. It no longer works. You write, you write the Democrats better revamp the DCCC and DSCC ease out the Republican wing of the Democratic Party and embrace the legitimate aspirations of working families, not just in word, but in deed, and they'd better do it fast. So if they did it fast. It's too late. Uh, it's I'm too you late. Know, just trying to say something positive. It's right. too late. There's nothing they can do, right? Because a mansion. Is it that simple? It's mansion? Uh, well, first of all, there's mansion cinema. On the one hand, the other on the other hand, there's a there are, there were dozens of people like Manchin and Cinema in the House, and there although um, it doesn't get to the same place in the House that it does in the Senate because Nancy Pelosi is more skilled than Chuck Schumer doesn't know what he's doing, and she negotiates with them. Now this is not necessarily a good thing because they say we're not going to support this legislation unless you take out all the good parts. So she just takes out all the good parts and then they right. pass crappy legislation. We're almost out of time. Have you seen the frontline hagiography? about Pelosi. What was that verb? Uh, there's a documentary that praises Nancy Pelosi. Frontline did it. I like Frontline. And ah, uh, there'll be lots of things about her from, you know, uh, in the next few years when she's uh, gone. That are, most, most people will say positive things about her. Most Democrats, I, I don't mean people. Most uh, Democrats will say positive right. things. I have uh, to... You won't doing that yeah you may catch me doing that a little bit she was good at one time not very good she was somewhat good history you know, you know she was one of the the founders of the progressive caucus did you know that I, they mentioned that in the yeah oh, i didn't know that yep uh molly ball has an interesting book about her here's the thing about pelosi if you look at her through the eyes of you know these uh neo-libs like Walter Isaacson and Meekum and uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin or Doris Goodwin. If you look, you know, or David McCullough, the, the popular American history writers, she did impeach him twice. Historically speaking, she did, you know, again, I don't, I'm not going to defend Nancy Pelosi or her criminal family. But she did impeach Donald Trump twice. She tore up his speech. Uh, she was brave and she stood up to fascism. She, his, the historians 
whether you like it or not, are going to give her credit for that, right? If yeah, we, yeah, I like it. It's, it's fair. Yeah, yeah. She's not, you know, she's not a complete villain. Alan but Grayson she, loves her. He does. Yeah, she's a partial villain. Before you go, did you watch the Academy Awards? <laughs> Come on, David. You're joking. I don't know anymore. Did I watch? I may have watched the Academy War Awards. Did they have them in the in the early '60s? Yes, I may have watched them in the early '60s when I was a child, and there was only one TV set. It was very interesting to watch because they are slap. What was that all about? The what? Somebody got slapped. I heard. What was that all about? Yeah, we've been talking about that all day. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll, Will I'll Smith uh, slapped uh, Chris Rock, and we've been talking. It was it it what they made the case for diversity. I thought they made a successful case for diversity, especially to people like me and my audience who think class struggle comes first. I thought it was they made a convincing case that wokeness leads to class struggle, contributes to raising the economic fortunes of the 99%. I, I thought they sold me on it. Who did? The, the academy. The, they're, they're, the, the quotas, the, the going out of their way to stress uh, diversity and making the, the Oscars look like America. Ah, uh, uh, good. Oh, did Sean uh, Sean Penn get uh, uh, Zelensky to speak or something? No, he's smelting his Oscar as we speak. Ah, okay. okay. Yeah, the Oscars were never my kind of thing. I was like, I, I it was it was hard enough to uh, put up with the Grammys, and I had to put up with the Grammys. But Oscars, uh, I never had any reason to watch that thing. Fantastic, Howie Klein. This was this was this was like old times. I forget. Your daughter uh, got in touch with me today and said, asked me if there was anything that I wanted to talk about. And I, I, I said, yeah, but it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> this was this was more entertaining. I needed this. This was uh, nice and juicy. I want everyone to read this, uh, this story about the murder. It's, it's, it's a serious story. It's not a joke. Okay, how about this? How about if I send it to you and then you make everyone in, in your uh, world read it? You're talking about McHenry's murder. We murdered, murdered his lover. It's a, it was a really big deal. Why don't we... Why don't, I even have a picture of the lover. Why? Okay, why don't we tease this for next week? Where we, okay. we, we, we talk about... We do... Crimes of passion. This will this will be good. Crimes of passion from Howie Klein. We'll talk for fifteen minutes. We'll talk about McHenry, and then we'll talk about Matt Gates's roommate who got rolled up in a blanket. Right. Okay. And oh, that's true. And what about um, uh, Lindsey, Lindsey Graham? Did Lindsey Graham really win a, a, an Oscar last night? Lindsey Graham. Yeah. I, I don't think Lindsey Graham won an Oscar. Oh, I see someone got me going. They told me that he uh, 
He got uh, was it the drama queen of the year or something. No, no, he was a seat filler at the Oscars. I see. Backstage, he was filling. Okay, that's a seat filler joke. I apologize. Howie Klein is the founder. Hey, if you're a Republican, the gloves are off because they don't think they don't think we'll go there. And 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 I'm I have no qualms about being as mean as and as vindictive as Republicans can be. Howie Klein. The murder, the murder story is in your um, inbox. OK. To be continued next week, follow Howie Klein over at Down With Tyranny for juicy items like this and serious thought about the future of our country. <laughs> and uh, he is the founder. And if you want more serious thought, be sure to uh, uh, read Down With Tyranny at nine tonight. Why? What do we have? We have the weirdest story that's ever run on Down With Tyranny. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you write it? No. Someone else wrote it, and I can't figure out what it's about. Oh, okay. All right. Follow Howie on Twitter, at Down With Tyranny. We love you, Howie Klein. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Well, I enjoy the murder story. Thank you very much. Well, this is exciting. Uh, I don't know if Steve Scrovan's going to be able to follow uh, gossip like this, murder in high places. <laughs> Steve Scroven is about to join us. When we come back, we will be joined by Emmy Award winning comedy writer. You love him as a comedy writer and you love him as one of the hosts of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. He joins us after this. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Well, that's the wrong video. Hang on. I played the wrong one. I apologize. Uh, I want I want you to see the uh, Steve Scrovan joins us. He is besides being an Emmy Award winning comedy writer. He is also one of the hosts of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour and director, along with Henriette Mantel, of An Unreasonable Man, a monumental documentary. Who's it about? It's about uh, it's about you, David. Oh, thank you. <laughs> no, it's about uh, it's about Ralph Nader. That's how I got involved in all this stuff before you got me involved in this 
radio show that's now in its eighth year. What year is its eighth it? Year. How many years? Eight years. It was 2014 when, I don't know if people know the backstory of this or whether they care to hear it, but I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> uh, back in 2014, uh, probably in January, David calls me and uh, he and Alan Minsky were at KPFK and somebody was, um, you were going to fill in for somebody in the, in the drive time hour at KPFK in Los Angeles. And you thought, let's do a um, alternate state of the union with Ralph Nader. Uh, alternate to Obama's State of the Union that was coming a few days later. And so you asked me to get in touch with Ralph uh, because you knew I I knew, you know, him and, and then more importantly, the people who could get to him. And so I hooked you up for the interview and uh, you said, OK, now be here at 430. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking to my hero by myself. <laughs> Yes, I said, well, what do you need me there for? And you said, because uh, Ralph Nader has been my hero since I was a kid. My father said this is the greatest American, and uh, I can't I can't be in a room alone, even if he's in Connecticut. Right. Uh, I, you have to be there with me right. So uh, to hold your hand. Right. And so I went, and I kind of sat in the corner, put some headphones on. You did a really good job interviewing him, covered a lot of topics. As did I you. Made- As did you. I jumped in here and there, but you, you pretty much carried it. And then after we were done with him, uh, you, me and Minsky, we all looked at each other and said, wow, this guy knows a lot of stuff. (laughs) We should do this every week. Right. And we kind of put a proposal together for Ralph who wasn't, you know, on board immediately. It took a little convincing because he's a very busy man. And, uh, we convinced him and we started, I think, this month in March of 2014. Really? So eight years. Yeah. So eight eight years. years. 420 shows we've no. done. No. 420 episodes. We haven't missed a week. <laughs> and uh, it's been, I don't know about for you, I know for you, but I know definitely for me, it's been such a tremendous education. Yes. And I'm so much the better for it. Yes. Uh, Absolutely. Being able to just be, just have access to his reading list. Right. The man consumes information like uh, nobody's business. Right. And um, yeah, he is probably the greatest public citizen or, or American that I can think of. Since Ben, Fra- Mark Green says since Ben Franklin, but I yeah. never, I never met Ben Franklin. So I'm going to say it's Ralph Nader. And, ben, and, and, and Ralph is probably on the same uh, technological level as Ben Franklin. <laughs> he, we have to connect to him. We're on Zoom. I know we started with Skype, and then we had uh, this other uh, Uber conference, and now we're doing Zoom, which is the most user-friendly. And uh, we were pioneering this remote work forever. And Ralph, we, we connected him through a series of string and coffee cans. Right. Because right. he is on the phone. Every once in a while, when he was in D.C. pre-pandemic week, every once in a while we can get him, sit him in front of a laptop and put some headphones on him and a, and a microphone. But uh, he's uh, he's a Luddite, still writes his books on his manual typewriter. So for our younger listeners or the people our age who have forgotten because we're getting yeah. older, no Ralph Nader, no what? 
uh, no Ralph Nader, no auto safety bill, no seat belts, no airbags, no. Uh, he opened up the Freedom of Information Act. Um, he introduced the freedom of it. He created it. I don't know if he created it, but whatever he did, he had something to do with with the origins of it. Uh, probably no EPA, uh, uh, no OSHA, occupational cell, uh, you know, um, NHTSA. NHTSA. National Traffic Highway Safety. Um, the man has whistleblower act. He invented. He invented the term whistleblower. The whistleblower act. Yes, yes. The whistleblower. You know, so many things. He was the one that sued uh, Nixon after the Saturday Night uh, Massacre. Uh, you know, it was. It, when you put it all together, it's an amazing thing that has not only advanced uh, uh, the democracy, but saves tangibly hundreds of thousands, of, if not millions of lives over the last 50 years. Yeah, not and just not no just auto safety, but water, the water you drink, the air you Clean breathe. Air Act, Clean Water Act, that all originates. Ralph, the fact that we have an Earth Day, Ralph was in the origins of that. You know, uh, it was he with Unsafe and Speed, Rachel Carson, who uh, who died very uh, shortly after she wrote the book, who did uh, Silent Spring. You know, I, I read Unsafe at Any Speed when I did the, if you can see the uh, poster behind me for the movie. And everybody talks about the Corvair. The Corvair was one chapter in that book. He was talking about the mileage standards. He was talking about um, uh, pollution and all of those kinds of things, all those other things in the book, too, way, be, way ahead of his time. And he gets the settlement from GM couple hundred yeah. thousand dollars and instead of four hundred seventy five thousand dollars in 1970 money 475 almost a half million dollars in 1970 money i don't know what that would be today right maybe one of your listeners can look that up but and what does he do with the money well what he did was he poured it all into this activism and created um the nader's raiders basically in various forms so the irony is that general motors who uh, investigated him and he sued them in for invasion of privacy he won the settlement the largest settlement of its time for privacy and he poured all that money back into uh, all these other institutions where they're you know they're inspecting meat they're uh uh, in, inspecting commercials, the Federal Trade Commercial uh, Commission. That was the first Nader's Raiders project right. that where they coined that term, where you know Geritol was talking about iron poor blood right. and all of these bullshit things that uh, don't really exist. And he cleaned all that up. So uh, he was the icon, one of the most admired Americans in the early uh, throughout the seventies, pretty much. Right. And while he was going to Harvard Law. And yes, yeah. Harvard Law occasionally yeah. produces somebody uh, worthy. He yeah. was traveling around the country writing for The Nation magazine. He is a journalist. He brought journalism to his legal mission. He can speak clearly and he writes clearly. Yes, and you hear that a lot when we interview journalists or people who written a book. And Ralph says, what are you going to do about it? And they go, well, I just, uh, you know, highlight the problem. I don't know. I'm not an activist. Right. Ralph was both. And so he gets impatient with the journalists and the authors who write these great books. 
And he says, we are today, we are in a golden age of exposés and documentaries and books and uh, very little gets done. Right. They, you know, the, 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 the corporate uh, machine has figured out a way to avoid, like in his day, General Motors was so arrogant, just like Will Smith, they thought they could get up and slap him. Right. And in slapping him, they ended up financing his entire consumer crusade, the, right. the consumer movement. Right. So that's what happened. That's what's going to happen to Will Smith, too, by the way. he's Why, did something happen? What happened? He's with- going to be diminished, and Chris Rock is going to be, Chris Rock is going to get an Netflix special out of Will Smith's Oscar will always be tarnished by that. And, and he will have done nothing for the people he purports to protect. And I think Will Smith is a good guy uh, uh, down deep, but he just, uh, the arrogance and power got to him where he felt he could just walk up on that stage and slap somebody. And that's what happens. That hubris, that's what GM exhibited back in the sixties with Ralph. They thought he could, could just smear him. And it ended up biting them in the ass. And this is going to end up biting Will Smith in the ass. See how I brought that all together? Wow. Yeah. Uh, and you, did, did you win an Oscar for best documentary? No, we were in what's called the shortlist. We did make the shortlist for, for Oscar documentaries. They narrow them down to 15 before they get to the final five so that the people who are voting don't have to watch 80 documentaries and just 15 of them. And so we made the shortlist, which is a significant right. uh, accomplishment considering you know how many, you know probably there are 80 to 100 documentaries every year that are worthy. I mean, we got into Sundance, you know, there were, you know, 15, 1700 submissions and we made the, their final 16. So we made the 15 in the short list, but we didn't make the final five. Right. And it was the year that, uh, it's a funny story. It was a year that, uh, in inconvenient truth won the Oscar. Now in inconvenient truth. Oh, that's interesting. A, yeah. It had like a, well, that was the, that was Gore the versus whole, Nader. Well, that was a whole headline at Sundance. In, in 2006, it's Nader and Gore and Jennifer Aniston. Right. <laughs> Those are the three stars who were coming. And Ralph's 99-year-old mother died that week, and Ralph couldn't show up at, at Park City. And that cost us a lot of press. So so he he didn't make He probably could have met with Gore. It would have been a huge thing. But that precluded that and probably cost us uh, a lot of notoriety in that regard. But all the other documentary filmmakers that lost to An Inconvenient Truth, a very important movie uh, that is, you know, the seminal about the, about the, the, the climate crisis, but all the other documentaries, myself included, were furious that it was a PowerPoint presentation. Right. You know, we we lost to a PowerPoint presentation by one of the historically most boring men in history. And because they had a, you know, five million dollar marketing budget, they could they were the they were the 800 pound gorilla. I, you know, well, I, story I, have to, I have to upset. Uh, let's plug. Yes. Our, our big event this Wednesday. And then you and I square off with stump the hump we have the quiz master dan here okay i don't know what the topic is what's the topic dan um today it is going to be on trains i was doing uh 
this month in history and in March, um, there's the birthday of George Pullman. He was born in Brockton, New York, and he improved railroad sleeping accommodations, the Pullman sleeper, otherwise known as the palace car. You're just taking a, a train trip recently as well. So I thought yeah. that was appropriate. Oh, and, and you know something about pulling Okay. Uh, plug our big thing. Yes. So, so we're going to do this Wednesday in two days. Uh, we're going to do a live Zoom, kind of much like what uh, David's doing uh, every week, twice a week. Which is <laughs> only like, entertaining. Un, 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 unbelievable how you do it. Uh, and, and you do it like uh, for 18 hours. Yes. Uh, for truckers who are going cross country. And t- and until they release the hostages in Tehran, I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> Well, you know, that's how they get people to talk is to have them listen to your show. Yeah. So we're going to do our own live event. It's only it'll only it'll be a little over an hour and uh, with Ralph. And uh, it's going to feature the author, Jesse Singer, who wrote a book, with, which has got a great title. It's, it's very ominous. Could be a murder mystery. And it is kind of a murder mystery in the sense it's called There Are No Accidents. And it's about the idea that we use this euphemism accident to cover a lot of things that could be preventable and how it's kind of funny that all of these accidents tend to really mostly harm uh, the poor and underserved communities and how the more privileged and richer of us can avoid these what they call accidents. And uh, she talks from personal experience um, that was uh, a friend of hers who was killed on a bike in New York by a drunk driver and how that was termed an accident. And uh, it's not really an accident. Uh, when the guy says, my car hit this guy. No, your car didn't hit this guy. You hit this guy. Right. So we're going to talk about that with Ralph. And you're going to get to go behind the scenes, see how the sausage is made. David and I will will be doing the warm up. We'll be doing our, uh, our witty banter, if you want to be uh, uh, privy to all of that. But uh, and, I, and be- I'm a pretty imposing, intimidating figure over at the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. You are. You are. Yeah. You, you're the. I call you the district attorney. <laughs> no, I'm, you, no, 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 no. I'm joking. No, I'm, okay. I'm joking about how I'm the weakest link on that. Well, um, I think Ralph is a little afraid of you. He's always, you know, when he, he asks us to ask questions, like, Steve, you go first. David, <laughs> <laughs> <Maybe>, very quickly. <laughs> I've, uh, I, I have a, uh, a bit of a, uh, there have been some incidents with some guests. That... There, there have been some some complaints from some guests, but I think it's always fun. And I don't think we're going to get it this week no. unless David's just off his nut. Right. But for those of you who come, it's 1230 Eastern time, 930 Pacific time and everywhere in between this Wednesday, March 30th. We're going to do a live Zoom of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. So go to ralphnaderradiohour.com. And click on the button. You'll see a picture of the author, and, and it's, it'll be right there, very prominently on the page. And that'll take you to the registration. Uh, do it soon because it's it's filling up, and I think we have like a 500 capacity. Right. The last time we did this with author Richard Panchik, we sold out, and so you don't want to be blocked out. Go so uh, yeah, go, it's free, I'm- and it's an opportunity to <clears throat> yeah. Uh, perhaps talk to Ralph, ask questions, and it would be nice if everybody showed up. It's on Zoom. All you need is Zoom. And All you need is Zoom, and I'm going to put the uh, link in the chat for people. Okay. 
and put it in the YouTube chat room as well. We we also have competing chat rooms. Now, it's time to play Stump the Humps with our host, Stumpmaster, Quizmaster, Dan Frankenberger, putting some little money in the kitty here. You want me to stick around for this? Yeah, thing? I'm, I'm going to kick your ass. I never lose this because he shows me really? the answers beforehand. But it's a, you know, it's a memory thing. I, I see the answers, but the question is, can I remember the answers? No, I have not. Have I seen any of the answers? No, you have not. I, I just wrote the quiz within the last okay, hour. And I'm so not checking not. the chat room because I don't trust the chat room. They would they would. Uh, I'll go first and we'll teach Steve how to lose stump the humps because he will lose. So I have uh, put together five questions and they are all multiple choice. So, uh, David, the first one's heading your direction first. The pantograph is an articulated device fitted to the roof of a train. It serves to send telegrams, supply electricity to the train, ensure the train's stability, or to chug a choo-choo. <laughs> uh, well, I'm one of the world's leading experts on trains. Uh uh, I have no idea. I'm going to give it. Give me the choices again. Send telegrams. Supply electricity to the train. And this is the penta what? Pantogram. The pentagram. Pantogra pantograph. Pantograph. Oh, the pentograph. So it must have something to do with Satan. Start again. <laughs> the pantograph is an articulated device fitted to the roof of a train. It serves to send telegrams, supply electricity to the train, Ensure the train's stability or chug a choo-choo. I'm going to go with one. Some telegrams. Steve. Uh, what, what was the second one? Does it, I think it may be power. The second one was supply electricity to the train. I, that's what I'm going with. And that is correct. Supply electricity to the train. Oh, look at that. Steve Strovan. Uh, can I mention uh, your society that you belonged to in college? No need to mention that. Scrovan. I will have to kill you, David. Leading one to nothing. And nobody will know because it will be, you know, one of those plutonium things. You'll just, you know, look like you. Right. Okay. It'll be live on this podcast. I can't help so but no one will know. He belongs to a secret society. I'm not making this up. And I cannot help but think. He's being given the answers. Go ahead. It's you're up, Steve. <laughs> so right. question number two, where does the word train derive? Is it Persian, Latin, Greek, or is it from your mother's diary? <laughs> Are you implying that his. Oh, the wedding train. I thought you were talking about something dirtier. OK, mother's, my mother's diary. Uh, Persian, we say Persian, Latin. Greek? Greek. Train. The word train. That's a hard one to... Um, These are hard questions. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say Persian. All right. So I'm going to assume that it comes from the root trans. I'm just going to assume that. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. And so give me the, the countries. It's a, the language is 
Persian, Latin, Greek, or your mother's diary? The mother's diary. I'm going to go with Latin. It is Latin. Yeah. Yeah. That's very good. Once you see the trans. So wait, did, did Steve get that right or what happened? Yeah. You got it wrong. I got it wrong. Okay. All right. So it's now tied. So I'm winning. Because it's no, tied. Yeah, it's tied. Yeah. Because you're the home team. So I'm the home team. Tie goes with the home team. Okay. Who's up? Uh, David's first this time. Question number three. Who built the first full-scale working railway steam locomotive? Was it Richard Trevithick, Sam Bard, Kingdom Brunel, George Stephenson, or Pornhub? Okay, give me those names again. And and this is, who built the first what? Full-scale working railway steam locomotive. The first railway steam locomotive. Okay. Was it Richard? A Fulton, was, did Fulton do the steamboat? Fulton was not on the list. Okay. So it wasn't the train. Okay. Richard Trevithick. Trevithick. Yep. That sounds like a name that you wouldn't make up. So that that seems legitimate. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna guess so far Trevithick sounds like something you wouldn't have come up with. Go ahead. The second one is Isambard Kingdom Brunel. What is that? What's the first name? Isambard. I-S-A. Oh, that, that one you, yeah, that one you could not possibly make up. So I'm going to go with number two so far. And then George Stephenson. Might be Stephenson. And then Pornhub. I'm going to go with two. Uh, I'm going I'm to go with number two. Just because I don't think you could make that word, that name up. Abraham Steve. Okay. Um, I'm going to say the, the first one that you can't make up. Steve is correct. Steve is correct. Yeah. So I'm now winning three to one. Yeah. There's waiting. Yeah. We, we wait the questions differently. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's two to uh, one. Question, question number for you to get one right. <laughs> two to one. This is the first time I've ever been behind. Go ahead. Who's up okay, first? Not, 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 easy. Not, my, not your friends in San Francisco. Easy, 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 easy. Here's question number four or five. What is What was the last railroad company to use steam locomotives or regular interchange service? Was it New York Central, Milwaukee Road, Norfolk and Western, or I think I can, I think I can? <laughs> you, Steve, it's right? Steve has to pick. Oh, it's me. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, repeat the question again. What was the last railroad company to use steam locomotives for the regular interchange service? New York Central? Milwaukee Road, Norfolk and Western, or I think I can, I think I can. Well, it goes without saying, I think I can, I think I can. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to, the logic here is that what would be more hinterland? Would it be Norfolk and Western or Milwaukee? I'm going to give New York the more advanced technology right. for 
nor the reason that, you know, uh, you would think they would be on top of that. Uh, I'm going to say Milwaukee. You're going to say Milwaukee. Uh, well, and it's Norfolk. Is that what Connecticut? Norfolk. Norfolk and Western. That must be yeah, Connecticut. New York Central, Milwaukee Road, Norfolk and Western. I'm going to guess it's Connecticut. And I'm going to say Connecticut because I could just imagine old Yankees in Connecticut fighting change. I'm going to go with Norfolk. That is correct. Norfolk and Western. Ooh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's now tied two, two, two to two. This is the last question. This is the last question, number five. And who's up first? Me. David is up first. These are these are these are these. It's interesting. This is the first time I had no idea what the answer was to any of these questions. It's, when it's, I decided it was going to be trains, I had a hard time writing, coming up with the right questions. No, it's great because it it's, it teaches you. It's a it's like how do we guess? on tests it's for young kids to learn how to bullshit all right what's the question question number five how do trains pull very heavy loads they run downhill they use multiple engines they use diesel fuel or kegel exercises okay <laughs> easy easy <laughs> i'm getting you know what i'm seeing a pattern here david the last choice is, is is a joke yeah it's never the right one it never seems to be the right one all right go again because this is a physics question so give it to me again how do trains pull very heavy loads they run downhill they use multiple engines they use diesel fuel or kegel exercises well i'm just thinking out loud that uh it could be a trick. This could be a trick question. The answer could be Kegel exercises. You never know. But diesel feels like the obvious answer. But I'm thinking of the Roman aqueducts. And I'm wondering, because I think the aqueducts were designed that so that they were always downhill. There was a slight incline. I, I know the answer is diesel, but I'm going to say they go downhill. All right, I'm gonna say, I don't know what diesel fuel would have, why it would be more powerful. And I don't know how you can make everything downhill. Well, the aqueducts are all downhill. Right, how do trains pull heavy loads, but trains go all over, so you're gonna have to go uphill sometime, no matter what. So I think the answer may be the obvious one, which is they use more engines. Is that what you're going with, Steve? That's what I'm going with. That is true. They use multiple engines. Sometimes there's locomotives in the front, center, and end of the train. Well, it was close. You almost beat me. Good <laughs> try, Steve. Good try. Ah, boy. <laughs> I was so close. You know what? I think we need to re have a meeting where we redo the sudden death overtime rules here. But it was close. You were. I have a feeling. You I were. Feel I scored more points. You were a worthy competitor. 
Yeah. And it, and I have to say, you gave me a run. You scared me at one point, but I was adding up the score and yeah. uh, I pulled it out at the last minute, beating you three to two. But you not, are, thank you, you are for such a Republican. You are so Donald Trump. <laughs> Th thanks for trying, Steve. Yeah, I I beat you by seven million <laughs> and well, still lost. And still, I somehow I'll I do can, more Kegel exercises until yeah, next yeah. time. That's all. Uh, hey, you're a good loser. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the final I'm gonna, score. I'm going to slap you. I'm just going to. I'm just going to. No, no. This was golf, you. and you had three points. I had two, and uh -huh. the trick is to have fewer points it's golf so i beat you uh thanks for well thank you for uh, letting me play it was fun plug uh, our big show wednesday yes. one more time wednesday 12 30 eastern 9 30 pacific join us for a live zoom recording of the ralph nader radio hour you'll uh, get to see how the sausage is made david and i will be entertaining before we bring ralph and our guests in the guest is uh jesse singer who wrote a book called no accidents and uh it's 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 a really good book i, I i've been reading it about um how uh nothing's really an accident with it's accident is usually an excuse and uh certain people pay the price for that so uh, and who are those people the people are, are on the lower income and uh, and people of color tend to be the the the, the more victims of accidents than anybody else. Okay. And uh, so it's kind of how you define the word right. and how other people can define it for you. And when they tell the story, it was an accident. No, it wasn't right. Mistakes were made. No, you made a mistake. Hey, yeah. before you go and before we bring up uh Dr. Harriet Fraud, you do know that Donald Trump was on the show last week. Did you know that? I, 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 I did not know that. Let me play you a clip. This was huge. This is uh, Donald Trump. Huge. This is huge. Let me play a clip from my groundbreaking interview with the great president of the United States, Donald Trump. In a second. Here we go. I started the civil rights movement, David, giving basketball to the blacks. OK, I'm not really sure that's true. Mr. I gave Frederick. them basketball and rap. You rap. Are you familiar with Sugar Hill, David, the Sugar Hill people, the gang, the Sugar Hill gang? Of course, Angle Anglewood, New Jersey, the Sugar Hill gang invented rap. David, not even close, David. I invented rap. I gave the blacks basketball and I didn't just give them rap. I invented it, David. You invented rap. The freestyle stuff, you know. David, Wonder you Mike, Master G, Big Bank, Hank, they used to do work for my father and they saw me sitting in the office and there was a nephew on my mom's side who worked for us and he, he was slow, David. Hmm. Can you say that word now, slow? I think he can say slow. Well, yeah. let's just say he had a bad stutter and a stammer. He had a stutter and a stammer. You couldn't mm -hmm. understand what the hell he was saying. His name was Lonnie. So naturally, I called him Lilani because he had a stutter. So instead of calling him Lonnie like boring people would, I called him Lilani. It's a nickname, David. 
Okay, I don't understand what this has to do with you inventing I rap. I gave rap to the blacks, David. Okay, you told me that. I, I don't understand. I invented rap, David, and I gave it to the blacks. I'd go, Lanny, and the blacks started making records, go back and forth, one by one, two by two. I mean, scratch. Back and forth, they would go, wicka, 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 wicka. Scratching, yes. We used to scratching. call it, he's scratching. We used to call it lanying. Then the white man, the white man didn't like that, David. He made it his own and he changed it to scratching. But believe me, David, it was lanying. And it made my father smile, David. It Aww. made my father smile. My father rarely smiled. Great man, but I made him smile. I was the only one who could make my father smile by making fun of his wife's stuttering nephew, Lonnie. And that's how I invented rap, making fun of a stuttering and stammering nephew of my wife. Of your mother, a little Freudian slip there. Of my mother, sorry. A Freudian, yeah. Yeah, same thing, same thing. Yeah. You know, wife, mother, daughter, all the same. <laughs> yes, I invented rap, David. I invented rap. I gave it to the blacks. That's, uh, that, that is my groundbreaking interview with uh, Donald Trump. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's quite a guess. And I, and I like the you know, mother, daughter, yeah. mother, yeah. sister. It's all the same. Yeah. Now people say that's Smigel, Robert Smigel, but th that sound that doesn't sound. You know Robert Smigel. That doesn't sound like Smigel. That sounds like Donald Trump, right? Right. Yeah. yeah well, why would you think it was yeah. anybody but Donald Trump? Yeah. Thank so. you, Steve Scrovan. I'll see you Wednesday. Thank you. Thank you. Have, have a great rest of the show. Thank you. We're running ten minutes behind. We're going to get to everybody. Doctor Harriet Fraud joins Hi. us, host of. It's not just in your head. Capitalism hits home. And her show is on Wednesdays at 2.30 on WBAI. And I have a block on the name. I, I apologize. What it's is okay. It? It's called Interpersonal Update. And I do It's Not Just in Your Head with Liam Tate, who takes most of the responsibility now, and Ikoi Hiroi. Right, right. Well... Let's talk about the, the situation in Ukraine. Yeah, so we could stop laughing a little bit. I know, I know. We, we had our president uh, rallying the troops in Brussels. Let's watch a clip of President Biden uh, talking forcefully. Be a victory for Russia, for free people refused Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia, for free people refuse to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. Uh, is this the right man for the right time? I'm not talking about Putin. I'm talking about Biden. 
you know, look, this is a, you know, he put on a good show, but this is, this whole thing is pathetic. If you've ever seen Wag the Dog, I would recommend it. It's yeah. a great movie. But I started thinking about how come there is such an enormous fuss about Ukraine's invasion. Russia invaded Georgia and the Crimea. The United States invaded Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. Israel invaded Lebanon and the Palestinian territories of um, Palestine at the time. What are we talking about? Invasions are always happening. Iraq invaded Kuwait. Nobody shows pictures of these children with torn limbs and mothers clutching their babies and people saying they'll stand and fight. And I do think that Biden has forcefully said, stand up, fight and die to the last Ukrainian. Okay. Because we're not going. Okay. But I do think when I asked that, I thought, what the hell is going on? Why are they bringing up the mayhem, destruction and horror of war for once? Not with all these other invasions. And I realized it's because this is not about um, Ukraine. Ukraine is a pawn in the game. What it's about is world power is shifting. Look, we have surrounded Russia with hostile NATO countries. They're all of the countries that were in the Warsaw Pact, which was then supposed to be balanced by NATO, which had no obvious reason for being when the Soviet Union dissolved. Well, we have ringed the Soviet Union with the former Warsaw Pact nations who are now members of NATO with armed and with missiles, all of which, by the rules of NATO, they had to buy from the United States. So it's kind of a United States imperialist extra. All right. Ukraine, I think Putin, probably in consideration with the Russians, because the two of them are the majority of the population of the world, thought, okay, American imperialism is on its way down. They've lost four wars. They can't, they're a quarter, no, they're 4% of the world's population. They have 25% of the COVID cases. They can't protect their own people. They're a failing empire. If I'm going to stop being strangled here, now's the moment. And China probably said quietly, since they are the emerging hegemonic nation, okay, we'll buy your stuff. And countries all over the world are sort of in limbo. In the United Nations, the majority of countries voted to support the United States. The majority of people didn't. Because just between India, which remained neutral in this argument, right. abstained, China abstained, Russia obviously didn't support it. Okay, that's the majority of people in the world. Right. And so what Brazil we're seeing... Brazil and Brazil. 
And Brazil, right. The BRICS, right? It was the BRICS are Brazil, Russia, India, uh, China, China and South Africa. I don't know about South Africa, but I, I know that the majority, right. 38 nations abstained and four voted against the United States. Right. But the majority of countries voted for. However, the majority of people voted against. The Africans didn't stay neutral and abstained. That what is happening is underneath this cloak of we are bringing democracy, humanity, and so on, which we really hardly have democracy here. We certainly have more than they do in China or Russia. But the idea that you have democracy in a country where black people are killed routinely by the police, that doesn't look so democratic. Right. And people are going mad. They're really going mad. Homicide is way up. And the poorest borough, the Bronx, has the most killings and shootings because people are driven out of their minds by utter failure of our system to protect them on every right. level. So I think what's happening is this is being fought out in the Ukraine. The United States is fighting for NATO. Germany, which was the most powerful economic force in the EU, didn't want to join the US, but got bribed with the promise they could rearm themselves. Schultz, who was is a socialist, supposedly, and but wasn't elected by much, is much more popular with the conservatives now who are suspicious of a socialist. And they can now join NATO and rearm and have promised to buy $100 billion worth of armaments from the United States. It's obviously benefiting here. And Germany will become not only the economic, but the military leader of Europe. So in this, these mega political readjustments is what we're seeing under the cloak of a propaganda barrage I've never seen. And suddenly, for the first time in all these invasions, there's what always happens in an invasion. Who's home when you bomb? Women and kids. The men are out fighting in Ukraine or they're hiding because they're conscripted. Nobody, no male is allowed to leave Ukraine. So it's not just nobility, it's law. So they're either hiding or fighting. And we are being treated to these scenes of the barbarism of war, which is always there. But this is bizarre. And what it is, I think, is the world trying to realign as the United States empire fails. And they're certainly fighting it, but they're fighting it to the last Ukrainian. Those people will die. Right. Because they don't want World War III. We never fight anybody with an air force. And we don't want to start fighting a nuclear partner. A nuclear partner with an ally with the most populous country in the world with enormous, you know, military. And so we're seeing these powers fight it out sort of the way they did in World War I, but it's being disguised as the fight for truth and goodness and democracy 
against barbarism. And I will agree, war is barbaric. All these attacks have been, all these invasions have been. But I think we have to look at why this one, what is going on? And I think the United States is at a time when we'd have to decide, stop being the world's cop and save our own people and save our planet or keep these bogus fights going on with other people as pawns in this deadly game. And that's what I want to talk about because I'm struck it's the first invasion that's been so covered and war is always horrible. What do you think? Well, I I agree with you 100%. I think it's a tragedy that's befalling Ukraine. Yes. Uh, I think Putin is a bad guy. Mm-hmm. I think we knew he was a bad guy back in 2000, 2014, when we were provoking him by encouraging the Ukrainian people to turn west and join the EU and and join NATO. I think we made a promise to them that we can't keep. We're not willing to keep. It's too dangerous to keep. The reality is that we can't go to war with a nuclear power. That's why North Korea, we, we that's why North Korea, you know, we can't do anything about North Korea. And that's why we didn't invade Pakistan after 9-11 because they have a nuclear bomb. They were the ones who were harboring Al-Qaeda. You know, uh, we found Osama bin Laden in, what was it, Abbottabad? That was, we found Osama bin Laden hanging out in Pakistan, not Afghanistan. So we, if we're going to blame anybody for 9-11, don't blame Afghanistan. Blaming Afghanistan is like blaming Iraq, but Pakistan has nuclear weapons. So we have to pick on somebody who had nothing to do with 9-11 and destroy them. But... I can see how you get into the the C-suites of our corporatized government and they can explain to you why we have to go into Afghanistan and Iraq, even yes. though yeah. even though, you know, it's it's oil, it's the Straits of Hormuz, it's you know, we gotta go into Ukraine because the Black Sea is whatever. And whatever, you know. And, and you sit there and they talk you into uh, why two million people have to die in order to save 50 million. Also, the people who bombed the World Trade Center, all of them but one were from Saudi Arabia. Right. However, we installed that horrible dictator who chops people up who disagree and uh, we want that oil deal. And so they were absolved. And in fact, in that Bush, in the Fahrenheit 9-11 by Michael Moore, they talk about how Bush flew out some of the Saudis from the United States on special jets because they're buddies. I mean, really, this What is so striking and what I hope Americans see is the extent of the propaganda 
So what is, I don't watch CNN or MSNBC. I find it stupefying. And so I, it bores me. I, I hate, I, it's not like, it's not that I'm a snob. I mean, I, I, it's not like, oh, I can't watch you. I just find it a, a complete waste of time. How much propaganda are we seeing on CNN and- Huge, and huge. We're seeing, you know, and hearing interviews on all the stations, NPR, CNN, WNYC, whatever it is, interviews of Iranian mothers who feel patriotic but have had to protect their children. Ukrainian People, mother, Ukrainian. Ukrainian, yeah, I'm sorry. Right, right. People who've been injured. The injustice of it, so they should have democracy. You know, we leveled the most advanced society in the Middle East, Iraq, where 40% of the professional jobs were held by women because uh, the imams were destroyed there. Wonderful. And so women could thrive. And I think we're being inundated because they're disguising their mission, which is fighting for the continuation of American empire and sending billions of weapons, therefore enhancing the already bloated profits of the war machine. And the United States is first in only one area of manufacture, and that's armaments. Right. So this deal, $100 billion to Germany, and sending all of these ones over to Ukraine. And American people are saying, wait a minute, why do we have the worst record on COVID in the world? What's the matter here? Why are we spending that? Why aren't we stocking up for the next pandemic, which is sure to come, which they're not doing? Why don't we have what all of Europe does? Universal childcare, universal health care, universal elder care. What's going on here? And I think what he hopes to do, like every war monger, is to get his people passionate to save Ukraine, when most Americans can't even find it on a map. Right. It's like wag the dog, you know, like, whoa, this enormous propaganda bit blitz, and we shouldn't be fooled. Now, I'm against all war. I really am. It's a barbaric, horrible thing. But in you know, really, what is what is this? And someone should see through it. So what, what is the agenda? So if Bernie or you were president, could you have stopped the invasion? What could we have done? Yeah, uh, because what he could have done is what they um, Russia tried to get them to do to the last minute to protect those northern republics. 14,000 people have been killed by the fascist movement from right. Ukraine. It's not all of the movement against invasion, but there is a large fascist contingent that goes and murders people in the Russian republics, which have always spoken Russian traditionally and wanted to ally with Russia, to allow them to continue and declare that Ukraine will be neutral like Finland. That's what they wanted. And that seems reasonable, not to have the last country with 1,500 miles on their border be armed with missiles that could get to the Russian capital in five minutes. I can see why they were upset and frightened. And actually, Putin, who I really hate, I mean, 
he did appeal, he did tell the UN that he was going to invade, that he saw no choice. And I think, you know, I think this is a terrible travesty and that we should let them be neutral, save those people's lives. In fact, force them to be neutral. Right. I think everybody should be neutral, to tell you the truth. The, you know, we do pick sides and who we like and who we don't like sometimes informs our ideology. I want to play you a clip of Jason Miller on the horrible Steve Bannon show that he has on Sirius. Jason Miller was Donald Trump's uh, press spokesman during the 2016 campaign, and he worked on the reelection campaign. He was... Uh, uh, in the communications office uh, during uh, the early years, I think, of the, uh, the the Trump administration. I know that he had a uh, quit because he had an affair with somebody uh, in the Trump campaign and uh, had a child with her. And then he had a mistress while he was working over at CNN and he had to quit CNN because... Even though he's against abortion, Jason Miller allegedly sneaked and what are they called? An ab abor abortion face? The, the thing that kills a baby. An abortifacient. Abortifacient. They've got a baby, a fetus. Uh, he sneaked an abortifacient into his mistress's drink, allegedly. These are horrible, horrible people, right? Yes. So, you know, if I'm going to pick a side, I'm going to side with anybody but this guy as well as Donald Trump, as well as Steve Bannon. Here is Jason Miller uh, talking to Steve Bannon. Every single death that we have seen in Ukraine over the past month is on Joe Biden, it is on Hunter Biden, it is on the Biden family crime syndicate. So when you hear that uh, coming out of this monster's mouth, yeah. you go, okay, then I'm on the side. I'm on the side of Joe, Joe Biden. How could that be true? Yeah, but even a broken clock is right twice a day. You know? Right. Uh, how much blood? For, forget the stuff about Hunter Biden, although that is another uh, that is a censored story that we should be it talking sure about. We should be talking about that. It's amazing how the media. Oh, they cooperate so you know, it's so interesting. It's a particular American corporation. You don't need a dictator. You just need advertisers not to advertise because that's what they run on, the money, right. which becomes the tyrant, right. capitalist money. Some people wrote to me because we talked about Hunter Biden's laptop and the, the New York Times had to acknowledge that there was something there, that the laptop did belong to Hunter Biden and mm -hmm. that they were in denial. And we had 50 intelligence chiefs from the Obama administration insisting that there was no there there and who yeah. could trust Rudy Giuliani. But it turns out, at least according to The New York Times, that it was Hunter Biden's laptop and these pictures and the communications from Hunter to financial suitors talking about the big guy getting 10 percent yeah it's all 
real, right? This is not manufactured by the Russians. Well, it doesn't sound like a conspiracy, no. Well, not. the only conspiracy is of silence that we saw yes. in the media, right? That's right. That's right. The conspiracy of not only silence, but repression of that story. So we don't, you know, we don't really know about it. It's not, it's, not, it was, it's not officially censored, as you just said. No, Fox, Fox ran with it. Uh, I think uh, Tucker Carlson ran with it. I think some AM shock jocks ran with it. Nobody was officially saying you cannot discuss Hunter Biden's laptop. But the mainstream media, as you pointed out, if they want to make money, they're going to leave Hunter Biden and his laptop alone. alone. That's right. Or you don't get any advertising. How much blood does Biden have on his hands uh, because of Ukraine? Uh, could he? What could he have done to to stop this? He could have look. He could have said, "Look for world peace. I will go back to the Minsk Agreement that they all agreed on in 2014." Obama canceled plans for NATO to um, appeal to the Ukraine because he saw it was too dangerous. That was smart of him. They could say, let's reinstate the Minsk agreement between Russia, United States, and Europe that Ukraine is neutral. That makes sense, like Finland. Cannot take a side cannot have armaments from anyone. I also do want to remind people that in the 60s, when um, I think it was Khrushchev was installing armaments and missiles in Cuba, which was 90 miles from the United States. We didn't share a 1,500 mile border, but it was on 90 miles away. Uh, FDR, not FDR, JFK, risked World War III to stop that. It was right. too close to us. Well, we have ringed Russia, and this was the last place. And I think it would have been easy for Biden, maybe not for his weapon, the weapons manufacturers, but for Biden in terms of the American public to say we cannot risk World War III. Therefore, this is a neutral country. Right. Right. That would make a lot of sense. Dr. Harriet Fraud is a hypnotherapist, a psychotherapist who treats mental illness through the prism of our capitalist society. How do people contact you? Well, I treat it through people's personal feelings, including the, the environment that they live in. So it's not just in your head. It's also right. where around you. H-F-R-A-A-D at gmail.com or at my website, harrietfraud.com. Great. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. We love you. We love you. Do you know that Henry got, Henry Huckamacki got married over the weekend? Oh, really? Yes. Nice. Yes. We're going to throw a bachelor party here. Oh, that's nice. I'm going to be the stripper, unfortunately. So it's not. Well, that sounds cute. Okay. I hope it's televised. Thank you, Dr. Fraud. Okay, thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. When we come back, Professor Adnan Hussein joins us. We do not have Professor Mike Steinel. We don't. He's taking Monday off. 
but we do have some of his music. We'll be right back with Professor Adnan Hussein. Chairs in the specimen shop. The back and outdated don't ever seem to stop. The man went down cause his heart gave out. Get back to work, we heard them shout. They said the EMTs are common, that's what they're for. And life slipped away on the cement floor. The bookstores are all gone away Got me some books, I'll read them someday Right now I got to make my raid and all these extra shifts If I can make it to Christmas Eve The kids will have nice gifts And the big boss will have more money So he can go up into space But there still won't be no chairs In this Bessemer place Last year we had a meeting and they made us go They gave us all pins and said, vote no But maybe this year Union can give us a little more And put some chairs on this Bessemer floor I'm hoping the Union might make things right some days I just don't have the strength to fight. This plant down here can take its toll. It'll break your body. It'll crush your soul. Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop. And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop. AmazonLaborUnion.org support Christian Smalls and his efforts to finally unionize an Amazon fulfillment center out on Staten Island in JFK, out by JFK Airport, the great Christian Smalls. Let's go 
to Professor Adnan Hussein. He is the chairman of the religion department. Sorry to keep you waiting. We're 10 minutes behind. You are the chair, just to remind you, sometimes you forget that you're chairman of the religion department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And you're also the host of the Mudgeless podcast. Your most recent guest, I believe, was Dr. Juan Cole and Gorilla History with the recently betrothed Henry Huckamacki. We missed you at office hours. I understand there was soccer practice. Soccer matches. So, yes. Um, oh, soccer busy, matches. Busy. Yeah. But I managed to make it back uh, from uh, Montreal uh, for Valley Vox uh, Theater, which had a wonderful screening on Saturday of a fantastic political film. If you didn't join us, you should still go watch the film Z by Costa Gavras from 1969. And it's, um, I think, has a message. We didn't talk so much about it, but... I think it has a message that's relevant in some ways to our time. We talked about some components of that, but it's uh, also very much um, uh, an anti-war film, and it really captures some of that uh, 1950, late 1950s, 1960s global concern about nuclear war and the effort on the left uh, to encourage uh, nuclear disarmament, uh, which as we know was a powerful protest movement up through the 1980s. And right. um, unfortunately we're witnessing an era where there's a real rollback of some of the gains of that period of, of organizing and of movement. You know, uh, Trump uh, canceled the, uh, intermediate uh, nuclear forces uh, treaty. And of course, this followed George Bush's, you know, cancellation of the or pulling out of the ABM treaty. So, you know, when we're talking today about, you know, the situation of Russia, Ukraine and of the US and NATO's posture, uh, placing us in potential conflict if we have a no fly zone and this sort of thing with another with a nuclear power, we're actually a lot closer to uh, th that, those situations because we've canceled and pulled out of a lot of treaties and some of the mechanisms that would have been in place to, um, you know, through diplomatic means, um, bring down the collective uh, animosity and temperature uh, have, been, um, have been undermined over the last few years of, of U.S. policy. Yeah, we were talking about this, uh, that we all assume mutual assured destruction is the, the currency, that we won't attack you because you can attack us, so we better just learn to get along. As you mentioned, we pulled out of these anti-ballistic missile treaties, and because of the Star Wars defense initiative, this fantasy... Right that we could shoot missiles out of the sky when in fact, not only cannot we cannot shoot ICBMs out of the sky, the, the, the failure rate for these tests is just abysmal. The, the Patriot missile that we plant in Poland, that we gave to the Israelis during the first Iraq war, they don't work. Nobody's willing to admit that they don't work, but they do these Patriot missiles do not work. All they do is antagonize 
Russia, or if we plant them as we pivot to the Pacific, they, they antagonize the Chinese. The, the suggestion that we could ever shoot a nuclear tip missile out of the sky is, is and always has been a fantasy up there with the Maginot Line. It just it can't happen. And so we just have to get along with Putin. He's a bad guy, but he's got nuclear weapons. Yeah, it's 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 unfortunate how this works in the world. Um, you know, good things don't always happen to good people and bad things don't always happen to bad people. It's, um, you know, um, we can't I, I think it's it's uh, somewhat silly and cartoonish to just look at it. I think, you know, morality and ethics have a huge role to play in how we should look at the world and what we should aspire to. But I think it's also silly to characterize a complex geopolitical circumstance entirely through some kind of uh, good guy, bad guy moral paradigm. And unfortunately, I think too much of that is guiding at least public dis discourse. I'm, I hope that, you know, there are more realistic calculations uh, and tempered, nuanced perspectives um, at the higher levels. But then again, you have... Um, you know, the president of the United States making somewhat rash remarks. I'm sure it's already been commented on today. Um, rash remarks in his speech in Poland, um, you know, loosely saying in an, a vernacular way, you know, that Putin's got to go. Yeah, he let me. Cannot... I, have a, I, I have a clip. Let, let's play. Oh, perfect. It. Yeah. I've been wanting you to do your clips so that we could comment on yeah. them. Yeah. So let me play. This is our president. Well, it would be not hang on. Okay, here we go. This is our president. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia, for free people refuse to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake. This man cannot remain power. So that uh, today he took it back. He, he said that it was personal. It wasn't policy that he he stood by his comment that Putin should be removed. But he was only expressing the moral outrage that I felt he wasn't speaking for the United States. Well, F your moral outrage, Joe. <laughs> there, you know. Uh, what yeah, that's you, what we need a president for is moral outrage, but not to actually speak for the United States government. Right. I mean, right. You know, that's right. just that's let the permanent, uh, you know, permanent uh, security establishment do that. You know, right. we just have a figurehead who's supposed to, you know, uh, channel our feelings <laughs> and our, you know, moral, you know, ideas, but not actually be responsible for policy. I mean, this is kind of a silly point. I mean, what it exposes is that, um, you know, maybe he was speaking off the cuff. Perhaps there have been discussions. And in the context of talking about the horrible, you know, condition of Ukrainian refugees and people who are dying, that um, you might, uh, you know, react and respond to that. I mean, I can understand that. That's a very, you know, human thing. 
Um, but it does certainly confirm suspicions that Putin has had, I think, that the U.S. policy is one of regime change because they've observed it, you know, over the last couple of decades uh, as an aspiration and not just an aspiration, but, an, you know, actions by the U.S. government. Whether it is a question of um, direct military invasion or these color revolutions, you know, that has been an active policy of U.S. government to promote uh, regime changes um, around the world um, that we're so never that happy with when, when either we, we bring in if we bring in somebody, they're just as bad. They're, they create bigger problems, i.e. Saddam Hussein. Well, yeah, it's it's not only is it often not successful in actually achieving regime change. I mean, there are a lot of failed attempts, you know, uh, that we don't hear a whole lot about. But, uh, you know, these things don't always work. But even when they work, um, you know, decapitating the state, trying to remake it in, you know, an image of a neoliberal, you know, rules based international order and, and try and promote liberal democracy by these extraordinary and external means. It doesn't work. It creates chaos. You know, there was this, you know, grand ideological idea that you could remake Iraq society. And instead, what they unleashed was pure chaos when you destroyed the institutions of the state. So it's not even a question that sometimes people think, oh, you can't get rid of the strong man at the top of this military dictatorship because then there'll be chaos. It's also that there was an active idea of trying to destroy the Iraqi state. And, um, you know, it led to, you know, misery, utter misery. And that, of course, was also the case in Syria, you know, promoting the civil war, Libya, absolute disaster. And so, um, you know, these regime change attempts um, are not only wrong and they violate the sovereignty of other other peoples, but they create disaster and destruction. And, you know, maybe that doesn't matter so much. Maybe the U.S. doesn't really care about the consequences uh, because they're doing these for other reasons. And this is what I fear sometimes about the Ukraine situation is that we have um, a U.S. Uh, you know, administration that seems perfectly willing to encourage um, resistance to perhaps undermine. And maybe there was some something to Biden's remarks. You know, perhaps the policy is to try and undermine a, a quick diplomatic solution, but to keep this going, to bleed Russia, to, you know, have a chance to really enforce, uh, uh, you know, and try out a real draconian Ukrainian regime right. of sanctions, you know, to um, try with out. the world. Yeah, having the world support behind it. It's like, well, we could reshape this and, you know, really put in place uh, some sanctions in a new way, make them stricter recover you know the argument for the need for nato um you know there are a lot of like geopolitical potential geopolitical benefits right. for some people's calculations out of this and you know if it means that the ukrainian people have to go through an awful war that's extended beyond what you know you know could be resolved by diplomatic means you know maybe they're not so worried about that to try out is a a laboratory of neoliberal uh, 
rule that that, that this the neoliberal world order is threatened and these economic sanctions i think are a way for davos to reclaim its status and 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 we can celebrate if we ignore all the the dead people they're they're trying out these economic sanctions to to prove that we don't have to commit troops all we have to do is shut down russia's economy and there'll be forever peace now no one will ever try to go to war or invade another country because the world will just close them off and they're saying let's see if that works and if it works they will sell it as a a triumph for the neoliberal world order that's 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 right except you know what's funny is um this is an experiment that's run been run many times and it hasn't really worked i mean there's a study that i saw that suggested that sanctions and the threat of sanctions have only ever worked one third of the time and usually in minor conflicts and usually when you're dealing with a small power that is confronting sanctions from you know the global community uh, and there's actually a very this is a very interesting topic to me this whole kind of use of the economic weapon uh, you know often uh, as an easy apparently easy since it doesn't involve you know deploying troops as an easy alternative to war. Um, and it actually has a long history. There's a new book uh, out um, just here in 2022 um, called The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War by historian Nicholas Mulder, and it studies um, basically the uh, period of the interwar, World War, well, including World War One through to uh, World War Two, as when the modern sanctions regime was really invented and developed. Um, and one of the conclusions, it seems, of the book, I haven't finished reading it, um, but one of the conclusions uh, seems to be that um, sanctions that were seen as an alternative to war and as a more humane, um, you know, mechanism actually, you know, have proven to be extremely severe. They are just another adjunct to modern warfare and that what they've done is blur the boundaries between peace and war mm -hmm. and made uh, the environment one one um, of continuous and constant war. It may not through, be through military means, but at least through uh, the devastating consequences that the sanctions as a, as a mechanism of war can be deployed, um, you know, all the time, basically. Right. It's kind of like the opium wars where you, where you get people addicted instead to debt or, or, or American goods or the neoliberal money and then threaten to cut them off and they uh in in the privacy of the situation room is this what they're thinking that they really they don't see this as a bad thing economic sanctions for the, the russian people they think if 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 you starve the russian people somehow They'll have the energy to rise up and overthrow Vladimir Putin, even though they have no food and medicine. 
Well, that might be the theory. And I think that's, um, you know, how they've been deployed. You know, the period of maximum pressure on Iran uh, by the Trump government uh, after withdrawing uh, from the Iran nuclear deal, um, you know, was was articulated explicitly in those terms as like, we'll make it so bad that, you know, people will get rid of you know, their uh, government, the Islamic Republic. That doesn't seem to happen, um, but it does uh, punish uh, the people for the policies uh, and crimes of uh, their rulers. And, um, you know, that's one sure way it seems to um, stimulate nationalist response and a sense of collective support for these regimes. You know, it hasn't worked in Cuba. Um, it hasn't worked in Iran. It hasn't worked in Russia in the past. I mean, Russia was already the second most sanctioned country, um, you know, even before the it didn't Russian work in invasion. Iraq. It didn't work in Iraq. And it didn't work in Iraq either, which is why we ended up having the, you know, Iraq war and Iraq war invasion in 2003. So that's often the rationale that but it's a very cruel and brutal, um, you know, punishing. It's it's collective punishment, essentially. It's right. And that is actually a war crime. You know, so the sanctions regime uh, puts in place and implements a principle that the Geneva Conventions declared a war crime, which is collective punishment, because what did the Nazis do? Oh, there was one partisan or one resistance figure in a village and they would just like wipe out the village and torture people as a whole because they had among them, you know, um, somebody who was resisting Nazi rule. So that was explicitly declared a war crime after the war. And the logic of the sanctions is essentially to punish people for uh, the decisions of their rulers. Now, you know, Iraq and Syria and uh, Libya, when they were under, uh, you know, and even if we're saying that Russia is authoritarian, it's not a real democracy and all of this, although, you know, to be honest, of course, Putin is an elected leader. But if we have complaints about it not being a real democracy, why would you hold the people responsible for their government and the decisions of their leaders when you claim that they don't have a proper say in the governing of their affairs. And that certainly is the case in these military dictatorships uh, in in the Arab Middle East. And yet, you know, you know, we're, we're comfortable with punishing the people for, for, you know, for that. But we're always avoiding responsibility ourselves. We voted George Bush in again, you know, after the right. Iraq war had already turned into a disaster. Right. I thought for sure Kerry would win. Uh, there was no way after spending all these billions, not achieving in goals, creating a mess of Iraq, that an unpopular war would bring down George Bush. And, you know, but we don't want people to blame us Americans for the decisions of our government when we're supposedly a democracy and we had a chance to vote out George Bush at that at that time. Uh, but we'll hold, you know, other people accountable for the dictators, dictators that rule them. So what do you what do you think it's going to take for America to put boots on the ground in Ukraine? Biden let it slip to the soldiers, the NATO soldiers, that they will see the Ukrainian people left behind. And then he walked that back. He doesn't have any plans of sending troops in to 
defend Ukraine, right? I mean, I'm going to assume we have special ops fighting uh, in Ukraine, but uh, there's not going to be a level of destruction like we saw in Syria, where it just becomes so in, unacceptable that the American people will demand that we go in. I mean, we are being fed. Yeah, we're being fed a lot, an awful lot of uh, negative views of Putin as the boogeyman, as a Hitler, as a real danger to the world order. But, you know, it's far away. I mean, I know I've seen lots of uh, Ukraine flags out and people want to express solidarity. And, you know, why not? I mean, these are people who are suffering and we're against wars. And that's why we want a diplomatic solution. Uh, but I can't see... Um, countries like the UK. I mean, there are volunteers who are going. That's going to be its own dangerous situation as these soldiers of fortune and um, mercenary type figures in the far right world who see this as a, a rallying cause and an opportunity to gain genuine military experience and, and training. That could be very right. dangerous. But in terms of official military involvement, I think it would be very unpopular. So, But what if I'm the attacks... Moldova or Hungary or Poland. You know, then there Article will be five. a kind of collective Article NATO five. response. Um, you, you know, then there will be, I think, a collective NATO response. I think this is a different situation. I mean, we saw that um, Russians, uh, you know, had a military intervention in Georgia. That was in 2008 to, um, you know, uh, deal with, uh, again, a kind of similar situation of westernization and a change in regime the color revolution, you know, that that happened, putting in place a very pro-Western uh, government um, right on their borders, uh, you know, and they reacted in that context. And, you know, they've reacted here in the Ukraine, I think, again, very unwisely. And of course, you know, criminally to, to start a war, this is terrible. But um, I don't think that there's a lot of evidence at this point that Putin is some sort of insane figure this to me is a big miscalculation uh on his part but i don't see him as somebody with um those kinds of aggressive ambitions and certainly the reaction of the world and the economic sanctions i think um you know, I, I, I don't think it's it's realistic uh, that this is a part of a march to roll back, you know, the end of the Warsaw Pact to reestablish something like the Warsaw Pact. Um, that's I, I don't think that's realistic. And also, I think, you know, one of the things that's happened is, is that it's led Germany to start spending one hundred and twenty billion dollars on you know, military you know, and military spending. And essentially, we're seeing the rearming of Germany. Now, that could be quite, you know, dangerous. Brings back um, memories. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a real concern. I mean, I think that's partly the reason why, um, you know, uh, after the dissolution of the of the of the Soviet Union, there was a concern about the extension of NATO further. And, you know, they, this was the price for, you know, this was the bargain for allowing a united Germany. Right. That's really what was happening is that we'll right. give up on a socialist East Germany. 
the DDR, um, you know, so that Germany can be united, but it essentially, you know, can't be uh, the launching pad for extending, you know, NATO into into the east. That was the sort of security bargain and guarantee. But now if you have the rearming of Germany, uh, that is really, I think, going to be interesting to see. And it's going to be interesting to see whether the European Union, under the auspices of Germany as the major, you know, hegemonic regional power in, in, in the European Union, starts spending militarily and tries to develop its own uh, foreign policy, its own military and security policy. Angela Merkel, it seemed, was willing to deal with Russia. Um, now, um, you know, the calculus is, is different. It seems that, you know, NATO has been reinforced, but if Germany does spend all of this on, you know, its own military, is it going to try and develop its own kind of foreign policy position? That's going to be, I think, something interesting to watch. Putin, we're told, is not doing well in Russia, in Ukraine or Russia. What's his end game here? Uh, it, it feels like Zelensky has signaled that Ukraine will remain neutral, will not join NATO. He's expressed a willingness for some kind of federation with the Donbass region. I don't know what the story is with Crimea. If Putin pulls out and that's the settlement, what was the war? Why was it necessary? Why couldn't we have stopped Putin from invading by agreeing to that before he went in? Well, indeed. I mean, if that uh, turns out to be, you know, all um, he tries to get out of the bargain, you know, what's the end game? This is the the real key question. And we have to be thinking towards that. I read an interesting, you know, article in The Guardian that also posed what's the West's end game? You know, like, what do we want out of it? And this is my concern is that, uh, you know, I worry that if regime change is a stated aspiration, and even if you just reinforce Russian, um, you know, kind of fears about that, they're going to be much less willing to, uh, uh, you know, uh, negotiate with the U.S. It's going to be make it harder. It's going to possibly prolong the war. And that just makes the cost of a solution that much higher because, you know, Russia has to get more out of it. I think it might be possible. You know, it's essentially what you're describing is a return to that Minsk agreement, right? I mean, that's essentially what the Minsk agreement was. If the Ukraine, if Ukraine's government actually implements and enforces that, maybe there might be a solution. Um, I'm I'm hopeful. You know, there are the negotiations are supposed to be starting up again in Istanbul on Tuesday. Um, if that's Zelensky's p position, you know, maybe they might agree and we could see a, a, you know, an end to this. And I would hope that the United States would support that uh, and not, you know, try and, um, you know, make a diplomatic solution harder by insisting or encouraging Ukraine to insist on, say, the return of Crimea or other maximalist kinds of goals. Putin got bad intel. Did he think that the Russians would be welcomed as liberators? Is it possible that he w he was foolish enough to 
believe did Ahmed Shalabi find his way over to you know Putin's <laughs> camp and tell them that oh look we'll be we'll be wel- welcomed with uh, with roses and uh, sweets right yeah well, what was uh, he, it sounds what an was awful he lot like the U.S. Was, did he think that Russia could go in and I mean you can't occupy somebody else's country did did he actually think that Ukraine I guess he does think that Ukraine is not a separate country right Perhaps there's some element of that that he, you know, um, that he thinks that this um, orientation towards the West is of recent vintage and is culturally thin, doesn't have the deep roots that, you know, this long history that he's been fond of talking about in these recent speeches that he gave about Kiev and Rus in the ninth and 10th centuries. You know, he may have felt that he may have also, you know, felt that his goals, you know, were achievable, which might be, you know, uh, quick invasion, a couple of days, the Kiev government, you know, uh, goes into exile and he's able to replace it with a more palatable option. Perhaps he thought that would happen. Perhaps he thought, you know, well, the goal here is not to take over Ukraine uh, as a whole, but those areas where there are majority Russian speakers. The areas of the Donbass and, of course, also the land bridge for Crimea, since there was really, you know, very thin uh, connection um, to Russia. Just uh, and what you see when you look at those maps that show where Russian forces are, what they've done principally is enlarge Crimea. I mean, they were in Crimea. There was a you know military base, naval base there before the 2014, you know, annexation of it. Um, but there are even more, of course, you know, subsequent to that. And so they seem to have pushed and enlarged uh, that area, um, you know, along the coastline in order to make a firmer kind of contiguous connection, you know, with Russia. Those might be the territorial kinds of goals that he has. And he doesn't have in mind, perhaps, um, a larger scale you know, occupation, because that would truly be foolish. And I think they're already discovering that, you know, uh, if they had ideas of a very quick, um, you know, quick takeover of at least much of the country and the capital and so on, that that hasn't that hasn't panned out at all. Before you go, Assad, Syria, I think it was 2015 where Putin sent in troops and became an, uh, an official ally of Assad, Assad seems to have destroyed his entire country, but remained in office. What was it, 5 million Syrian refugees? Something like that. Uh, Close to 800,000 dead Syrians. But Assad stayed in power. And, you know, according to Thomas Friedman, that's a tough neighborhood and that Assad learned from his dad, you have to kill a lot of people to prevent even more people from dying. Is that Putin's endgame? Is that do you think it's possible that he he's decided that it's better to turn uh, Ukraine into Carthage, into Syria than than give up? Uh, You know, it's hard to say that would truly be, you know, horrific, um, but clearly. I mean, that is a lesson you could take away from Mm. Syria, isn't it? Well, I don't know if it's exactly parallel. I mean, um... in terms of 
you just keep killing. I mean, people. it seems like both sides don't have much regard for you know what happens to the you know to Ukraine. I mean, on the one hand, the U.S. seems willing. You know, we're you know the, all, all these countries in the West are letting these mercenary soldiers of fortune go. They're filling it with weapons, um, showing signs of trying to scuttle diplomacy, not being much concerned with um, the possibility of this war going on for a long period of time. And likewise, we have, you know, possibly a ruthless regime that sees its geopolitical interests in the region being of higher priority than, you know, the civilians um, of, of this of this territory. And that's the tragic situation. And that's what war unleashes, which is why it is disappointing, you know, not to see, uh, you know, more clear voices on the left encouraging diplomacy rather than just playing into the moral cartoon, you know, of the good guy and the bad guy. Let's be real. This is serious and there could be solutions perhaps on the table. We should be doing everything and encouraging everything we can to bring people to a successful peace deal that will you know, prove, um, you know, uh, or establish some stability and peace in, in, in this region. And it should be against the war. You were saying earlier about these American mercenaries who think they found their Lincoln Brigade and are going off to free the Ukrainians. It should be against the law for Americans to take arms uh, against another country uh, when it's not under the auspices of the Pentagon. You, you can't freelance overseas. Nothing good comes out of that it's a it, you end up getting recruited for far more nefarious projects i mean that's how kennedy got assassinated essentially we we outsourced the war against cuba and i think those are the people who ended up killing kennedy it's not good yeah i mean uh, i'm it's not clear where those groups are, but you're definitely fostering a kind of underworld of militarized um, people who don't see themselves uh, following the dictates of a particular government and their policy. You know, they're undisciplined actors. And this is what happened with Afghanistan is promoting the recruitment of a globalist jihad international from all these different corners of the uh, diaspora in the West to, you know, Arab countries in the region and training up a group of people who may have initially, you know, because all you heard about was the Russians are killing poor Afghan, you know, uh, kids. This is a terrible invasion. And indeed it was. But that ends up leading people uh, to become much more hardened you know, ideologically, and it's very with un, very unpredictable and devastating consequences, as we saw. Um, so, I, I'm 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 concerned about this. You know, this right. should definitely be a, a serious issue yes. um, for our government. Professor Adnan Hussein is chairman of the Religion Department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. He's also the host of the Mudgeless podcast that currently has Professor Juan Cole as a guest. And who is your most recent guest on guerrilla history? Well, uh, there was an interesting episode. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to be a part of the conversation, but Henry and Brett were, and it was with Marlon Ettinger, 
who's writing a book about Gaulism and uh, this extreme far right uh, character who's doing fairly well in the elections. Um, <laughs> And um, it's about the French elections, and it was fantastic. It's definitely worth listening to. Right. It, and also, you might listen to, uh, since the topic came up, about uh, Islamo-Gauchism and Macron's, you know, kind of characterization of a nefarious alignment between wokeism, you know, uh, and, um, you know, uh, you know, Islam and Muslims, essentially, in, in, in France, um, you know, we had an episode episode a year ago, episode nine of the Mudgeless on precisely this topic of Islamo-Gauchism under Macron. It looks like he's going to get reelected, though, right? Probably. Yeah, yeah, probably. What is that? That's next month for the first round. Well, I think it's yeah, it's early next month. And then there'll be this the you know second round because they have this system where there are 20 candidates and the top two then meet in a runoff election. But as Marlon Ettinger mentioned, you know, if Macron wins, it's really not going to be much difference between either him or um, Marine Le Pen. Their policies are essentially the same. Who is is the Jewish Nazi? Sorry, there's a Jewish Nazi. Which one is it? Is it who's running? He's a right. Oh, I don't. He's a right wing ultra nationalist Jew who's. Uh, oh yes, yes, yes. I mean, that's the figure who Marlon Ettinger's um, uh, uh, Marlon Ettinger's uh, book is about, um, uh, it's, it's, because he really sees himself as a Gaullist, and his name is just uh, I know, I know. escaping me. Sorry, he's an older broadcaster. And he's yeah, he that's right. He was a journal. I mean, he had like a column and he also had a sort of show and um, he comes. He's probably like from a Moroccan, you know, Jewish uh, family. Um, And his basic position is, um, hey, I've assimilated. Everybody has to assimilate to to, you know, French identity. Um, We can't have any of these. you know, people wearing hijabs and, right. um, you know, having a different we can't have this pro- separatism. We have we have Google. Uh, it's called Ann Lee, Professor Ann Lee. Ah. What's the name? <laughs> what? What, what no, is no, I don't I don't know the name. <laughs> oh, my God. The Internet is if Professor Ann Lee. It's like Zemmour or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I can't remember his first name. Yeah. Don't well, put me on the spot. I Well, you know everything. There's, yeah, right. <laughs> you, prof, Professor Adnan Hussein, back me up. Does Professor Ann Lee know everything? Is uh, Rarely does she not know. It's googly, I think. Yeah. You know? Yeah. She she is definitely a repository of of all knowledge. I mean, I knew something special in the chat. Every reference to history that I would put as an inside little joke to myself, she would get. So I was like, right. okay, this is somebody who knows everything I know and then a whole lot more. So, right. yeah. Uh, so some people have Google. Some people have DuckDuckGo. We have Professor Ann Lee, Professor Adnan Hussein. How do people follow you on Twitter? Oh, they they can follow me uh, at Adnan A. Hussein. Fantastic. So, thank you. Thank you. It's it's a, it's what a treat. Well, 
Let us now go to Peter B. Collins, Bay Area Radio Hall of Fame. But as always, plug Rahima.org for us, please. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Professor Adnan Hussein, the best way to say thank you is to go to Rahima.org. What is Rahima.org? That is the nonprofit started by Adnan Hussein's mom and supported by uh, the entire family. It's based in Silicon Valley and supports uh, migrants and refugees, new arrivals to this part of the world. And David, uh, I'm a fortunate guy. Um, I just got my tax return back from the CPA and uh, I'm getting a nice refund. Uh, don't know exactly when the IRS will cough it up, but I'm going to peel off a Benjamin and uh, donate it to Rahima.org. And I invite people to do the same at the level that is comfortable for you. Yes. Because we have a situation, and, and let me cite Ai Weiwei. He is the Chinese-born activist, filmmaker, painter, uh, just a, a remarkable man. And he uh, released a documentary uh, almost three years ago now uh, about the uh, displacement of populations all across the world. And before the millions have been displaced internally and forced to leave Ukraine, we had some 65 million people who were living somewhere that is not their home some of them in refugee camps in Jordan. Palestinians have been there for decades. Some more recently displaced from Libya, from Syria, from Iraq and Afghanistan, to name a few countries that we have responsibility right. for. Right. And it's been well shown, I think, uh, if you watch TV, you can see that those who have uh, left in a hurry from Ukraine have been warmly welcomed in Poland and Hungary, nations that neighbor <clears throat> Russia and that have authoritarian governments. These governments rejected refugees when they were brown and Muslim and when they were streaming in via uh, uh, Greece to the Southern European continent and then moving north. And the white Europeans being displaced from Ukraine are getting a much different reception. And I'm happy for the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to in any way suggest that they should be further punished. But this means that, for example, those who were airlifted out of Kabul, Afghanistan, during the months of July and August this year, are now not the freshly uh, um, uh, victimized refugees of the world. And we're already seeing that they're being kind of pushed back from top of mind. And in Britain, there are issues that have been reported we have uh, people who left Afghanistan, but who have not yet been brought to the United States. Uh, they're being held at military bases in uh, uh, the Emirates and elsewhere. And so my point is that if you would like to do something to help refugees, 
think of those who are not top of mind right now uh, in getting wall-to-wall coverage on on CNN and other American networks. So Rahima.org is poised to help um, uh, people like that. And I would just like to suggest that people uh, make a contribution, again, to the extent that you can, and recognize that uh, we have to do that because um, our government, even there are some well-intentioned Democrats who are trying to uh, provide the resources, but we know that uh, in in short order, uh, these people will be forgotten and just left to, uh, to their own devices. Well said, well said. We are told to... We're sold two competing thoughts at the same time. We're the wealthiest country in the history of civilization, but we can't afford it. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. pretty amazing. Let me play you a clip of the president of Poland. You were touching on this, but I guess I w- I'm going to... Uh, everybody was celebrating this man. Poles who are receiving guests, because this is the name we want to apply to them. We do not call them refugees. They're our guests, our brothers, our neighbors from Ukraine, who today are in a very difficult situation where 12 million people have fled their houses by the war, uh, by the Russian attacks. More than 3.5 million have already fled abroad. They cross different borders, but first and foremost, they have crossed the border with Poland. Today, we have got 2.5 million people in Poland. And the number is growing all the time. So that is the president of Poland, President Duda, Duda, all the live long day. I think (laughs) he shortened it to Duda. And everybody who saw that clip said, aren't the Poles fantastic? These are not refugees. These are our neighbors. These are our friends. Guests. Our guests. Our guests. Mm -hmm. But you're saying they they weren't so keen on the people of color from Syria. Well, um, uh, Hungary was more hardline about it. And I do want to point out that uh, Belarus was uh, uh, recruiting Muslim and Middle Eastern refugees to come, uh, be given a visa to migrate into Poland. Uh, and to Ukraine. And so not all of this is uh, as it appears. There have been some uh, manipulation of the refugee populations that have produced political backlash. But Hungary, under Viktor Orban, is the uh, clearest example where they built new fencing, they um, uh, deployed stormtroopers to block the path of uh, refugees moving northward. And they were the most aggressive and nasty uh, about uh, uh, rejecting the refugee populations of the last few years. We have, what, 200,000, 250,000 migrants along the southern border. Uh, We're not taking them. And we're, we're putting the Haitians on planes back to Haiti. I think we've taken in seven Ukrainians and five of them, last time I checked, were in private ICE detention centers. Yes. And, and they get, um, 
you know, I, I'm, how, how do you put this? Because this is all so uh, dark, but I am happy that Ukrainians who have presented themselves at the U.S.-Mexican border have been able to get the attention of advocates who intervened on their behalf. But think of the tens of thousands who escaped from Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, exactly. made that lengthy trip, rode the beast through central Mexico, uh, have walked hundreds, if not over a thousand miles. And we tell them, well, uh, you know, we've got this policy, uh, we blame COVID for it, but you remain in Mexico and uh, we'll think about your asylum request. And Biden has uh, given lip service to both the uh, endemic problems in Central America that prompt migration and to the hardships that the Trump administration imposed uh, on people presenting at the border. But uh, the news media has moved on, except for some right wing uh, networks, which, uh, you know, inconveniently point out that we have been deporting people, uh, as you point out, we've sent Haitians back to Haiti, despite the uh, clear uh, crisis there that makes it an unlivable place. Uh, and we deny uh, the guarantee of asylum that is present in our Constitution and act as if it is something that we can uh, uh, handle on a, uh, an optional basis. And so, yeah, we, we're as hypocritical as Orban. Yeah. I'm showing a picture in our Zoom room of migrants from Haiti down in Texas getting whipped by Border Patrol on horseback. Mm -hmm. And I was assured by Jen Psaki, that's not who we are. Keep hearing that's not who we are. That's who we are. We send the Haitians back and then Biden says we're going to and we should take in 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. We should. But we should also be taking in the the refugees from the countries you just mentioned. Uh, we need well, more people. And, and in this let country. me focus for a second on Honduras, because. There was a U.S.-led regime change operation there in 2009. It was directed by one Hillary Clinton. And she basically, uh, you know, had the sitting president who'd been elected escorted out of the country in his pajamas and uh, waited uh, for, I don't know, there was some period of time before Honduran law allowed the office to be declared vacant. And then we installed this drug runner and his brother, Zelaya, as the leader of Honduras. So we have, uh, you know, and, and Guatemala not only has an unstable government, but they have been ravaged by a combination of uh, drought and uh, hurricane-driven flooding and other devastation to the landscape. And, uh, you know, I, I believe we have an obligation to help our neighbors the same way that Poland uh, is helping its neighbor, Ukraine, right now. But these, these kinds of um, 
analysis are not offered in our corporate media. And I'll repeat what I said three weeks ago. I have recalibrated some of my views to catch up with developments in the real world. Uh, But when we look at American media, we are still being fed a lot of emotional human interest stories. And there are many victims of this war. My heart goes out to them, but it's being used to manipulate public opinion. And we've got Jake Tapper, who would have added those extra nine words to Biden's speech if he had had the opportunity. Tapper is the midday anchor on CNN, and he does one of the Sunday morning uh, political gas bag shows. And he has been over the top in advocating for a no-fly zone, even as he he interviews the approved generals who sit on a corporate board of a defense contractor and have close ties to the Pentagon, who are saying, Jake, uh, a no-fly zone is not indicated here. It would be very difficult to maintain. It would put the U.S. in direct confrontation with Russian uh, air assets. It would expand the war and bring us the thing that that Joe Biden has gaffed about, which is World War III. So on the one hand, Biden at times is showing a steady hand. He has managed to give new relevance to NATO. He has managed to uh, kind of reshape some of the differences between NATO members. You see, Macron is still reaching out independently, uh, and, and so is Schultz, the new German chancellor, to Putin. But they are not freelancing the way they were before the invasion. So Biden has had the right instincts and his hawkish team of advisors to try to rally NATO without actually committing NATO forces to a war unless a NATO country is attacked. But then Biden has brought in the red line. And consider what happened to Obama with his red line in Syria. Chemical agents or weapons that we consider to be poison gas. That's a red line. And if you cross it, I'm going to get really red in the face. (laughs) Well, last week, Russia crossed that red line the same way that we did in Iraq, twice in Fallujah. They deployed shake and bake. That's the soldier's term for white phosphorus. White phosphorus can be used in a fairly benign way to light up the sky so that you can see where your enemy is lurking. But when it is used at lower altitudes, it is a devastating chemical weapon. And so here is Putin trying to test, okay, Joe Biden, what's the trigger on your so-called red line? I have taken another page from the American military playbook and used white phosphorus. What are you going to do about it? What are all of those people with chestfuls of medals, <laughs> the NATO generals and the American generals, what are they going to do about it? And the loose lips that he has exhibited 
going back to the before the invasion when he talked about well you know if it's a limited incursion we we might just take it you know like a man then there was the dust up over the polish plains where it seemed like biden had green lighted poland to send migs directly to ukraine and then poland said well we're going to drop them off at an American air base in Germany. You deliver them. Right. And that led Biden to say, well, no, no, no. Well, well, we're not going to do that. And, and so then there is the loose talk about war crimes and about talking, describing Putin as a war criminal. Well, on the face of it, that is accurate. We have seen clear war crimes. We also have some events that need deeper investigation because they may have been uh, caused directly or indirectly by some of the Nazis in the Azov Brigade and other uh, units of the Ukrainian military. And in war, a lot of bad shit happens, and I'm willing to uh, accept that for the short term. But we do need long-term and honest investigation of what the Ukrainians have done. Putting that aside, uh, we, we have the, the issue that our intelligence, which was off about Afghanistan, right? All of our experts said that after we left at the end of August that the Kabul government was solid for at least six months. And by that time, <laughs> we'd, we'd be gone. But we now know that while some of the intelligence about Ukraine and particularly about Putin's intentions did turn out to be accurate, the central failure of our intelligence to date is that we expected the Ukrainians to fold in pick your short time frame, it was 48, 72, right. uh, you know, a week at the most. And so we see once again, these sequences of errors made by our experts, the same experts who fucked it up last time. And as Adnan was pointing out in the previous segment, David, the use of sanctions is something that feels good to those who impose them. I'm denying you the uh, luxury goods, the uh, uh, affordable affordability of, of essentials, but it's collective punishment aimed at a population that can't control right. its leadership or its government. And so... You know, the the last thing I want to leave an impression of is that uh, this is some sort of uh, apologia for Putin. That's not the case at all. But we are being denied honest and objective reporting on America's problematic approach to this conflict. And... You were asking Adnan about, you know, where does this go? And, you know, will U.S. troops eventually be drawn into this war? And the risk has been heightened by Biden's sloppy commentary, 
and his injudicious uh, ad-libbing. And, you know, he and Trump are incoherent in very different ways. <laughs> but the last coherent guy we had was Obama. And Obama presented a lot of problems, did a lot of things that I deeply disapprove of. But if he were the guy who went to that summit in Europe and visited Poland last week, he wouldn't have made these mistakes. Right. <laughs> right. And I don't think Trump would, you could talk him into, well, I don't know. Could Trump, I, I, Trump wanted to dissolve NATO. He was in Putin's pocket, no question. Uh, but I don't think Trump had any respect for anyone in the military that he could be talked into doing something other than killing Soleimani. But uh, is is what do you think would have happened had Trump been reelected? Putin would not have invaded Ukraine because Trump would now be dissolving NATO. There would be nothing for Ukraine to join. Correct? Well, uh, we still can't be completely clear on Putin's decision-making and his motivation. Right. And so if we believe that the expansion of NATO was the primary trigger for Putin's rage, you could argue a scenario where Trump would not have he, he would have agreed to uh, Putin's demands regarding NATO. Uh, and, you know, he he showed with his perfect phone call to Zelensky a few years back that he doesn't give any you know, right. two shits about Ukraine. Uh, so it, it's possible we might have avoided this. Yes. Yeah. But he's so erratic and mercurial. Um, I, I, I just wouldn't want to put any serious money on it. Yeah. And David, the last thing I'd like to mention is I <clears throat> alluded to this a little earlier, this call about war crimes. And this is the moment. And this moment will pass. But still, mm -hmm. this is the moment when America could stand up and finally sign the convention for the International Criminal Court to say we are no longer going to vilify this court in an effort to defend the indefensible actions of the United States since 9-11. We are going to stand up and face the music, and we are going to hold ourselves accountable the same way we seek to hold Putin and his generals accountable for atrocities in Ukraine. Right. This could be the moment of a turning point where we actually change the posture of the United States into compliance with the international order and the rule of law that we bloviate, bloviate about so frequently. And Bob Agelko, who is, uh, he's trained in the law, he's a longtime journalist who writes about legal affairs for the San Francisco Chronicle, he wrote a great piece that was in the paper today, headlined, U.S. has double standard on war crimes court. And it's this kind of reporting that is so rare 
You don't yeah. see Don Lemon or any of the other they'll say news anchors re- talk about this. They'll, they'll report that the Biden administration is thinking of bringing charges against Putin before the International Criminal Court. That has been a headline. I read and go, really? Because yeah. we're not signatories to the ICC. Shouldn't you also add that in your story? We're not signatories to the ICC because America fancies itself the police officer to the world, and we want qualified immunity. And we claim that we hold ourselves to account. And that is just a a huge pile of bullshit. Yeah. Because, you know, all the people who've been held accountable for our torture regime during the Bush administration. Yes. And I could go on, but uh, the point is made. Peter B. Collins. Thank you. Peter B. Collins, Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer, and you see why. Go to PeterBCollins.com for treasure trove of his radio shows, podcasts, and interviews. Thank you, sir. Always. David, I, I want to promise I won't wear this shirt again because the vertical gold stripes are really going crazy on the video screen. <laughs> are they? I, I can't. It's pretty cosmic, yeah. Oh, good. I'm getting a flashback to my days back in San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. My pleasure. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. We will be back after this. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comics too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show So get your ears on right, buckled in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Yes, it's time right now for the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Welcome back. Let us now go to Aurora, Illinois, where Professor Marianne Cummings is standing by. Besides being a particle physicist and a brilliant artist, and I do mean brilliant, although Lane is uh, nipping at your heels there. He's coming on. Oh, yeah, he is. Uh, You are also Parks Commissioner, a Parks Commissioner for Aurora, Illinois, and you have... uh, 
been talking since before our president took office about his uh, cognitive ability. Let me play you a clip of our president speaking to NATO and then the clarifications. But as I made clear, America forces are in Europe, not in Europe, to engage in conflict with Russian forces. American forces are here to defend NATO allies. Yesterday I met with the troops that are serving alongside our Polish allies to bolster NATO's frontline defenses. The reason we want to make clear is the movement on Ukraine. Don't even think about moving on one single inch of NATO territory. We have sacred obligation. We have a sacred obligation under Article 5 to defend each and every inch of NATO territory. Okay. Uh, It looks like a lot of things you said about him, I was uncomfortable hearing. Uh, Here. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia, for free people refuse to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. For God's sakes, Joe Biden, can he remain in power? Well, I mean, we had, I don't even know how to describe George W. Bush, fetal alcohol syndrome victim, but <laughs> not a bright oh, guy. I'm sorry. That... He would often uh, do these gaffes. In other words, once in a while, he would blurt out the truth. Right. <laughs> I mean, that, which is a gaffe. And, and, right. And so, you know, um, but I think Biden is just being hopped up by all of the, well, the people, all of the pro-war sentiment going on, and it's really kind of not good. I mean, there is like a collective psychosis that's just raging through this country and the Democratic Party. And, you know, How four sick. years of Russia Gate, and, and now it's just like we've got to like – the propaganda has been very infinite. It infantilizes the discussion about anything. Um, I just wanted to say one thing, and I'll let you speak. But uh, I was listening to uh, Stephen Cohen over the weekend. I mean, he's been dead for a couple of years. He was a contributor to the Nation. He was a scholar. Oh, he, he was, was married uh, to Katrina Vandu. He was married, right? And uh, he had written about, I mean, he'd written history about the Soviet Union, um, about the Bolshevik Revolution, about Russia. And he had an interview with Aaron Maté about two years ago that was just downright spooky. Because at that point, he was going in in detail about uh, the confrontation with Russia in Ukraine that was being pushed by members of the State Department under Trump. And he was and he was going through a lot of um, contentious, I mean, like confrontations, small confrontations 
in uh, off the Azov Sea near Crimea. He said, you know, any one of these things could have blown up into an outright war. What are people doing? He was talking about something um, in conjunction with that with Trump. He said, you know, um, this Russiagate has been damaging on many levels, but mostly because what happens if one of those incidents do blow up into something that we've got to have a president there who can negotiate a, a peace, you know, prevent a, a, a wider war. And he says, and I think people in the State Department and the Democrats won't let him do it. And he has to, you know, he has to go on about how much he despises Trump, like we all have to do, uh, which was obvious, but you have to do it before you're able to speak like an adult and say, look, this is very dangerous. This was over two years ago. And, you know, this is the kind of thing um, when you've got a State Department that has people in it who really believe our military can be used for regime change, not just for countries in our sphere, Monroe Doctrine-like, or the Middle East, but our big enemies, adversaries, China and Russia. They really think that we can destroy these countries. And as I said before, you probably could with the rest of the planet being right. in cinder. Right. So, you now, know. What is the... Peter B. Collins was on earlier, and he said Hillary Clinton was responsible for a coup in Honduras in 2009. And I'm thinking, well, Hillary Clinton wasn't our defense secretary. She was our secretary of state. Is that right. the, is, is that the job of a secretary of state? No, the job of a secretary of state is to be talking with everybody. And our current secretary of state, apparently, there is no contact with our, this is what I heard, maybe there is, but that there is no contact between the foreign minister of Russia and our secretary of state. And that's concerning. But, um, yeah, Hillary Clinton... Um, there was a gal, Berta uh, Caceres, who was actually assassinated. Well, but she was spoke out against Hillary when Hillary started running in 2015 because so many environmental activists had been assassinated. Prominent, prominent political figures had been assassinated. People were leaving Honduras. Um, and then she herself was assassinated. I, I think they... They brought, quote, some of the perps to justice. I, I have no idea if these were the people really responsible or not. But the problem was, um, you know, we had, we had created a mess in Honduras when Rachel Maddow, and I think I brought this up over a year ago because it was one of the few times I watched her show. She had Jay Johnson on, who had been uh, the national security advisor to Obama. And Homeland, Homeland Johnson, Security. Homeland Security. Homeland Security. That's right. Homeland Security. You're right. And three times he tried to, because they were talking about the refugees at the border and, you know, Trump's behavior, which is really just ICE and the, the, the institutions that have been going on for years. But it was horrible. It was like, it's horrible now. It was horrible before Trump. It was horrible during Trump. And he three times tried to. To interject, we have to start talking about Honduras and our policy down there. And three times, Rachel Maddow cut him off. I didn't see anybody else comment on it anywhere, but it was my, I said, my God, she just said, there must have been somebody screaming in her ear telling him, don't let him talk about Honduras. 
you know, so we got a problem there. But Hillary Clinton also famously with uh, Samantha Powers. Remember, like she was the one that called Hillary a monster when she was working for Obama. Well, both Hillary and Samantha, uh, Samantha Powers urged Obama to back the NATO invasion of Libya. Right. And that country is what a disaster! What what just what what just an absolute devastation of a country. They, so I they guess have two, they have right now two or three governments. Samantha Powers. Yeah. Uh, called her a monster in two, in the 2008 presidential right. campaign. Right. But I guess she joined the Monsters Club. The mo Yeah. Uh, we don't have anybody advocating for peace other than our generals. Lloyd Austin. It seems that... that you know, yeah, you, I, I'm glad you brought that up because there was a couple of articles that came out last week I had to bring them up, but there were two. One came out in um, in in Time, I think, or Newsweek to bring it up. But um, yeah, they were kind of giving a slightly different um, view for the uh, than the I would say the complementary view of the story were being fed nonstop. Um, I think the the title of the article was. Uh, was Putin could be causing way more devastation and death. Why isn't he? And what, so they were claiming that there was a contractor, an unknown analyst for the, the Pentagon's Defense Intelligence Agency saying that, you know, to making this, this leak. I think that's bullshit. It, I mean, he wouldn't be an unnamed person. They would know exactly who was leaking. I think this was very much an allowed leak. Right. And so, you know, he says the heart of Kiev, and this is what he's leaking, is barely been touched. And and almost all the long range strikes have been aimed at military targets. And this is another guy, a retired Air Force officer. He says we need to understand actual conduct. If we merely convince ourselves that Russia is bombing indiscriminately, which is the story, or that it is failing to inflict more harm because its personnel are not up to the task or because it is technically inept, then we are not seeing the real conflict. And they go on that way. And they said, you know, they really seem to be somebody who wants to stop and have and, and have a bargaining chip in his pocket when he goes back to what is essentially the Minx Accords and negotiates, you know, like a basically Ukraine neutrality. But these people say that they're really frustrated with the current narrative that it's like Russia is just being evil, it's demolishing cities, and um, that it's, uh, in, in, in summary, instead of being stalled, Russia is executing a methodical war plan to encircle cities and open up humanitarian corridors and leaving a lot of civilian infrastructure in place. However, and that's as really cautious. If you have NATO coming in and making it clear to Putin that this is going to be, you know, all win or all loss, then all of that constraint is gone. And of course, uh, Zelensky does not want to see, I'm, I'm assuming he does not want to see his country just turned into a parking lot. It's just, you know, just devastated with war. So the other article I wanted to bring up was as actually a Reuters article 
So there's these stories that, oh, they're, you know, Russia has crossed that line. They're using chemical weapons. But the article from Reuters said that the monitors on the ground have yet to see any concrete evidence that there are in the, that there is any biological or chemical warfare has been engaged. Okay, so there's two, again, there's two leaks essentially from the Defense Department in one week um, that counteracts, you know, the narrative we've been fed for a month. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm sure the narrative is extremely complicated. But, you know, it's odd that, yeah, it seems to be the generals and the Defense Department that are really trying to put the brakes on this, you know, gung-ho war attitude. And it's, it's, it's kind of sad. You were very involved in the anti-war effort in 2003. In 2003, in 1991, <laughs> I right. was, I've been protesting wars and incursions, you know, since college. And how does this compare to 2003 in terms of the consolidation of the media getting in line and narrow casting propaganda to get us upset about Ukraine, which we should be. We, we, yeah. but, but how does this compare to 2003? You know, you weren't allowed to mention Ukraine uh, during the Academy Awards. Uh, it got, they sneaked it in. They had a moment of silence, but, um, I can't remember what year it was, but didn't Michael, I mean, I think it was in 2004 or 2005, the Academy Awards. What year did... Um, it was 2000, I remember, Martin. Steve Martin was hosting the Academy Awards. It was 2003. Yeah. We were, it was 2003. The war had started, and Michael mm -hmm. Moore won for Bowling for Columbine, and he got up and said... Okay. Uh, there are a lot of fiction. I want to doc. This is a documentary, but there are a lot of lies. This war is a lie, and they played him oh, off. Oh, that's right. That okay, that was bullying for Columbine. He won, and, and, and he was but, vilified for speaking the truth about the war. I'm getting yeah. angry. I, I get angry yeah. because nobody apologized to Michael Moore. Nobody. I mean, he was right. Nobody apologized to us. I mean, I was called all kinds of things, you know, a terrorist lover. Oh, I love Saddam. Oh, why don't you, you know, why don't you like, you know, go to Iraq with your hero, Saddam. I'm going, how retarded, excuse me, yeah. I'm not supposed to even use that word. How yeah. dumb, right. you know, just, just what childish garbage all that was, you know? And, uh, and yet it's, and so it seemed though for a while that we were having some resonance, at least uh, there was enough people on the left and out marching, and there seem to be people joining us all over the world. Yet, uh, you know, our well, it wasn't so much Bush. It was our Democratic senators, like, you know, just, just basically ignored us. And I remember calling up Hillary Clinton's office, begging them, she's got to do this. She could be a real leader. And I'll tell you, I would have voted for Hillary with all the other garbage she has, if she had done that one thing, if she had voted against that war. But I remember the instant I turned against her, because uh, we were watching rerun of C-SPAN that day, my friend and I were watching the vote 
And when she voted, you know, for to give Bush war authorization, I turned to her and said, holy crap, she really is running for president. I, up to that point, I didn't think she was running for president. But yeah, you she know, she isn't there. A million people have to die so that she can prove her war credentials. They didn't want to get burned the same way they got burned in 90. Uh, the invasion when they gave the yeah, war authorization to Bush, a lot of Democrats oh, were yeah. against the war authorization. Kerry was. I even yeah. think Joe Biden might have voted. I, I think Joe Biden. I don't remember what Joe Biden voted I know Kennedy voted against it, and I'm, I'm almost certain Biden may have not voted, believe it or not. That can't be true, but I, for some reason I want to say he voted against the war authorization and that war was incredibly popular and they weren't going to get burnt again. The Democrats were not going to. Well, that war was incredibly popular and so was Pappy Bush, but his 90 percent approval rating just evaporated as the year went on. So and, and even at the time, I mean, we knew about the you knew about the conversation that our ambassador had with uh um, Kuwait, when they were complaining about the slant drilling, uh, to uh, ambassador to Iraq, who were complaining about the Kuwaitis slant drilling into their oil fields. And we considered, hey, this is a matter to be settled between you two guys. And so they basically gave the green light to, for them to go ahead and deal with it. And then suddenly there's this war. I knew about that at the time that, you know, the 700 babies and in incubators was very quickly debunked. I mean, it was, all that stuff was debunked. So, you know, if these Democrats had any kind of sense of leadership or moral core, they could have just, you know, flipped that very quickly. But no, they were just, you know, they, because they aren't those people. I had this idea back then that Democrats were somehow better than Republicans. And no, nope, <laughs> not that's uh, took a long time for me to really come around. And but as I was saying, with all of the anti-war marches, millions of millions of us on the streets. Once we started bombing, George W.'s approval rating rating shot back up to seventy percent. Right, right. Hey, this is interesting. I looked it up yeah. while you were talking. Uh, this is from Politifact. On January 12th, a sharply divided Congress. This is the first Gulf oh, War. Okay. Uh, a joint resolution was authorized to use United States armed forces uh, to enforce a November 29th, 1990 UN ultimatum that Iraq withdraw troops from Kuwait. So he had UN, the dad in the first Gulf War had UN behind uh, the order to get out of Kuwait. It passed in the Senate 52 to 47. Only 10 Democrats joined with all the Republicans in support of the resolution. Hmm. And Biden voted against the war authorization. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? Different Democratic Party yeah. back then. This was pre-Clinton. Also, there was still, I mean, lots of people were still friendly toward Saddam. I mean, you know, thank God for Oprah Winfrey showing that little clip of Donald Rumsfeld just a few years back 
<laughs> during the Reagan administration shaking hands. Well, we had uh, given him, I and mean, we had given him some chemical weaponry. I think it was sarin gas or something. I can't remember what it was. Pappy but, yeah, Bush, I mean, as bad as Pappy Bush was, mm-hmm. the UN wanted Iraq out of Kuwait. He did gin up the war. He lied about the incubators, but uh, he lied a little less than his son did, and he knew to get out. You know. Yeah, I mean, there were some people that wish, you know, that wanted to just go in. But even Dick Cheney, I think that he was Secretary of Defense mm-hmm. at the time. Dick Cheney did not think that we should stay. You know, we should. Right. I think also it was uh, on behest of our friends, the Saudis, too. The Saudis were very, very unhappy. And wasn't that, I think that's when we put an, a base, a, a military base in Saudi Arabia at right. that point. And that's what caused, triggered, that's what yeah. pissed off bin Laden. Yeah, right. So that's right. kind of. And they weren't allowed yeah, to leave. Yeah, you know, none of our uh, interference overseas have really led to any good aims, except for a few very rich military contractors. Right, right. How who do you... Uh, I'm sorry? Who appear to own, you know, both parties. Right. What do you think happens? Do you think Putin pulls out? What, what do you... How do you see this? I don't know. I think that um, I heard, God, who is the uh, for that the minister of fi- finance for Greece? He's no longer the minister of finance. Uh, for office, I think is his last name. I was listening to him and he was quoting uh, Lao Tzu, Art of War. Great. He said, you know, um, and he said something about to avoid if, if there's going to be a war where massive harm was going to be inflicted on you and your enemies. Give your enemies a golden bridge to retreat or something like that. I don't think that that's there. Anybody in the state department is listening, although there might be a few people in the defense department, but I think um, Zelensky is, you know, he's in a bind because, you know, he's allowed, there are, nasty right-wing neo-Nazi forces in this country whose representatives in in the parliament openly threaten him without any fear of reprisal. The head of these Ofsov, it's not called the battalion, it's the um, regiment, openly threatens him. Hmm. So, you know, he's got a problem. He's, uh, and many people, I think a lot of uh, 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 politicians there are kind of hesitate to go against what these guys want, but they're going to have to get back to the Minsk Accords. What he was doing late in November that was being described by the uh, the, the Kiev uh, Post, um, you know, there, there seemed to be very explicit, detailed protocols in place to start, you know, implementing the Minsk Accords and to you know, have both sides of that civil war, which is still going on, you know, back down. And I think if there is a way that we, they can see it as a big drawback, because they're not going to talk about all the troops. Many people talked about all the troops that were, you know, that Russia was having on the border of, of Donbass there, but 
there wasn't much talk of all the troops had, that had been moved at the end of last year in Ukraine to the other side of that border. Um, so if it could be made to look like the Russians are retreating, even though the Ukrainians are also retreating, but you emphasize the Russians retreating, but you basically pretty much go by uh, the, the original Minsk Accords, then you can, then I think there's a way out. I think, you know, you can have, they can spin a story that NATO stood strong and threatened and Russia retreated or something like that. I mean, skilled diplomats could come up with a narrative that can bolster, and then, but then you give Russia something, which is basically the kind of um, control or access it had to Odessa, to Crimea, Crimea for over 23 years after the fall of the Soviet Union. I mean, right. 23 years, there was a quasi-stable kind of situation where Russia felt that its security interests were concerned. Uh, Yanukovych, uh, Yanukovych, remember, had signed a deal, I think in 2010, which is partly why a lot of right-wingers got right-wingers upset in Ukraine, but uh, until 2045 for access to the base, to the military bases in Crimea. And there was this kind of joint, I, I don't understand the details, but basically it was kind of a, a joint administrative run Russia-Ukraine sort of situation in Crimea. Um, I think you get back to that. They probably get Mariupol. That's a whole other situation. And I encourage people to, uh, there are some articles in the Greek City Times, because they've actually been interviewing uh, Greek refugees. I think there's about 120,000 people of Greek origin was living, were living in Mariupol, a city of about half a million. So almost a quarter of the population. Hmm. And uh, boy, uh, they give, uh, again, they give a, different view of the Azov regimen that's there than what you're hearing in Western press. Um, they don't like the shelling. They hate the war. They had voted for independence, by the way, you know, early in the, uh, it, right after the coup, but that, you know, the, they were on the other side of that line in Dumbas. So, you know, they, um, anyway, it's, it's, it's a complicated situation. I think if, if the Russians take out the Azov regimen, from the reports I heard, they're using the citizens as human shields. I know there were reports uh, over two or th three or four weeks ago that they weren't, the Russians had set up a humanitarian corridor. The regimen was not allowing citizens to leave. But those are the stories coming out, you know, from the Greek side. Again, there's hardly any reporters. And there's one American reporter there, this Patrick Lancaster, who is on Facebook and uh, YouTube right now. And he, I mean, he's been there because he, as I said before, he had, uh, I'd been following him a few months ago. I found him. He is an American, married to a Ukrainian, who's living in uh, the, who was living in the Donetsk province. You know, he'd been living in Donbass here and he'd been reporting from the war for several years. So uh, anyway, um, but this is the fog of war. It's like everybody's scrambling to like get control of the narrative. And unfortunately, four or five years of, you know, this 
uh, almost Trump derangement syndrome on the part of Democrats in this hopped up like, you know, Julius. They, they want to kill a journalist over this, too. That's just incredible. Um, I mean, this has done so much damage to the political conversation in this country. Um, well, Joe know. Biden has proposed a, a new budget. He wants to spend five point eight trillion dollars. This is today. He wants to spend $5.8 trillion in our next budget. He wants to give a 10% increase to our military, citing threats from Russia and China. And he also wants to tax millionaires who are worth more than $100 million. And he wants to tax their liquid assets. In other words, from what I've been reading, he wants to tax their stock holdings, which never get taxed until you sell them. He wants to start taxing stocks before they're sold. This will never get passed. What will get passed, the millionaire tax won't get passed, but they will give the Pentagon a 10% raise. That they will do. Yeah, and what else And the money happening? will not oh, go to yeah. our troops. It will not go to our troops. It will not go to the VA. It will not go to the families of our troops. It will go to the arms merchants. Yeah, Raytheon will be doing great. I mean, you know, what else is happening? You know, like uh, people who are uninsured will have to start paying like 125 bucks for their COVID tests now. Yeah. You know, we are, uh, we've, we gutted like, they pulled $13.5 billion for, uh, out of the budget for continued testing, for continued community, community clinics and vaccination. And uh, because I guess it's over. Right, right. Oh, uh, by the it's, way, it's I'm, I'm looking at the budget. Uh, Biden wants to spend $6.9 billion to give to NATO. And he wants additional billions. We're already spending billions. We've spent trillions on anti-ballistic missiles, which do not work, including the Patriot missile. There is no evidence that the Patriot missile knocks these incoming missiles out of the sky. But that doesn't mean Raytheon won't get their cut. The president is requesting we spend billions to detect and intercept missiles from countries like North Korea or Iran. They're still selling this idea that Raytheon can knock missiles out of the sky. The Patriot missile doesn't work. It doesn't work. But um, that doesn't stop us from spending that was, billions. Sort of, it did, effectively, if it was really effective, there would go mutual assured destruction and there would go any restraint. You right. know, if we really started, if this war in Ukraine flared up to something much bigger than it is. And uh, again, thank God for the again the two articles last week in Newsweek and Reuters. I mean, it's the Pentagon is leaking stories. I mean, they're they're these are these are not people that are you know staying uh, staying anonymous because they don't want the Pentagon to find out. These are these are absolutely sanctioned leaks because you know it, it's just going it, it's it's so countering the narrative that we've been hearing. And, you know, uh, in the meantime, global warming, some shelf collapsed, 
in our in Antarctica this past week. I, I haven't even wanted to read about it because it's so depressing and I'm so helpless to do anything about it. But uh, you know this, uh, you know. Uh, How about this? Uh, How about this? Yeah. In order to reduce gun violence in America, President Biden's new budget requests $30 billion for police departments to reduce gun violence. That's going to help. <laughs> I mean, all I still remember is the day after the Black Lives Matter rally to, uh, going on two years ago in Aurora, I like... 11 of these armored vehicles were rolling down Route 25, which is like the, the east side main street of Aurora. And I'm going, no knock warrant on Marianne's house. What the hell are these things? I mean, I even confronted the mayor. What are these things are supposed to do? You know, what are you doing with these? And I know I'm, I look, because I do budgets now, uh, and it's like every one of these things, I said, I bet that's a, minimum $60,000 to $100,000 yearly maintenance, you know, expense on every one of these suckers. Yeah. But, you know, this is, uh, you know, and, and my, the, the worst thing about it is where the hell are the progressives? Where are the anti-war? Where are the voices for diplomacy? Where are anybody that has any kind of, you know, memory going back at least a few years, you know, where are they? There's a couple people running. One of them is Jason Call. I think you had him on the show, but he should be on your show. He's running, I think, in with uh, Washington second district for Congress, but he's been very adamant about this. And I guess they're just, they're just scared. And they just, oh, we gotta survive so that we can have that next Medicare vote for all vote. <laughs> There's no leadership. It's really, you know. ICE is getting a bump. They're going to spend over $9 billion to fund ICE. That's how Well, we got to round up more like Haitians and Hondurans if we want to take in those Ukrainian refugees. Right. That's how he's reforming it, ICE by giving them more money instead of abolishing ICE. You know, this is just massive wealth transfer with the thinnest veneer of concern for national security or, you know, anything else. I mean, this is, I don't know what it's going to take, you know, uh, for revolution, real political revolution, but um, maybe it's the Democrats getting their asses handed to them. I mean, Biden's approval rating is at an all-time low in the NBC poll. Yeah. This war, this, you know, warmongering does not seem to be resonating much for Biden. And uh, and why should it? I mean, it's all kind of... Do you th I, I doubt anybody in my neighborhood cares about what's going on in Ukraine right now, especially that, you know, we've got... People are having a homeless problem. There's homeless. The homeless uh, problem is increasing around Aurora. I mean, they, there were plans. I don't know why they're not being implemented. There's plenty of empty buildings, empty old you know, um, motels and hotels around here. And it's, you know, so I've just been trying to, like, rattle some cages. But, you know, that's why I support people like my friend Rachel Ventura. By the way, right. that was a great conversation. She was great. Uh, Thank you for she's, that. She's sharp, isn't he? Yeah. She, she's real. She's on her game. Yes. 
and this she trains time. and she knows how to train a wolf here i'm going to show you the the clip one more time of will smith and chris rock and i'm oh, sure, yeah i want to show it because i have a question oh, wow. So, again, it doesn't seem real. It doesn't, no. It doesn't look real. Hey, look, I had no idea this was going on. I was at the restaurant late having dinner, and I was looking up, and Will, and Will Smith was giving an acceptance speech, and I kept looking up at him going, that's a really long acceptance speech. They usually allow him to go on for about three minutes. Uh, what's going on? I hope he's not talking about Ukraine. You know, It's right. like, it's, and yeah. then I got home, and then I, of course, you know, like the... The Twitter feed and the Facebook feed is filled with all this crap. Assuming, you know that, I was... assuming that punch was real, because they say mm -hmm. it was real. I mean, one more time, and then I have a question to ask you. But as oh. I made clear, America forces are <laughs> wrong, wrong belligerent. Hang on. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, Chris Rock can take a punch. If that's real, Chris Rock is pretty strong. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're, you're, if you're punched in the mouth, I mean, you don't say anything. If you've punched in the mouth for real, you don't say anything for, you know, at least 10 seconds. Okay. <laughs> So, so I don't know. So I try to wrap my head around, again, Will Smith. This is not a judgment at all about Will Smith. I spoke about him earlier. Could you ever forget being in front of millions of people? Punch somebody in the jaw. Can you imagine doing that? I could imagine doing it <laughs> so in a life or death situation. And in fact, I did kick somebody when I was 19 and foolish and had a brown belt in Taekwondo. Really? Yeah, there were there was real. I, I was assaulted in Ann Arbor back then. It was kind of dangerous. And uh, and then I ran like crazy. And it was really I might have done some damage, but I remember feeling really sick afterwards. You know, you think in your head, it's me so cool to be like. Bruce Lee, you know, and all these people, and it's not. It's just, it feels ugly. If it, you're it capable, we we are all capable of doing what Will Smith did. It's not that far a leap to turning on the TV to watch Shock and Awe as we bomb the crap out of Baghdad. We all watch it. And ignore it and then it's not that far a leap to be immune to the consequences of your decisions when you decide let's i'm gonna order this invasion i'm gonna spend more mm -hmm. money on weapons let's kill more people it's not that big a leap it's not that difficult for some americans to not only be okay with the decimation of innocent civilians, uh, they enjoy it. 
Oh, I mean, shock and awe was it was like watching a video game. I mean, I remember that it was, uh, you know, people were it was entertainment for people. I think this war in Ukraine is entertainment for people here when they keep hearing about how Russia is getting its ass kicked and they're losing and they're losing and they're losing. And I fall in prey to that. You know, I'm I'm rooting for Ukraine, obviously, but they're young soldiers in those Russian tanks. That's right. And, you know, this uh, and both sides showing, you know, like soldiers, prisoners of war basically being held up and humiliated. That's a war crime, too. Yeah. You know, they're not supposed to. And by the way, because um, you, you were talking about uh, Peter B. Collins was talking about the world court. Um, you know, I remember many years ago. Henry Kissinger was about a half hour away from getting uh, arrested in France on war crime charges. Right. Uh, a few years ago, when when George W. Bush was hawking his book and he was doing a tour, he was scheduled to speak in Switzerland, and diplomats there suggested that he not go because Switzerland. Is has signed on to the world court, and they have laws where they can arrest somebody that they deem is guilty of war crimes, even though that person's country does not recognize the world court. So they told George W. Bush that it was best if he stayed at home, and he did. I'm told John so, Kerry, the former Secretary of State, who authorized the sale of weapons to Saudi Arabia, which were then used on the Houthis in Yemen. I'm told that he's been advised not to travel to Spain. Hmm. Um, well, I'm sure a lot of the, uh, you know, of, of President Cheney's cabinet, there's very few places on the planet they can travel to safely. Without right. worrying about, you know, locals protesting their, their being there, threatening to arrest him. But yeah, you know, what a horrible legacy, really. What a horrible legacy this all is for these people. And again, what a tragedy. I mean, you know, we had the kind of power and an ability that people could only dream of centuries and centuries ago that to actually cure disease, to actually do something about hunger. And we have squandered that. And now, as I've been mentioning it, like in the last two or three weeks, I mean, the world order is shifting. There are deals now being made for oil that are not in dollars. And, you know, it's not, it probably won't release a floodgate immediately, but the rest of the world is taking note that the rules are changing now. And, you know, we might be foolishly, I mean, look, we've got a president who's telling us to expect food shortages. What the hell, why would we have to expect Food shows. Can't we feed ourselves? I mean, we've got the breadbasket of the world out in the Great Plains, but, uh, you know, it's like, what are they doing to us? They are basically getting us ginned up for some things they want to do to us and have as a cover, you know, dial in the criminal. Putin, Saddam, Assad, you know, it's, they're all the same, you know, ooga booga. But anyway, that's. Uh, well, well said. Professor Marianne Cummings is a parks commissioner elected. She's our only elected official here. She was elected, reelected as parks commissioner in Aurora, Illinois. She's a particle physicist and an amazing artist. 
and follow her on Twitter at RazorGirl. Thank you, Professor Marianne. Hope to see Peace you up. Thursday night for the professors and Marianne. Thank you. Well, it is time now to talk animals. This is exciting. Professor Pamela joins us. Hello, Professor Pamela. Sorry to keep you waiting tonight. We're running a little behind schedule. No worries. Good some, evening. Somebody doesn't know how to keep his mouth shut and he talks too much. Professor Pamela is a professor in the Department of Biology at Brandon University in Manitoba, Canada. She primarily studies lizards, snakes, frogs, toads, and turtles, focusing on animal behavior. And she's back here once again to share some interesting animal facts with us. You were a big hit last week. So thank you for taking time to join us. Yeah, happy to join. Um, so what animal, oh. what animal are we going to talk about? You, we were talking about uh, spiders and, and I think porcupines. Actually, echidna. And I do have some pictures. Like, would it be very bad if I popped them up behind me? Or, uh, sure, that go gonna... ahead. No, no, go ahead. Please. But, uh, I did come Please up. So ahead. there's an echidna. Now, that looked like a porcupine. It also looks like me... Uh, when I haven't uh, used conditioner in my hair transplants. L let's look at that again. <laughs> they're very yeah. adorable. Yeah. Um, so they're native to Australia. They're monotreme, so egg-laying mammals, which is kind of a weird little group of animals that live down there. Egg-laying? They lay... Mammals can lay eggs? <laughs> yeah, there's a handful of them, like platypuses as well, lay eggs. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so last week I was talking about the... Echidna has four penises or like a four pronged penis. So there they are there. I was sort of trying to describe them, but I don't think I so did that, them justice. Is that a, I would assume that is a female who's seeing four penises and her hair is just standing on <laughs> and like the bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is the male or the female. Uh, they may look very similar. That's okay. a very good question. Yeah. So She's what like, animal well, do you have? For us today what do you what? well i i feel like since the theme of the night is the slap right. that i feel like i should take my echidna off right i'm gonna talk about the duck penis is that You're okay talk about the the ducks that that would be uh donald duck and what is his girlfriend's name i want to say lucy it's not lucy duck what is Daisy. 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 Daisy Duck. Daisy Duck and Donald Duck. Yes. So, so they, um, very few birds actually have uh, penises, uh, male birds have penises. So they're quite, ducks are quite unique amongst birds in the, in the possession of a penis. And they do it up really fine i think most ducks piece uh most duck species do have this it's a corkscrew penis i, I do i do have pictures of the penis well hang on it's a it's a corkscrew penis corkscrew so yeah. you can order duck lorange and then use it to <laughs> open up a nice chablis it's a corkscrew. what do you mean a corkscrew 
Would you want to see what it looks well, like? Well, do we want to? Is it, is it going to be disturbing? I, d I don't know. Well, I'm, why don't I'm you describe wondering. it instead? Why don't we just use our imagination? Because okay. I don't want... There may be young ducklings watching. And they, they... So it is... It, it's very coiled, like a corkscrew. And as I mentioned, it's in theme with tonight's slap theme. In that Do you need a sommelier for an erection? Do you have to... Before you can... They, <laughs> the males actually release the penis like extremely quickly. Like, so you have this corkscrew penis that comes flying out at you at a high rate, and it's really long uh, compared to uh, many other species in terms of their relative body length. And I think um, some species, it's like, uh, I read 20 centimeters long, and that's just, you know, like a regular size duck. I think maybe up to 40 centimeters. 40 centimeters? Flying out at you. Yeah, it's impressive. Wow. 40 centimeters long. How's the width? Well, it's not particularly wide, but hmm. it's... So it's it's very, very coiled. And the theory behind that coiling is that the male uh, wants to, any particular male wants to get as much sperm into the female as possible. And so it's evolved to have this very long coiled, I feel like I'd be better with the picture no, of the no, no, penis no, and me wiggling I, my I hands. With <laughs> I don't think I can contain myself if I see this. <laughs> okay, we'll stay with Donald and yes. Daisy. Um, so, yeah, so the theory is that they have this very long coiled penis and um, it helps them in, um, they're what's called forced populations of, what, what, of forced? the male to the female. Forced, yeah. Non-consensual. So, Non-consensual, yeah, but sort of. So the counter side on the female side of it is that they evolve these incredibly convoluted vaginas to um, sort of counterbalance this corkscrewed penis and then like a lot of things with evolution you end up with this sort of arms race um the the hypothesis that we use is called the red queen hypothesis it comes from um alice in wonderland so basically the idea is that one thing changes the other thing changes the other thing changes right so that that's the theory behind this yeah so so, so the so the female duck's uh vagina uh, evolves to avoid the corkscrew penis. Sort of. So on the female side of it, um, she would uh, typically do better if she can get sperm from multiple males. So the female would mate with multiple males, not simultaneously, okay. <laughs> um, but multiple males. She get multiple sperm. The sperm will probably uh, compete within the vagina. That's very common practice in a lot of species. And so with having all of those coils, basically that's going to uh, help her get 
different uh, sperm from different males and get the best sperm to come through okay. and fertilize the egg. Uh, I'm sorry to so, interrupt, but the coil that the male penis has is to ensure that he's the only one. Yes. In, he's, he's literally screwing <laughs> in there. Yes. And yeah. so she wants to have a vagina that can release the screw quicker than he's willing Yes, and 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 um, also just make it so that the you know she gets the best quality sperm that kind of gets through the all of the the coils. So he's and the going for he's yeah. going for quantity. She's going for quality. Yes. Yeah. I see. I Typically, see. so yeah, lots of duck females will mate with multiple males, and then and that's and it's really common in a lot of animals that then you get the sperm competition that's going on, and that results in all sorts of different adaptations. Although the corkscrew penis is a really um, interesting one, and, and the the slap effect, like it releases so quickly, which is quite exciting. And and like, when he pulls out is there a popping sound is there a cork that you get to see there might be um i do i did have another uh cool penis uh well hang on well i'm not done with this penis yet lined up but just as a teaser okay but hang on on, does involve you know a popping sound so we can get to that one later okay uh so they don't do this in midair right no, no, no. Duck, duck sex is a is an on the ground event. Yes, it's and, not like a like an airplane fueling. And do they do <laughs> it? Uh, they, do they do it on the water or do they do it on land? I've seen both. Um, I don't know which is more common. I've certainly seen duck sex on water and on land for and is sure. It, yeah. Is it face to face? No, no. He's back behind. Yeah. Oh, so firing out his yeah. Not the way God intended. No, it doesn't doesn't look her in the eye. They're not looking in the eye. Oh. Okay, so they're they're not going to be in my heaven or yours. No. Ducks and okay. Do they? So they're not monogamous. And do the does the male duck participate in the raising of the ducklings? There's a mix. I think there are some species that have what's called biparental care. That's where both the males and females do. But I think it's far more common for just the females to. Um, well, actually, no, I maybe retract that. Yeah. Uh, lots of birds, they kind of do have to share incubation because, um, you know, if the female has to go off and eat. Mm-hmm. They need to keep the eggs warm. So, yeah, actually, uh, there would be lots of um, contribution in the in the sitting on the egg portion of it. Then once they hatch, uh, it's probably more of a mixed bag. Yeah. Okay. So is there another animal you would like to talk about? Um, this yeah, is fascinating. So kind of, this is just absolutely fascinating. Um, and I do have a, a picture, and it doesn't involve... Uh, penis per se, but it's good to see what these guys are. Hopefully you can see them. So that's actually two individuals. You can see the, the wings coming off. This is a, these are damselfly species. They're like very much like a dragonfly, but kind of daintier. 
Um, well, I'm sorry. Hang on for one second. Is that is that dragonflies having sex? This is damselflies having sex. Do you want me to take it down? And what part of the fly do you unzip? <laughs> um, it's really fascinating, actually, the way the sort of sperm gets transferred in these guys. Um, but the part I was going to talk about relating back to your um, sort of cork analogy popping out yes. is um, these guys have um, unique penis shapes. And the way it's typically described is that it's like a key, it's a unique key for um, within a species. And then the female would sort of have the, the, the unique lock that would fit that key. And it's actually a way to keep it to ensure that you stay mating within your species. So oh, you have right. a unique key and lock system. Basically. Well, that's interesting. That's really interesting. And so they the, try to, to do it with other species. So if they mate with the wrong species, it's kind of like sticking your key into your neighbor's lock and it doesn't fit. And then it rips it, off and then you don't have a penis anymore. Right. And so it that's feel, mostly not good. It doesn't good. feel good. It doesn't feel good. Won't feel good. Right. Yeah. So that is one of the really fascinating things about these guys. The other one is that and it's kind of like the duck story. But again, that male wants to ensure that it's only his sperm that gets uh, is that is fertilizing the female. And so before he mates, uh, along with having this fancy key penis, it has a little scraper on it. So he comes in and he scrapes out all the other sperm and then he deposits his sperm. So, so it's kind of like it's, a key party from the 70s. It's like a key party. Yeah. So scrape it all out, put your key in the bowl. Where you go. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so he, what does he do? He goes in there. What does he do? He actually uses his key penis and he scrapes out the uh, the, the uh, sperm from the other males to scrape her all out. Because um, sometimes, and I believe these guys do as well, the, after a male mates, they'll put a plug in, basically kind of, all right, we're done, lock her up. <laughs> and um, the female doesn't necessarily want that. So she might not be opposed to another male coming in, popping the plug out. And popping his sperm in, especially if he's a higher quality male. So, so yeah, there's a there's a lot of um, acrimony. I don't know. There's a lot of of um, yeah uh, back and forth uh, between males and females. And promiscuity. Uh, lots of promiscuity. Yeah, yeah. And where are um, you more likely to see this uh, this lasciviousness? Is it coming mostly from the males or the women? And how well, much both. both really? Yeah. Yeah. So there's it's called polyandry. So that's when females would mate with multiple males and then poly polygyny when males mate with multiple females and you get a bit of both. And then promiscuity is when they're both. It's just a free for all. But it's actually extremely common. It was um, it was really only until they were able to do like DNA fingerprinting um that we that they realized how abundant and um prevalent it was across the animal kingdom really and how much of this is because of dancing 
Yes. A lot of dancing. Yeah. Well, there's the damselflies. Now that shows them um, landed, but they will fly around like this. It's really beautiful if you see them. They they do it like the Mile High Club. They do. Yeah. So you you could be seeing them fly by you and they're, uh, they're having sex. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For, for extended periods. Um, it's really impressive if you kind of think about it compared to uh, humans, to be honest. You can be flying and having sex at the yeah. same time. Well, flying, scraping sperm, putting in plugs. Yeah. All, all in They're, all in midair. All in midair. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah. Wow. I met a Swedish stewardess in the 70s, but that's a different story. This is so interesting. Animals are fascinating. The animal kingdom is fascinating. Thank you, Professor Pamela. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I, I just brought the two for today, but if folks have questions, I'm happy to- Yes, are to... there any questions? Uh, but... I, I see uh, Rodrigo always has a question. We can- uh, Rod, what would you like to know uh, about uh, these animals? I think he's uh, okay. I don't think. I think Rodrigo's. Uh, it says he's muted. No, I unmuted him. Oh, I, I think he's showing still muted. Hi. There he is. There he is. Okay. You have a question I for was animal? I hoping Professor Pamela could talk about Antarctica for a bit. Thank you. <laughs> I, I didn't hear what he said. What is it? He wants me to talk about Antarctica. Um, I I won't add that in today, but I am going to give a segment at, um, I think this weekend's office hours, I'm going to talk about the, I think more specifically the latest IPCC report that came out in April because it talks about impacts on biodiversity, which is more my wheelhouse. I, I might just leave uh, the Antarctica discussion to Professor Faluna, which I think he's far more knowledgeable than I am right. about that. And penguins. Oh, well, maybe that's the next segment. Actually, penguins are really fascinating. So, yeah, let's. I'll bring them next time if you if you and, want to have me back. And, and of course, and there are rumors that some penguins are. I don't want to. Gay. Oh, oh. I've heard rumors about some penguins. <laughs> yeah, you haven't heard that. I am oh, okay. <laughs> that they, that, or at least they will brood over an egg. That the the male penguin will watch over the egg. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, male parental care is very common in um, penguins. And um, well, I don't want to spoil it. There's okay. a, another species that that would also be a nice a nice pairing with the penguin story. So yeah, no, I could uh, bring Fantastic. them to the next chat. This is animals are so interesting. Professor Pamela is a professor in the Department of Biology at Brandon University in Manitoba, Canada, and you can contact her on Twitter at Rutherford underscore P L R. Thank you, Professor Pamela. Great job.
getting hot in here. That conversation. Uh, I'm going to take a shower. I want to thank all our guests for being on today's show. This was a, a great show. I want to thank, of course, Dan Frankenberger, the quiz master, as always. Robert uh, Pascal Robert, who is one of the hosts of This Is Revolution. Download his podcast. He hosts it with Jason Miles, who could not be with us today. The brilliant Howie Klein. Go to downwithtyranny.com to read Howie Klein. And of course, Steve Scrovan, co-host of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, director with Henriette Mantel of the iconic documentary about Ralph Nader, An Unreasonable Man. And go to ralphnaderradiohour.com and sign up to attend this Wednesday's live recording session of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. We're doing it for free on Zoom. It starts, I think, around noon Eastern Standard Time, maybe 1230 Eastern Standard Time. Special guest, Jesse Singer, she will be discussing her new book, There Are No Accidents, The Deadly Rise of Injury and Disaster, Who Profits and Who Pays the Price. You can sit in on our recording session. All you need is Zoom. Go to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website to register. We have space for 500 people, so please come and meet the cast and crew of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. And by that, I mean Ralph Nader. He's the only person you really want to meet. Dr. Harriet Fraud, go to harrietfraud.com. Thank you. Professor Adnan Hussein, listen to his two podcasts, please. The Mudgeless Podcast and, of course, Guerrilla History. Peter B. Collins, go to Peter B. Collins for a treasure trove of his podcast, radio shows, and interviews. Of course, the brilliant Professor Marianne Cummings. Follow her on Twitter at RazorGirl, and girl is spelled G-R-R-L. And of course, Professor Pamela. Follow her at Rutherford underscore P-L-R. Follow me on Twitter and friend me on Facebook, and Texas Tom Weber is going to be discussing Liberation Theology with a very special guest this Wednesday. Tell us about it, Professor Tom Weber. Hey, how are you doing there, David? Thank you so much. Um, well, yeah, I am really excited about this. I uh, have a sister named Barbara who is going to be coming on, on uh, to talk to our uh spirituality and activism group and just a little bit of background about her she worked in bogota colombia uh in 1968 and then spent five years from 1970 1975 working in bahia brazil and uh so she over many years has uh rub shoulders with some of the top activists in South America and Central America. And then later she ended up working in Africa, being hired by the government of Guinea-Bissau, along with her husband. And so she's got a lot of stories to tell. 
And this is coming on the heels of the fact that we just finished an article that we studied for a couple of weeks on uh, liberation theology and Marxism. So she will be telling a lot of stories and we'll be there to uh, take your questions and whatnot. So I'd like to invite everybody to join us Wednesday evening. And this is from 8.30 to 10 o'clock is the formal meeting. Uh, and uh, I will post the Zoom link as I always do on um, Discord. We right. have a special channel there. Spirituality and Activism is hosted by Tom Weber. You do it uh, through office hours and people can sign up. I will link to the link uh, in the description for this show so people can sign up for it. And you're going to learn about liberation theology from the source. I can't think of a better way to spend your Wednesday evening than attending spirituality and activism. Yeah, and uh, well, let me clarify a little bit. I don't think that she's going to be trying to teach about liberation theology per se, even though that was a large focus, what she's doing. She's going to be talking about her her work with the poor uh, down in South America. And obviously that's all tied together, but I don't want to sell it differently than what it's going to be. Fantastic. Well, All right. So thank you so much. Thank you, I really Texas, appreciate Tom. It. Thank you. Everybody, please uh, attend Spirituality and Activism. More information in the description of this show, as well as joining our Discord group, our Discord channel. In order to do that, you have to attend office hours. And then Andy Brown will explain how the Discord channel works. Thank you all. I want to thank the people who helped put this show together, who work the infrastructure. Of course, Dan Frankenberger, The Invisible Ninja, Andy Brown, Professor John, Hannah Feldman, Joe in Norway, uh, Grace Jackson. They come to the meetings. I probably left somebody out, but they come to the meetings and we are growing this uh, this program I can't do it alone. I need people like, uh, you know, the people I just mentioned. Uh, this is this used to be a one-man operation, but uh, I cannot do it without people like Dan Frankenberger and Andy Brown and Sarah Bush and the Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, Professor John, Grace Jackson and Hannah Fartman, they keep the, the pipes going. And we have a YouTube channel. Portions of this show are cut up and posted on YouTube. And if you want to watch the entire taping of the podcast, we live stream it every Monday and Thursday on YouTube. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel. I think that covers everything i think i've covered everything yes i did david can i finish yes yes, yes rodrigo that's okay uh, because if you've ever watched any episode of any law and order you know what the fruit of the poisonous tree means yes basically any procedure followed boldly 
gets a guilty person a get out of jail for free card, right. refusing to take early retirement and ending up in jail, hence a get out of jail for free card to anyone whoever they ever sent to prison. And yet the DA that decided to send Melissa Lucio to death row to get reelected is serving 13 years in prison right now. Do you have any idea how corrupt you have to be as a Texas DA to not only get fired but end up in prison? So please search for M-E-L-I-S-S-A-L-U-C-I-O at the Innocence Project. Read about her extremely sad life and share her story. Thank you. Thank you, Rodrigo, as always. Thank you. I think the best way to end tonight's show is uh, a conversation, a clip from my conversation with former President Donald J. Trump. Before I say goodbye, let's hear from former President Donald J. Trump. Hang on. Okay, let's turn to that big rally this Saturday. So oh, much love at the rally, David. So much love. Great people, great people in Florence, South Carolina. So smart, so discerning. And it was sold out, David. They were packed in tighter than Chris Christie sitting in a coach seat. Get it, David, because of the weight. Can you get it, David? Are you following me? I get it. I get it. fit into a coach seat, David. Do you get it? I get it. You can have that one, David. That's another freebie. I know you people like freebies. I know. I know you love the freebies. What people? Your people, David. The free brews. (laughs) Oh, boy. I can't help it, David. You know, they say that Zelensky is a comedian. But I'm so much I'm so much funnier than that Zelensky guy. I just don't get him, David. I don't get him. I don't get that Nanette Fabre. I don't get them. Anyway, the people of South Carolina love me, David. I do great there because their elections aren't rigged. You get an honest count in South Carolina, unlike Georgia or Arizona or Vermont, where I won in a landslide, David. But they rigged it. They rigged it, David. Now, that's the president, the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. There are people who are writing in saying it's Robert Smigel. That is not Robert Smigel. That is former president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. Sleepy, sleepy Joe Biden. And his son, Sneezy. Sneezy Hunter Biden. You know why he's Sneezy, David? You know why he's Sneezy? Do you know? Ask me why he's Sneezy. As opposed to Sleepy, ask me why his nickname is Sneezy Hunter Biden. Why do you call Hunter Biden Sneezy? Why do you because of all the cocaine, David? That's what makes you sneeze, David. Sneezy Hunter Biden. Okay, can we get back to Biden? Not sleepy at all, David. The opposite of sleepy. Can we get back? Can we get back to what, David? 
we get back to the midterm? All the cocaine, David, and the prostitutes. What prostitutes? That's what makes him sneezy. The ones the Hunter sleeps with, they also make you sneezy because of the COVID, David. They carry diseases, David. Sneezy Biden. Let's all welcome. Let's all welcome the Biden family. Sleepy, sneezy, and Doc. That's right, Doc. Dr. Jill. Dr. Jill Biden. Oh, the doctor. We'll see you now. Dr. Jill and their vice president, Kamalama Ding Dong. <laughs> Got sleepy, sneezy, dopey, and Doc. Dr. Jill. Dr. Jill Biden, the doctor will see you now. Dr. Jill, Joe Biden is a corpse, David. His hair plugs, his fingernails, and his budget deficit, are, they're still growing, but he's a corpse, David. He's a disaster. Afghanistan, Ukraine, inflation, COVID. I left him a White House that was in pristine shape, David. And now look. I want the cleaning deposit back, Joe. I don't recognize the place. Melania made it beautiful. And then comes in Dr. Jill. Dr. Jill Biden. Okay, Dr. you're being a little upset. You do realize that Dr. Jill is not a medical doctor. I believe she has a doctorate in education. Amazing, isn't it? A doctorate in education. An educator. The only thing worse, David, than a doctor is an educator. Instead of giving your kids enlarged hearts with their vaccines, they turn them gay with books. Hello, Dr. Jill. It's me, your husband, Sleepy. Sleepy Joe. I'm having chest pains and my left arm is feeling numb, Dr. Jill. Can you help me, Dr. Jill? Can you help me? Can we get back to the... And then Dr. Jill, with her doctorate in education, is going to tell Sleepy Joe, okay, let's check your vitals. How's your curriculum design feeling today? What's your white count? What's your black count? What's your Asian count? Because they're just as important as your black count and your white count. Let me check your CRT levels, all right? Does your family have a history of being gay, Sleepy Joe? Because I'm Dr. Jill Biden, and I'm here to save my corpse of a husband, the recently departed Sleepy Weepy Beepy Joe. You know why they call him Beepy Joe? Because he flatlined. Beep. It's a corpse, David. Beep. Aging Dr. Jill. Code blue, you killed another one. Beep, 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 beep Joe. Beep, 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 Joe Biden. Beep, beep, Joe and his vice president, Dopey. Come along, ding dong. Ding dong, who is it? It's me, Dr. Joe Biden, and I'm here to tell you my husband's a corpse. And now you're the president, Dopey Kamalama Ding Dong. Can you imagine, David? President, comma, comma, chameleon. She comes and goes. She comes and goes. Culture Club, David, that's Culture Club. Rosie produced a Broadway musical about Boy George and Culture Club. You know what else she produced, David? What? Gas. Gas. 
lots and lots of gas, David. We don't need oil reserves, David. We have Rosie. Rosie okay. can make enough gas, David, to replace Nord Stream 1 and 2, David. All right. And Zelensky's funny. 1 and 2, David. Lots and lots of gas. Rosie, gas. Lots of gas. Rosie. Okay. Fat. Okay. okay. <laughs> I get it. Nord okay. Stream, you know what? She's yep. going to replace Nord Stream 1, and then she's going to make a Nord Stream <laughs> number 2. <laughs> Thank you, Saul Yusuf, for the assist. That's... Uh... That is uh, former President Donald Trump. That is not Robert Smigel. That was not Smigel. That was Donald Trump. I refuse to uh, believe that it's anybody other than former President Donald J. Trump. That is our show. Please subscribe wherever you get podcasts. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show So get your ears on right, buckled in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Yes, it's time right now on the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way.